This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Lone Star Planet by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire. It's read by Phil Chenevere for LibriVox. It runs 3 hours 15 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere Lone Star Planet by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire First published in 1958 as a planet for Texans. Chapter 1 They started giving me the business as soon as I came through the door into the secretary's outer office. There was Ethel Kwong Lee, the secretary's receptionist at her desk. There was Cortland Staines, the assistant secretary to the undersecretary for economic penetration, and Norman Gazarin from Protocol, and Toby Lauder from Humanoid People's Affairs, and Raoul Xavier, and Hans Montufel, and Olga Resnick. It was a wonder there weren't more of them watching the condemned man's march to the gibbet. The word that the secretary had called me in must have gotten all over the department since the offices had opened. "'Ah, Mr. Machiavelli, I presume?' Ethel kicked it off. "'Machiavelli, Jr.' Olga picked up the ball. "'At least that's the way he signs it. "'God's gift to the consular service and the consular service's gift to policy planning,' Gazarin added. "'Take it easy, folks.' "'These hooligan diplomats would as soon shoot you as look at you,' Montefel warned. "'Be sure and tell the secretary that your friends all want important posts in the Galactic Empire,' Olga added. "'Well, I'm glad some of you could read it,' I fired back. "'Maybe even a few of you understood what it was all about.' "'Don't worry, Silk,' Gazarin told me. "'Secretary Glopal understands what it's all about.' All too well, you'll find. A buzzer sounded gently on Ethel Kwong Lee's desk. She snatched up the handphone and whispered into it. A deathly silence filled the room while she listened, whispered some more, then hung it up. They were all staring at me. Secretary Glopal is ready to see you, Mr. Stephen Silk, she said. This way, please. As I started across the room, Staines began drumming on the top of the desk with his fingers, the slow, reiterated rhythm to which a man marches to a military execution. "'A cigarette?' Lauder inquired tonelessly. "'A glass of rum?' There were three men in the Secretary of State's private office. Klopal Singh, the secretary, dark-faced, gray-haired, slender and elegant, meeting me halfway to his desk. Another slender man in black with a silver-threaded black neck-scarf, Rudolf Klung, the Secretary of the Department of Aggression, and a huge, gross-bodied man with a baby face and opaque black eyes. When I saw him, I really began to get frightened. 
The fat man was Natalenko, the security coordinator. "'Good morning, Mr. Silk,' Secretary Gopal greeted me, his hand extended. "'Gentlemen, Mr. Stephen Silk, about whom we were speaking. This way, Mr. Silk, if you please.' There was a low coffee-table at the rear of the office, and four easy chairs around it. On the round brass tabletop were cups and saucers, a coffee-urn, cigarettes, and a copy of the current issue of the Galactic Statesman's Journal, open at the article entitled, Probable Future Courses of Solar League Diplomacy, by somebody who had signed himself Machiavelli, Jr. I was beginning to wish that the pseudonymous Machiavelli, Jr. had never been born, or at least had stayed on State of Virgo four, and been a wineberry planter as his father had wanted him to be. As I sat down and accepted a cup of coffee, I avoided looking at the periodical. They were probably going to hang it around my neck before they shoved me out of the airlock. Mr. Silk is, as you know, in our consular service, Gopal was saying to the others. Back on Luna Rotation, doing something in Mr. Halford's section, he is the gentleman who did such a splendid job for us on Asha, Gamma Norma Three. And as he has just demonstrated, he added, gesturing toward the statesman's journal on the Benares work-table, he is a student both of the diplomacy of the past and the implications of our present policies. A bit frank, Klung commented dubiously. But judicious, Natalinko squeaked, in the high, unicorn voice that came so incongruously from his bulk. He aired his singularly accurate predictions in a periodical that doesn't have a circulation of more than a thousand copies outside his own department. And I don't think the public's semantic reactions to the terminology of imperialism is as bad as you imagine. They seem quite satisfied now with the change in the title of your department from defense to aggression. Well, we've gone into that, gentlemen, Gopal said. If the article really makes trouble for us, we can always disavow it. There's no censorship of the journal, and Mr. Silk won't be around to draw fire on us. Here it comes, I thought. That sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it, Mr. Silk? Natalenko tittered happily, like a ten-year-old who has just found a new beetle to pull the legs out of. It's really not as bad as it sounds, Mr. Silk, Gopal hesitated to reassure me. We are going to have to banish you for a while, but I dare say that won't be so bad. The social life here on Luna has probably begun to pall anyhow. So we're sending you to Capella Four. Capella Four, I repeated, trying to remember something about it. Capella was a G.O. type, like Saul. That wouldn't be so bad. New Texas, Klung helped me out. Oh, God, no, I thought. It happens that we need somebody of your sort on that planet, Mr. Silk, Gopal said. Some of the trouble is in my department and some of it is in Mr. Klung's. For that reason, perhaps it would be better if Coordinator Natalenko explained it to you. You know, I assume, our chief interest in New Texas? Natalenko asked. I had some of it for breakfast, sir, I replied. Super cow. Natalenko tittered again. <laughs> yes, New Texas is the butcher shop of the galaxy. 
In more ways than one, I'm afraid you'll find. They just butchered one of our people there a short while ago. Our ambassador, in fact. That would be Silas Cumshaw, and this was the first I'd heard about it. I asked when it had happened. A couple of months ago. We just heard about it last evening when the news came in on a freighter from there, which serves to point up something you stressed in your article, the difficulties of trying to run a centralized democratic government on a gigantic scale. But we have another interest which may be even more urgent than our need for new Texan meat. You've heard, of course, of the Zisroff? That was a statement, not a question. Natalenko wasn't trying to insult me. I knew who the Zisroff were. I'd run into them here and there. One of the extrasolar-intelligent humanoid races, who seemed to have been evolved from canine or canine-like ancestors instead of primates. Most of them could speak basic English, but I never saw one who would admit to understanding more of our language than the 850-word basic vocabulary. They occupied a half-dozen planets in a small star cluster about forty light-years beyond the Capella system. They had developed normal space-reaction drive ships before we came into contact with them, and they had quickly picked up the hyperspace drive from us back in those days when the Solar League was still playing missionaries of progress and trying to run a galaxy-wide point-four program. In the past century, it had become almost impossible for anyone to get into their star group, although Zisroff ships were orbiting in on every planet that the League had settled or controlled. There were Zisroff traders and small merchants all over the galaxy, and you never saw one of them without a camera. Their little meteor-mining boats were everywhere, and all of them carried more of the most modern radar and astrogational equipment than a meteor miner's lifetime earnings would pay for. I also knew that they were one of the chief causes of ulcers and premature gray hair at the Lee capital on Luna. I'd done a little reading on the pre-spaceflight Terran history. I had been impressed by the parallel between the present situation and one which had culminated two and a half centuries before on the morning of 7 December 1941. What? Natalinko inquired. Do you think Machiavelli, Jr. would do about the Zisroff? We have a department of aggression, I replied. Its mottoes are, Stop trouble before it starts, and, if we have to fight, let's do it on the other fellow's real estate. But this situation is just a little too delicate for literal application of those principles. An unprovoked attack on the Zisroff would set every other non-human race in the galaxy against us. Would an attack by the Zisroff on New Texas constitute just provocation? It might. New Texas is an independent planet. Its people are descendants of immigrants from Terra who wanted to get away from the rule of the Solar League. We've been trying for half a century to persuade the New Texan government to join the League. We need their planet, for both strategic and commercial reasons. With the Zestroff for neighbors, they need us as much, at least, as we need them. The problem is to make them understand that." I nodded again. "'And an attack by the Zestroff would do that, too, sir,' I added. 
Natalinko tittered again. <laughs> you see, gentlemen, our Mr. Silk picks things up very handily, doesn't he? He turned to Secretary of State Gopal. You take it from there, he invited. Gopal Singh smiled benignly. Well, that's it, Stephen, he said. We need a man on New Texas who can get things done. Three things, to be exact. First, find out why poor Mr. Cumshaw was murdered, and what can be done about it to maintain our prestige without alienating the New Texans. Second, bring the government and people of New Texas to a realization that they need the Solar League as much as we need them. And third, forestall or expose the plans for the Zesroff invasion of New Texas. Is that all now? I thought. He doesn't want a diplomat. He wants a magician. And what, I asked, will my official position be on New Texas, sir? Or will I have one of any sort? Oh, yes, indeed, Mr. Silk. Your official position will be that of Ambassador Plenipotentiary and Envoy Extraordinary. That, I believe, is the only vacancy which exists in the diplomatic service on that planet. At Dumbarton Oaks Diplomatic Academy, they haze the freshmen by making them sit on a one-legged stool and balance a teacup and saucer on one knee, while the upperclassmen pelt them with ping-pong balls. Whoever invented that and the other similar forms of hazing was one of the great geniuses of the service. So I sipped my coffee, set down the cup, took a puff from my cigarette, and then said, I am deeply honored, Mr. Secretary. I trust I needn't go into any assurances that I will do everything possible to justify your trust in me. I believe he will, Mr. Secretary. Natalinko piped in a manner that chilled my blood. Yes, I believe so, Gopal Singh said. Now, Mr. Ambassador, there's a liner in orbit two thousand miles off Luna, which has been held from blasting off for the last eight hours, waiting for you. Don't bother packing more than a few things. You can get everything you need aboard, or at New Austin, the planetary capital. We have a man whom Coordinator Natalinko has secured for us, a native New Texan, Hadi Ringo by name. He'll act as your personal secretary. He's aboard the ship now. You'll have to hurry, I'm afraid. Well, uh, bon voyage, Mr. Ambassador. Chapter 2 The Death Watch outside had grown to about fifteen or twenty. They were all waiting in happy anticipation as I came out of the secretary's office. "'What did he do to you, Silk?' Cortland Staines asked amusedly. "'Demoted me. Kicked me off the hooligan diplomats,' I said glumly. "'Demoted you from the consular service?' Staines asked scornfully. "'Impossible!' "'Yes, he demoted me to the cookie-pushers. Cleared down to ambassador.' They got a terrific laugh. I went out, wondering what sort of noises they'd make the next morning when the appointments sheet was posted. I gathered a few things together, mostly small personal items, and all the microfilms that I could find on New Texas, then got aboard the Space Navy cutter that was waiting to take me to the ship. It was a four-hour trip, and I put in the time going over my hastily assembled microfilm library and using a stenophone to dictate a reading list for the spaceship. 
As I rolled up the stenophone tape, I wondered what sort of secretary they had given me, and in passing why Natalenko's department had furnished him. Hotty Ringo. Queer name. But in a galactic civilization you find all sorts of names and all sorts of people bearing them, so I was prepared for anything. And I found it. I found him standing with the ship's captain inside the airlock when I boarded the big spherical space liner. A tubby little man with shoulders and arms he had never developed doing secretarial work, and a good-natured, not particularly intelligent face. See the happy moron, he doesn't give a damn, I thought. Then I took a second look at him. He might be happy, but he wasn't a moron. He just looked like one. Natalenko's people often did as one of their professional assets. I also noticed that he had a bulge under his left armpit the size of an eleven-millimeter army automatic. He was, I'd been told, a native of New Texas. I gathered after talking with him for a while that he'd been away from his home planet for over five years and was glad to be going back and especially glad that he was going back under the protection of Solar League diplomatic immunity. In fact, I rather got the impression that, without such protection, he wouldn't have been going back at all. I made another discovery. My personal secretary, it seemed, couldn't read stenotype. I found that out when I gave him the tape I dictated aboard the cutter to transcribe for me. "'Gosh, boss, I can't make anything out of this stuff.' he confessed, looking at the combination shorthand braille that my voice had put onto the tape. Well, then, put it in a player and transcribe it by ear, I told him. He didn't seem to realize that that could be done. How did you come to be sent as my secretary if you can't do secretarial work? I wanted to know. He got out a bag of tobacco and a book of papers and began rolling a cigarette with one hand. Why, <laughs> shucks, boss! "'Nobody seemed to think I'd have to do this kind of work,' he said. "'I was just sent along to show you the way around New Texas "'and see you don't get into no trouble.' He got his handmade cigarette drawing and hitched the scrap that went across his back and looped under his right arm. "'A guy that don't know the way around can get into a lot of trouble on New Texas, "'if you call getting killed trouble.' "'So he was a bodyguard.' and I wondered what else he was. One thing, it would take him forty-two years to send a radio message back to Luna, and I could keep track of any other messages he sent, in letters or on tape, by ships. In the end, I transcribed my own tape and settled down to laying out my three-week study course on my new post. I found, however, that the whole thing could be learned in a few hours. The rest of what I had was duplication, some of it contradictory, and it all boiled down to this. Capella IV had been settled during the first wave of extrasolar colonization after the Fourth World or First Interplanetary War, sometime around 2100. The settlers had come from a place in North America called Texas, one of the old United States. They had a lengthy history, independent republic, admission to the United States, secession from the United States, reconquest by the United States, and general intransigence under the United States, the United Nations, and the Solar League. When the laws of non-Einsteinian physics were discovered and the hyperspace drive was developed, 
practically the entire population of Texas had taken to space to find a new home and independence from everybody. They had found Capella IV, a Terra-type planet with a slightly higher mean temperature, a lower mass and lower gravitational field, about one-quarter water and three-quarters land surface, at a stage of evolutionary development approximately that of Terra during the late Pliocene. They also found Supercow, a big mammal looking like the unsuccessful attempt of a hippopotamus to impersonate a dachshund and about the size of a nuclear steam locomotive. On New Texas's plains there were billions of them. Their meat was fit for the gods of Olympus. So New Texas had become the meat supplier to the galaxy. There was very little in any of the microfilm books about the politics of New Texas, and such as it was, it was very scornful. There were expressions as anarchy tempered by assassination and grotesque parody of democracy. There would, I assumed, be more exact information in the material which had been shoved into my hand just before boarding the cutter from Luna, in a package labeled Top Secret to be opened only in space after the first hyperjump. There was also a big trunk that had been placed in my suite, sealed and bearing the same instructions. I got Hottie out of the suite as soon as the ship had passed out of the normal space-time continuum, locked the door of my cabin, and opened the parcel. It contained only two loose-leaf notebooks, both labeled with the Solar League and Department seals, both adorned with the customary bloodthirsty threats against the unauthorized and the indiscreet. They were numbered one and two. One contained four pages. On the first I read, Final message of the first Solar League ambassador to New Texas, Andrew Jackson Hickok. I agree with none of the so-called information about this planet on file with the State Department on Luna. The people of New Texas are certainly not uncouth barbarians. Their manners and customs, while lively and unconventional, are most charming. Their dress is graceful and practical, not grotesque. Their soft speech is pleasing to the ear. Their flag is the original flag of the Republic of Texas. It is definitely not a barbaric travesty of our own emblem. And the underlying premises of their political system should, as far as possible, be incorporated into the organization of the Solar League. Here, politics is an exciting and exacting game, in which only the true representative of all the people can survive. Department Addendum After five years on New Texas, Andrew Jackson Hickok resigned, married a daughter of a local rancher, and became a naturalized citizen of that planet. He is still active in politics there, often in opposition to Solar League policies. That didn't sound too bad, an advertisement for the planet. I was even feeling cheerful when I turned to the next page, and Final Message of the Second Solar League Ambassador to New Texas, Cyril Godwinson. Yes and no, perhaps and perhaps not. Pardon me, I agree with everything you say. Yes and no, perhaps and perhaps not. Pardon me, I agree. Department Addendum After seven years on New Texas, Ambassador Godwinson was recalled, adjudged hopelessly insane. And then, final message of the third Solar League ambassador to New Texas, R. F. Gullis. 
I find it very pleasant to inform you that when you are reading this I will be dead. Department Addendum Committed Suicide After Six Months on New Texas I turned to the last page cautiously, found Final Message of the Fourth Solar League Ambassador to New Texas, Silas Cumshaw I came to this planet ten years ago as a man of pronounced and outspoken convictions. I have managed to keep myself alive here by becoming an inoffensive non-entity. If I continue in this course, it will be only at the cost of my self-respect. Beginning tonight, I am going to state and maintain positive opinions on the relation between this planet and the Solar League. Department Addendum Murdered at the home of Andrew J. Kickock. See page one. And that was the end of the first notebook. Nice cheerful reading, complete, solid briefing. I was frankly almost afraid to open the second notebook. I hefted it cautiously at first, saw that it contained only about as many pages as the first, and that those pages were sealed with a band around them. I took a quick peek, read the words on the band. Before reading, open the sealed trunk which has been included with your luggage. So I laid aside the book and dragged out the sealed trunk, hesitated, then opened it. Nothing shocked me more than to find the trunk full of clothes. There were four pairs of trousers, light blue, dark blue, gray, and black, with wide cuffs at the bottoms. There were six or eight shirts, their colors running the entire spectrum in the most violent shades. There were a couple of vests. There were two pairs of short boots with high heels and fancy leather working, and a couple of hats with four-inch brims. And there was a wide leather belt, practically a leather corset. I stared at the belt, wondering if I was really seeing what was in front of me. Attached to the belt were a pair of pistols in right and left-hand holsters. The pistols were seven-millimeter Krupp Tata ultra-speed automatics, and the holsters were the spring-ejection quick-draw holsters, which were the secret of the State Department of Special Services. This must be a mistake, I thought. I'm an ambassador now, and ambassadors never carry weapons. The sanctity of an ambassador's person not only made the carrying of weapons unnecessary, so that an armed ambassador was a contradiction of diplomatic terms, but it would be an outrageous insult to the nation to which he had been accredited like taking a poison taster to a friendly dinner. Maybe I was supposed to give the belt and the holsters to Hottie Ringo. So I tore the sealed band off the second notebook and read through it. I was to wear the local costume on New Texas. That was something unusual, even in the hooligan diplomats. We leaned over backward in wearing Terran costume to distinguish ourselves from the people among whom we worked. I was further advised to start wearing the high boots immediately, on shipboard, to accustom myself to the heels. These, I was informed, were traditional. They had served a useful purpose in the early days on Terran, Texas, when all travel had been on horseback. On horseless and mechanized new Texas, they were a useless but venerated part of the cultural heritage. There were bits of advice about the hat and the trousers, which for some obscure reason were known as Levi's, and I was informed, as an order, that I was to wear the belt and the pistols at all times outside the embassy itself. That was all of the second notebook. 
The two notebooks, plus my conversation with Gopal, Klung, and Natalingo, completed my briefing for my new post. I slid off my shoes and pulled on a pair of boots. They fitted perfectly. Evidently, I had been tapped for this job as soon as word of Silas Cumshaw's death had reached Luna, and there must have been some fantastic hurrying to get my outfit ready. I didn't like that any too well, and I liked the order to carry the pistols even less. Not that I had any objection to carrying weapons, per se. I had been born and raised on Theta Virgo Four, where the children aren't allowed outside the house unattended until they've learned to shoot. But I did have strenuous objection to being sent virtually ignorant of local customs on a mission where I was ordered to commit deliberate provocation of the local government, immediately on the heels of my predecessor's violent death. The author of Probable Future Courses of Solar League Diplomacy had recommended the use of provocation to justify conquest. If the New Texans murdered two Solar League ambassadors in a row, Nobody would blame the League for moving in with a space fleet and an army. I was beginning to understand how Dr. Guillotine must have felt when his neck was being shoved into his own invention. I looked again at the notebooks, each marked in red, Familiarize yourself with contents and burn or disintegrate. I'd have to do that, of course. There were a few non-humans and a lot of non-League people aboard the ship. I couldn't let any of them find out what we considered a full briefing for a new ambassador. So I wrapped them in the original package and went down to the lower passenger zone, where I found the ship's third officer. I told him that I had some secret diplomatic matter to be destroyed, and he took me to the engine room. I shoved the package into one of the mass-energy converters and watched it resolve itself into its constituent protons, neutrons, and electrons. On the way back, I stopped at the ship's bar. Hottie Ringo was there, wrapped up in, and I used the words literally, a young lady from the Aldebaran system. She was on her way home from one of the quickie divorce courts on Terra, and was celebrating her marital emancipation. They were so entangled with each other that they didn't notice me. When they left the bar, I slipped after them until I saw them enter the ladies' stateroom. That, of course, would have Hottie immobilized, better word located, for a while, so I went back to our suite, picked the lock of Hottie's room, and allowed myself half an hour to search his luggage. All of his clothes were new, but there were not a great many of them. Evidently, he was planning to re-outfit himself on New Texas. There were a few odds and ends, the kind any man with a real home planet will hold on to in the luggage. He had another 11-millimeter pistol, made by Consolidated Martian Metalworks, mate to the one he was carrying in a shoulder holster, and a wide two-holster belt like the one furnished me, but quite old. I greeted the sight and the meaning of the old holsters with joy. They weren't the State Department Special Services type. That meant that Hottie was just one of Natalinko's run-of-the-gallows cutthroats, not important enough to be issued the secret equipment. But I was a little worried over what I found hidden in the lining of one of his bags, a letter addressed to Space Commander Lucius C. Stonehenge, Aggression Department Attaché, New Austin Embassy. I didn't have either the time or the equipment to open it, but knowing our various departments, 
I tried to reassure myself with the thought that it was only a letter of credence with a real message to be delivered orally. About the real message? I had no doubts. Arrange the murder of Ambassador Stephen Silk in such a way that it looks like another new Texan job. Starting that evening, or what passed for evening aboard a ship in hyperspace, Hottie and I began a positively epical binge together. I had it figured this way. As long as we were on board ship, I was perfectly safe. On the ship, in fact, Hottie would definitely have given his life to save mine. I'd have to be killed on New Texas to give Klung's boys their excuse for moving in. And there was always the chance, with no chance too slender for me to ignore, that I might be able to get Hottie drunk enough to talk, yet still be sober enough myself to remember what he said. Exact times, details, faces, names came to me through a sort of hazy blur as Hottie and I drank something he called Super Bourbon, a New Texas drink that Bourbon County, Kentucky would never have recognized. They had no corn on New Texas. This stuff was made out of something called Super Yams. There were at least two things I got out of the binge. First, I learned to slug down the national drink without batting an eye. Second, I learned to control my expression as I uncovered the fact that everything on New Texas was super something. I was also cautious enough, before we really got started, to leave my belt and guns with the purser. I didn't want Hardy poking around those secret holsters. And I remember telling the captain to radio New Austin as soon as we came out of our last hyperspace jump, then to send the ship's doctor around to give me my hangover treatments. But the one thing I wanted to remember, as the hangover shots brought me back to normal life, I found was the one thing I couldn't remember. What was the name of that girl, a big, beautiful blonde, who joined the party along with Hottie's grass widow from Aldebaran and stayed with it to the end? Damn, I wished I could remember her name. When we were 15,000 miles off planet and the lighters from New Austin spaceport were reported on the way, I got into the skin-tight Levi's, the cataclysmic-colored shirt, and the loose vest, tucked my big hat under my arm, and went to the purser's office for my guns, buckling them on. When I got back to the suite, Hottie had put on his pistols and was practicing quick draws in front of the mirror. He took one look at my armament and groaned. "'You're going to get yourself killed for sure with that rig and them pop-guns,' he told me. These pop-guns'll shoot harder and make bigger holes than that pair of museum pieces you're carrying, I replied. And them holsters, Hottie continued. Why did it take all day to get your guns out of them? You better let me find you a real rig when we get to New Austin. There was a chance, of course, that he knew what I was using and wanted to hide his knowledge. I doubted that. Sure, you State Department guys always know everything, he went on. Like them microfilm books you was reading? I try to tell you what things is really like on New Texas, and you let it go in one ear and out the other. Then he wandered off to say goodbye to the grass widow from Aldebaran, leaving me to make the last-minute check on the luggage. I was hoping I'd be able to see that blonde, what was her name, Gail something or other. Let's see, she'd been at some Terran university, and she was on her way home to— to New Texas, of course. 
I saw her half an hour later in the crowd around the airlock when the lighters came alongside, and I tried to push my way toward her. As I did, the airlock opened, the crowd surged toward it, and she was carried along. Then the airlock closed, after she had gone through and before I could get to it. That meant I'd have to wait for the second lighter. So I made the best of it, and spent the next half hour watching the disk of the planet grow into a large ball that filled the lower half of the viewscreen, and then lose its curvature, and instead of moving in toward the planet, we were going down toward it. Chapter 3 New Austin Spaceport was a huge place, a good fifty miles outside the city. As we descended, I could see that it was laid out like a wheel, with the landings and the blast-off stands around the hub, and high buildings, packing houses and refrigeration plants, along the many spokes. It showed a technological level quite out of keeping with the accounts I had read, or the stories Hottie had told about the simple ranch life of the planet. Might be foreign capital invested there, and I made a mental note to find out whose. On the other hand, old Texas, on Terra, had been heavily industrialized, so much so that the state itself could handle the gigantic project of building enough spaceships to move almost the whole population into space. Then the landing field was rushing up at us, with the nearer ends of the roadways and streets drawing close, and the far ends lengthening out away from us. The other lighter was already down, and I could see a crowd around it. There was a crowd waiting for us when we got out and went down the escalators to the ground, and as I expected, a special group of men waiting for me. They were headed by a tall, slender individual in the short black Eisenhower jacket, gray-striped trousers, and black Hamburg that was the uniform of the diplomatic service, alias the Cookie Pushers. Over their heads at the other rocket boat I could see the gold-gleaming head of the girl I'd met on the ship. I tried to push through the crowd and get to her. As I did, the cookie-pusher got in my way. "'Mr. Silk, Mr. Ambassador, here we are.' He was clamoring. Oh, "'The car for the embassy is right over here,' he clutched at my elbow. "'You have no idea how glad we are to see you, Mr. Ambassador.' "'Yes, yes, of course. Now, there's somebody over there I have to see at once.' I tried to pull myself loose from his grasp. Across the concrete between the two lighters I could see the girl push out of the crowd around her and wave a hand to me. I tried to yell to her, but just then another lighter, loaded with freight, started to lift out at another nearby stand, with the roar of half a dozen Niagaras. The thin man in the striped trousers added to the uproar by shouting into my ear and pulling at me, "'We haven't time!' He finally managed to make himself heard. We're dreadfully late now, sir. You must come with us. Hottie, too, had caught hold of me by the other arm. Come on, boss. There's got to be some reason why he's got himself in an uproar about whatever it is. You'll see her again. Then the whole gang, Hottie, the thin man with the black Homburg, his younger accomplice in identical garb, and the chauffeur, all closed in on me and pushed me, pulled me half carried me fifty yards across the concrete to where their air-car was parked. By this time the tall blonde had gotten clear of the mob around her, and was waving frantically at me. I tried to wave back, 
but I was literally crammed into the car and flung down on the seat. At the same time, the chauffeur was jumping in, extending the car's wings, jetting up. "'Great God!' I bellowed. "'This is the damnedest piece of impudence I've ever had to suffer from any subordinates in my whole State Department experience. I want an explanation out of you, and it better be a good one.' There was a deafening silence in the car for a moment. The thin man moved himself off my lap, then sat there looking at me with the heartbroken eyes of a friendly dog that had just been kicked for something which wasn't really its fault. "'Mr. Ambassador, you can't imagine how sorry we all are, but if we hadn't gotten you away from the spaceport and to the embassy at once, we would all have been much sorrier.' "'Somebody here gunning for the ambassador?' Hottie demanded sharply. "'Oh, no, I hadn't even thought of that,' the thin man almost gibbered. "'But your presence at the embassy is of immediate and urgent necessity. You have no idea of the state into which things have gotten—oh, pardon me, Mr. Ambassador, I am Gilbert W. Thrombley, your charge d'affaire.' I shook hands with him. "'And Mr. Benito Gomez, the secretary of the embassy.' I shook hands with him, too, and started to introduce Mr. Hottie Ringo. Hottie, however, had turned to look out the rear window. Immediately he gave a yelp. "'We got a tail, boss. Two of them. Look back there.' There were two black eight-passenger aircars of the same model whizzing after us, making an obvious effort to overtake us. The chauffeur cursed and fired his auxiliary jets, then his rocket booster. Immediately black rocket fuel puffs shot away from the pursuing air cars. Hottie turned in his seat, cranked open a porthole slit in the window, and poked one of his eleven M.M.s out, letting the whole clip go. Thrumbly and Gomez slid down onto the floor, and both began trying to drag me down with them, imploring me not to expose myself. As far as I could see, there was nothing to expose myself to. The other cars kept coming, but neither of them were firing at us. There was also no indication that Hottie's salvo had had any effect on them. Our chauffeur went into a perfect frenzy of twisting and dodging, at the same time using his radio phone to tell somebody to get the goddamn gate open in a hurry. I saw the blue skies and green plains of New Texas replacing one another, above, under, in front of me, and behind us. Then the car sat down on a broad stretch of concrete. The wings were retracted, and we went whizzing down a city street. We whizzed down a number of streets. We cut corners on two wheels, and on one wheel, and I was prepared to swear on no wheels. A couple of times, with the wings retracted, we actually jetted into the air and jumped over vehicles in front of us, landing again with bone-shaking jolts. Then we made an abrupt turn and shot in under a concrete arch, and a big door banged shut behind us, and we stopped in the middle of a wide patio, the front of the car a few inches short of a fountain. Four or five people in diplomatic striped trousers, local dress, and the uniform of the Space Marines came running over. Thrombley pulled himself erect and half climbed, half fell out of the car. Gomez got out on the other side with Hottie. I climbed out after Thrombley. A tall, sandy-haired man in the uniform of the Space Navy came over. "'What's the devil the matter, Thrombley?' he demanded. Then, seeing me, 
he gave me as much of a salute as a naval officer will ever bestow on anybody in civilian clothes. Mr. Silk! He looked at my costume and the pistols on my belt in well-bred concealment of surprise. I'm your military attaché, Stonehenge, Space Commander, Space Navy. I noticed that Hottie's ears had pricked up, but he wasn't making any effort to attract Stonehenge's attention. I shook hands with him, introduced Hottie, and offered my cigarette case around. "'You seem to have had a hectic trip from the spaceport, Mr. Ambassador. What happened?' Thrumbly began accusing our driver of trying to murder the lot of us. Hottie brushed him aside and explained. "'Just after we took off, two other cars took off after us. We speeded up and they speeded up, too. Then your flyboy here got fancy. That shook him off. Time we got into the city, we dropped him. Nice job of driving. Probably saved our lives.' "'Shucks, that wasn't nothing,' the driver disclaimed. "'When you drive for politicians, you're either good or you're good and dead.' "'I'm surprised they started so soon,' Stonehenge said. Then he looked around at my fellow passengers, who seemed to have realized by now that they were no longer dangling by their fingernails over the brink of the grave. "'But, gentlemen, let's not keep the ambassador standing out here in the hot sun.' So we went over to the arches at the side of the patio, and were about to sit down when one of the embassy servants came up, followed by a man in a loose vest and blue Levi's and a big hat. He had a pair of automatics in his belt, too. "'I'm Captain Nelson, New Texas Rangers,' he introduced himself. "'Which one of you all is Mr. Stephen Silk?' I admitted it. The ranger pushed back his wide hat and grinned at me. "'I just can't figure this out.' he said. You're in the right place and the right company, but we got a report from a mighty good source that you'd been kidnapped at the spaceport by a gang of thugs. A blonde source? I made curving motions with my hands. I don't blame her. My efficient and conscientious charged affairs, Mr. Thrombley, felt that I should reach the embassy here as soon as possible, and from where she was standing it must have looked like a kidnapping. Fact is, it looked like one from where I was standing, too. Was that you and your people who were chasing us? Then I must apologize for opening fire on you. I hope nobody was hurt. No, our cars are pretty well armored. You scored a couple of times on one of them, but no harm done. I reckon after what happened to Silas Cumshaw, you had a right to be suspicious. I noticed that refreshments, including several bottles, had been placed on a big wicker table under the arched veranda. "'Can I offer you a drink, Captain, in token of mutual amity?' I asked. "'Well, now, I'd like to, Mr. Ambassador, but I'm on duty,' he began. "'You can't be. You're an officer of the planetary government of New Texas, and in this embassy you're in the territory of the Solar League.' "'That's right now, Mr. Ambassador,' he grinned. Extraterritoriality. Wonderful thing, extraterritoriality. He looked at Hottie, who, for the first time since I had met him, was trying to shrink into the background. And diplomatic immunity, too, ain't it, Hottie? After he had had his drink and departed, we all sat down. Thrumbly began speaking almost at once. Mr. Ambassador, you must, you simply must issue a public statement immediately, sir. Only a public statement issued promptly will relieve the crisis into which we have all been thrust. Oh, come, Mr. Thromley, I objected. 
Captain Nelson will take care of all that in his report to his superiors. Frombley looked at me for a moment as though I had been speaking to him in Hottentot, then waved his hands in polite exasperation. Oh, no, no, I don't mean that, sir. I mean a public statement to the effect that you have assumed full responsibility for the embassy. Where is that thing, Mr. Gomez? Gomez handed him four or five sheets stapled together. He laid them on the table, turned to the last sheet, and whipped out a pen. Here, sir, just sign here. Are you crazy? I demanded. I'll be damned if I'll sign that. Not till I've taken an inventory of the physical property of the embassy, and familiarized myself with all its commitments, and had the books audited by some firm of certified public accountants. Thrumbly and Gomez looked at one another. They both groaned. But we must have a statement of assumption of responsibility, Gomez dithered, or the business of the embassy will be at a dead stop, and we can't do anything, Thrumbly finished. Wait a minute, Thrombley, Stonehenge cut in. I understand Mr. Silk's attitude. I've taken command of a good many ships and installations at one time or another, and I've never signed for anything I couldn't see and feel and count. I know men who retired as brigadier generals or vice-admirals, but they retired loaded with debts incurred because as second lieutenants or ensigns they forgot that simple rule. He turned to me. Without any disrespect to the charged affairs, Mr. Silk, this embassy has been pretty badly disorganized since Mr. Cumshaw's death. No one felt authorized, or, to put it more accurately, no one dared to declare himself acting head of the embassy, because that would make him the next target, I interrupted. Well, that's what I was sent here for. Mr. Gomez, as secretary of the embassy, will you please at once prepare a statement for the press and telecast release to the effect that I am now the authorized head of this embassy, responsible from this hour for all its future policies and all its present commitments, in so far as they obligate the government of the Solar League. Get that out at once. Tomorrow I will present my credentials to the Secretary of State here. Thereafter, Mr. Thrombley, you can rest in the assurance that I'll be the one they'll be shooting at. "'But you can't wait that long, Mr. Ambassador,' Thrombley almost wailed. "'We must go immediately to the State House. The reception for you is already going on.' I looked at my watch, which had been regulated aboard ship for Capella four time. It was just thirteen-fifteen. "'What time do they hold diplomatic receptions on this planet, Mr. Thrombley?' I asked. "'Oh, any time at all, sir.' This one started about oh nine hundred when the news that the ship was in orbit off-planet got in. It'll be a barbecue, of course, and— Barbecued supercow! Yippee! Hottie yelled. What I've been waiting for for five years. It would be the vilest cruelty not to take him along, I thought. And it would also keep him and Stonehenge apart for a while. But we must hurry, Mr. Ambassador, Thrumbly was saying. If you will change now to formal dress, and he was looking at me, gasping. I think it was the first time he had actually seen what I was wearing. In native dress, Mr. Ambassador? Thrombley's eyes and tone were again those of an innocent spaniel caught in the middle of a marital argument. Then his gaze fell to my belt, and his eyes became saucers. Oh, dear! And armed! 
My charged affairs were shuddering, and he could not look directly at me. Mr. Ambassador, I understand that you were recently appointed from the Consular Service. I sincerely hope that you will not take it amiss if I point out here in private that— Mr. Thrombley, I am wearing this costume and these pistols on the direct order of the Secretary of State Gopal Singh. That set him back on his heels. I— "'I can't believe it!' he exclaimed. "'An ambassador is never armed.' "'Not when he's dealing with a government which respects the comity of nations and the usages of diplomatic practice.' "'No,' I replied. "'But the fate of Mr. Cumshaw clearly indicates that the government of New Texas is not such a government. These pistols are in the nature of a not-too-subtle hint of the manner in which this government here is being regarded by the government of the Solar League. I turned to Stonehenge. Commander, what sort of an embassy guard have we? I asked. Space Marines, sergeant and five men. I double as guard officer, sir. Very well. Mr. Thrombley insists that it is necessary for me to go to this fish-fry or whatever it is immediately. I want two men, a driver and an auto-rifleman, for my car, and from now on I would suggest, Commander, that you wear your sidearm at all times outside the embassy. Yes, sir. And this time Stonehenge gave me a real salute. Well, I must phone the State House, then, Thromley said. We'll have to call on Secretary of State Palmy, and then on President Hutchinson. With that he got up, excused himself, motioned Gomez to follow, and hurried away. I got up, too, and motioned Stonehenge aside. Aboard ship, coming in, I was told that there's a task force of the Space Navy on maneuvers about five light-years from here, I said. Yes, sir. Task Force Red-Blue-Green, 5th Space Fleet, Fleet Admiral Sir Rodney Tregascus. Can we get a hold of a fast space boat with hyperdrive engines in a hurry? Eight or ten of them always around New Austin Spaceport, available for charter. All right. Charter one, and get out to that fleet. Tell Admiral Dragoski that the ambassador at New Austin feels in need of protection. Possibility of Zisroff invasion. I'll give you written orders. I want the fleet within radio call. How far out would that be with our facilities? The embassy radio isn't reliable beyond about sixty light minutes, sir. Then tell Sir Rodney to bring his fleet in that close. The invasion, if it comes, will probably not come from the direction of the Zisroff star cluster. They'll probably jump past us and move in from the other side. I hope you don't think I'm having nightmares, Commander. Danger of a Zisroff invasion was pointed out to me by persons on the very highest level on Luna. Stonehenge nodded. I'm always having the same kind of nightmares, sir especially since this special envoy arrived here, ostensibly to negotiate a meteor mining treaty. He hesitated for a moment. We don't want the new Texans to know, of course, that you sent for the fleet. Naturally not. Well, if I can wait till about midnight before I leave, I can get a boat owned, manned, and operated by Solar League people. The boat's a dreadful-looking old tub, but she's sound and fast. The gang who own her are pretty notorious characters, suspected of smuggling, piracy, and what not, but they'll keep their mouths shut if well paid. Then pay them well, I said, 
and it's just as well you're not leaving at once. When I get back from this clambake, I'll want to have a general informal council, and I certainly want you in on it. On the way to the state house in the air car, I kept wondering just how smart I had been. I was pretty sure that the Zesroff was getting ready for a sneak attack on New Texas, and as Solar League ambassador I of course had the right to call on the Space Navy for any amount of armed protection. Sending Stonehenge off on what couldn't be less than an eighteen-hour trip would delay anything he and Hottie might be cooking up, too. On the other hand, with the fleet so near they might decide to have me rubbed out in a hurry to justify seizing the planet ahead of the Sisroff. I was in that pleasant spot called Damned If You Do and Damned If You Don't. Chapter 4 The State House appeared to cover about a square mile of ground, and it was an insane jumble of buildings piled beside and on top of one another, as though it had been in continuous construction ever since the planet was colonized eighty-odd years before. At what looked like one of the main entrances the car stopped. I told our marine driver and auto-rifleman to park the car and take in the barbecue, but to leave word with the doorman where they could be found. Hottie, Thumbly, and I then went in to be met by a couple of New Texas Rangers, one of them the officer who had called at the embassy. They guided us to the office of the Secretary of State. "'We're dreadfully late,' Thumbly was fretting. "'I do hope we haven't kept the Secretary waiting too long.' From the looks of him I was afraid we had. He jumped up from his desk and hurried across the room as soon as the receptionist opened the door for us, his hand extended. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Thrumbly,' he burbled nervously. "'And this is the new ambassador, I suppose, and this—' He caught sight of Hottie Ringo bringing up the rear and stopped short, hand flying to open mouth. "'Oh, dear me!' So far I had been building myself a new Texas stereotype from Hottie Ringo and the ranger officer who had chased us to the embassy. But this frightened little rabbit of a fellow simply didn't fit in. An alien would be justified in assigning him to an entirely different species. Thrumbly introduced me. I introduced Hottie as my confidential secretary and adviser. We all shook hands, and Thrombley dug my credentials out of his briefcase and handed them to me, and I handed them to the Secretary of State, Mr. William A. Palmy. He barely glanced at them, then shook my hand again fervently and mumbled something about inexpressible pleasure and entirely acceptable to my government. That made me the accredited and accepted ambassador to New Texas. Mr. Palmy hoped, or said he hoped, that my stay in New Texas would be long and pleasant. He seemed rather less than convinced that it would be. His eyes kept returning in horrified fascination to my belt. Each time they would focus on the butts of my crop's tatas, he would pull them resolutely away again. "'And now we must take you to President Hutchinson. He is most anxious to meet you, Mr. Silk, if you will please come with me.' Four or five rangers who had been loitering in the hall, outside, moved to follow us as we went toward the elevator. Although we had come into the building onto a floor only a few feet above street level, we went down three floors from the hallway outside the Secretary of State's office into a huge room, 
the concrete floor of which was oil-stained, as though vehicles were constantly being driven in and out. It was a hundred feet wide and two or three hundred in length. Daylight was visible through open doors at the end. As we approached them, the rangers fanning out on either side and in front of us, I could hear a perfect bedlam of noise outside, shouting, singing, dance-band music, interspersed with the banging of shots. When we reached the doors at the end, we emerged into one end of a big rectangular plaza at least five hundred yards in length. Most of the uproar was centered at the opposite end, where several thousand people, in costumes colored through the whole spectrum, were milling about. There seemed to be at least two square dances going on, to the music of competing bands. At the distant end of the plaza, over the heads of the crowd, I could see the piles and tracks of an overhead crane towering above what looked like an open hearth furnace. Between us and the bulk of the crowd, in a cleared space, Two medium tanks, heavily padded with mats, were ramming and trying to overturn each other, the mob of spectators crowding as close to them as they dared. The din was positively deafening, though we were at least two hundred yards from the center of the crowd. "'Oh, dear, I always dread these things,' Palmy was saying. "'Yes, absolutely anything could happen,' Trumbly twittered. "'Man, this is a real barbecue,' Hottie gloated. "'Now I really feel at home.' "'Over this way, Mr. Silk,' Palmy said, guiding us toward the short end of the plaza on our left. "'We will see the President, and then—' He gulped. "'Then we will all go to the barbecue.' In the center of the short end of the plaza, dwarfed by the monster bulks of steel and concrete and glass around it, stood a little old building of warm-tinted adobe. I had never seen it before, but somehow it was familiar-looking. And then I remembered. Although I had never seen it before, I had seen it pictured many times, pictured under attack, with gun-smoke spouting from windows and parapets. I plucked Thromley's sleeve. "'Isn't that a replica of the Alamo?' He was shocked. "'Oh!' "'Dear Mr. Ambassador, don't let anybody hear you ask that. "'That's no replica. It is the Alamo. The Alamo.' "'I stood there a moment, looking at it. "'I was remembering and finally understanding "'what my psycho-history lessons about the romantic freeze had meant. "'They had taken this little mission fort down, brick by adobe brick, "'loaded it carefully into a spaceship, brought it here, forty-two light-years away from Terra, and reverently set it up again. Then they had built a whole world and a whole social philosophy around it. It had been the dissatisfied, of course, the discontented, the dreamers who had led the vanguard of man's expansion into space following the discovery of the hyperspace drive. They had gone from Terra, cherishing dreams of things that had been dumped into the dust-bin of history, carrying with them pictures of ways of life that had passed away, or that had never really been. Then in their new life, on new planets, they had set to work making those dreams and those pictures live. And, many times, they had come close to succeeding. These Texans now, they had left behind the cold fact that it had been their state's great industrial complex that had made their migration possible. 
they ignored the fact that their life here on Capella IV was possible only by application of modern industrial technology. That rodeo down the plaza, tank-tilting instead of bronco-busting. Here they were, living frozen in a romantic dream, a world of roving cowboys and ranch kingdoms. No wonder Hottie hadn't liked the books I had been reading on the ship. They shook the fabric of that dream. There were people moving about at this relatively quiet end of the plaza, mostly in the direction of the barbecue. Ten or twelve rangers loitered at the front of the Alamo, and with them I saw the dress blues of my two marines. There was a little three-wheeled motor-cart among them, from which they were helping themselves to food and drink. When they saw us coming, the two marines shoved their sandwiches into the hands of a couple of rangers and tried to come to attention. "'At ease, at ease,' I told them. "'Have a good time, boys. Hottie, you better get in on some of this grub. I may be inside for quite a while.' As soon as the rangers saw Hottie, they hastily got things out of their right hands. Hottie grinned at them. "'Take it easy, boys,' he said. "'I'm protected by the game laws. I'm a diplomat, I am.' There were a couple of rangers lounging outside the door of the President's office, and both of them carried auto-rifles, implying things I didn't like. I had seen the President of the Solar League wandering around the dome city of Artemis unattended looking for all the world like a professor in his academic halls. Since then, maybe before then, I had always had a healthy suspicion of governments whose chiefs had to surround themselves with bodyguards. But the president of New Texas, John Hutchinson, was alone in his office when we were shown in. He got up and came around his desk to greet us, a slender, stoop-shouldered man in a black-and-gold lace jacket. He had a narrow, compressed mouth and eyes that seemed to be watching every corner of the room at once. He wore a pair of small pistols and cross-body holsters under his coat, and he always kept one hand or the other close to his abdomen. He was like, and yet unlike, the Secretary of State. Both had the look of hunted animals. But where Palmy was a rabbit, twitching to take flight at the first whiff of danger, Hutchinson was a cat who hears hounds baying, ready to run if he could, or claw if he must. "'Good day, Mr. Silk,' he said, shaking hands with me after the introductions. "'I see you're healed. You're smart. You wouldn't be here today if poor Silas Cumshaw had been as smart as you are. Great man, though, a wise and foreseeing statesman. He and I were real friends.' "'You know who Mr. Silk brought with him as bodyguard?' Palmy asked. Hottie Ringo. Oh, my God, I thought this planet was rid of him. The president turned to me. You got a good trigger man, though, Mr. Ambassador. Good man to watch your back for you. But a lot of folks here won't thank you for bringing him back to New Texas. He looked at his watch. We have time for a little drink before we go outside, Mr. Silk, he said. Care to join me? I assented, and he got a bottle of super bourbon out of his desk with four glasses. Palmy got some water tumblers and brought the pitcher of ice water from the cooler. I noticed that the new Texas Secretary of State filled his three-ounce liquor glass to the top and gulped it down at once. He might act as though he were descended from a long line of maiden ants 
but he took his liquor and blasts that would have floored a spaceport labor boss. We had another drink, a little slower, and chatted for a while. Then Hutchinson said, regretfully, that we'd have to go outside and meet the folks. Outside our guards, Hottie, the two Marines, the Rangers, who had escorted us from Palmy's office, and Hutchinson's retinue, surrounded us, and we made our way down the plaza through the crowd. The din, ear-piercing yells, whistles, cowbells, pistol shots, the cacophony of the two dance bands and the chorus singing, of which I caught only the words, The skies of freedom are above you, was as bad as New Year's Eve in Manhattan or Nairobi or New Moscow on Terra. "'Don't take all this as a personal tribute, Mr. Silk,' Hutchinson screamed into my ear. "'On this planet, to paraphrase Nietzsche, a good barbecue hollow with any cause.' That surprised me at the moment. Later I found out that John Hutchinson was one of the leading scholars on New Texas, and had once been president of one of their universities. New Texas Christian, I believe.' As we got up onto the platform, close enough to the barbecue pits to feel the heat from them, somebody let off what sounded like a fifty-millimeter anti-tank gun five or six times. Hutchinson grabbed the microphone and bellowed into it. "'Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please!' The noise began to diminish, slowly, until I could hear one voice in the crowd below. "'Shut up, you damn fools! We can't eat till this is over!' Hutchinson introduced me in very few words. I gathered that lengthy speeches at barbecues were not popular on New Texas. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' I yelled into the microphone, "'appreciative as I am of this honor, there is one here who is more deserving of your notice than I, one to whom I also pay homage. He's over there on the fire, and I want a slice of him as soon as possible.' That got a big ovation. There was, besides the water pitcher, a bottle of super-bourbon. I ostentatiously threw the water out of the glass, poured a big shot of the corrosive stuff, and downed it. "'For God's sake, let's eat,' I finished. Then I turned to Thrombley, who was looking like a priest who had just seen the bishop spit in the holy water font. "'Stick close to me,' I whispered. "'Cue me in on the local notables and the other members of the diplomatic corps.' Then we all got down off the platform, and a band climbed up and began playing one of those raucous cowboy ballads which had originated in Manhattan about the middle of the twentieth century. "'These sandwiches'll be here in a moment, Mr. Ambassador,' Hutchinson screamed, in effect whispered in my ear. "'Don't feel any reluctance about shaking hands with a sandwich in your other hand. That's standard practice here. You struck just the right note up there.' That business with the liquor was positively inspired. The sandwiches, huge masses of meat and hot relish, wrapped in tortillas of some sort, arrived, and I bit into one. I'd been eating super-cow all my life, frozen or electron-beamed for transportation, and now I was discovering that I had never really eaten super-cow before. I finished the first sandwich in surprisingly short order, and was starting on my second when the crowd began coming. First the diplomatic corps, the usual collections of weirdies, human and otherwise. There was the ambassador from Tara, in a suit of what his planet produced as a substitute for Irish homespuns. 
His embassy, if it was like the others I had seen elsewhere, would be an outsized cottage with whitewashed walls and a thatched roof, with a bowl of milk outside the door for the little people. The ambassador from Alpharats II, the South African nationalist planet, with a full beard and old-fashioned plug-hat and tailcoat. They were a frustrated lot. They had gone into space to practice apartheid, and had settled on a planet where there was no other intelligent race to be superior to. The Mormon ambassador from Deseret, Camel Lopardus IV, the ambassador from Spica Seven, a short, jolly-looking little fellow with a head like a seal's, long arms, short legs, and a tail like a kangaroo's. The ambassador from Beta Cephas VI, who could have passed for human if he hadn't had blood with a copper base instead of iron, his skin was a dark green and his hair was a bright blue. I was beginning to correct my first impression that Thromley was a complete withering fool. He stood at my left elbow, whispering the names and governments and home planets of the ambassadors as they came up, handing me little slips of paper on which he had written phonetically correct renditions of the greetings I would give them in their own language. I was still twittering a reply to the greeting of Nanadabadian from Beta Sepa VI when he whispered to me, "'Here he comes, sir. The The Saraf were reasonably close to human stature and appearance, allowing for the fact that their ancestry had been canine instead of simian. They had, of course, longer and narrower jaws than we have, and definitely carnivorous teeth. There were stories floating around that they enjoyed barbecued terran even better than they did supercow and hot relish. This one advanced, extending his three-fingered hand. "'I am most happy to make connection with Solar League representative,' he said. "'I am named Glaufer de Spockfan by Vuvu.' No wonder Thromby let him introduce himself. I answered in the basic English that was all he'd admit to understanding. "'The name of your great nation has gone before you to me. The stories we tell to our young of you are at the top of our books. I have hoped to make great pleasure in you and me to be friends.' Glaufer Vuvuvu's smile wavered a little at the oblique reference to the couple of trouncings our Space Navy had administered to Zoroff ships in the past. "'We will be in the same place again times with no number,' the alien replied. I have hope for you that time you are in this place will be long and will put pleasure in your heart. Then the pressure of the line behind him pushed him on. Cabinet members, senators, representatives, prominent citizens, mostly judge so-and-so or colonel this or that. It was all a blur, so much so, that it was an instant before I recognized the gleaming golden hair and the statuesque figure. Thank you. I have met the ambassador. The lovely voice was shaking with restrained anger. "'Gale!' I exclaimed. "'Your father coming to the barbecue, Gale?' President Hutchinson was asking. "'He ought to be here any minute. He sent me on ahead from the hotel. He wants to meet the ambassador. That's why I joined the line.' "'Well, suppose I'll leave Mr. Silk in your hands for a while,' Hutchinson said. "'I ought to circulate around a little.' "'Yes!' "'Just leave him in my hands,' she said vindictively. "'What's wrong, Gale?' I wanted to know. "'I know I was supposed to meet you at the spaceport, but—' "'You made a beautiful fool of me at the spaceport?' 
Look, I can explain everything. My embassy staff insisted on hurrying me off. Someone gave a high-pitched whoop directly behind me and emptied the clip of a pistol. I couldn't even hear what else I said. I couldn't hear what she said either, but it was something angry. You have to listen to me, I roared in her ear. I can explain everything. Any diplomat can explain anything, she shouted back. Look, Gail, you're hanging an innocent man, I yelled back at her. I'm entitled to a fair trial. Somebody on the platform began firing his pistol within inches of the loudspeakers, and it sounded like an H-bomb going off. She grabbed my wrist and dragged me toward a door under the platform. Down here, she yelled, and this better be good, Mr. Silk. We went down a spiral ramp lighted by widely scattered overhead lights. Space attack shelter, she explained, and look, what goes on in spaceships is one thing, but it's as much as a girl's reputation is worth to come down here during a barbecue. There seemed to be quite a few girls at that barbecue who didn't care what happened to their reputations. We discovered that after looking into a couple of passageways that branched off the entrance. Over this way, Gail said. Confederate Courts Building. There won't be anything going on over here now. I told her, with as much humorous detail as possible, about how Thromley had shanghaied me to the embassy, and about the chase by the rangers. Before I was half through she was laughing heartily, all traces of her anger gone. Finally we came to a stairway, and at the head of it to a small door. "'It's been four years that I've been away from here,' she said. I I think there's a reading room of the law library up here. Let's go in and enjoy the quiet for a while. But when we opened the door, there was a ranger standing inside. Come to see a trial, Mr. Silk? Oh, hello, Gail. Just in time, they're going to prepare for the next trial. As he spoke, something clicked at the door. Gail looked at me in consternation. Now we're locked in, she said. We can't get out till the trial's over. Chapter 5 I looked around. We were on a high balcony at the end of a long, narrow room. In front of us windows rose to the ceiling, and it was evident that the floor of the room was about twenty feet below ground level. Outside I could see the barbecue still going on, but not a murmur of noise penetrated to us. What seemed to be the judge's bench was against the outside wall under the tall windows. To the right of it was a railed stand with a chair in it, and in front, arranged in U-shape, were three tables at which a number of men were hastily conferring. There were nine judges in a row on the bench, all in black gowns. The spectators' seats below were filled with people, and there were quite a few up here on the balcony. "'What is this, Supreme Court?' I asked as Gale piloted me to a couple of seats where we could be alone. No, a court of political justice, she told me. This is the court that's going to try those three Bonnie brothers who killed Mr. Cumshaw. It suddenly occurred to me that this was the first time I had heard anything specific about the death of my predecessor. That isn't the trial that's going on now, I hope. Oh, no, that won't be for a couple of days. Not until after you can arrange to attend. I don't know what this trial is. I only got home today myself. "'What's the procedure here?' I wanted to know. "'Well, those nine men are judges,' she began. 
The one in the middle is President Judge Nelson. You've met his son, the ranger officer who chased you from the spaceport. He's a regular jurist. The other eight are prominent citizens who are drawn from a panel like a jury. The men at the table on the left are the prosecution, friends of the politician who was killed, and the ones on the right are the defense. They'll try to prove that the dead man got what was coming to him. The ones in the middle are friends of the court. They're just anybody who has any interest in the case. People who want to get some point of law cleared up or see some precedent established or something like that. You seem to assume that this is a homicide case, I mentioned. They generally are. Sometimes mayhem or wounding or simple assault, but... There had been some sort of conference going on in the open space of floor between the judge's bench and the three tables. It broke up now, and the judge, in the middle, rapped with his gavel. "'Are you gentlemen ready?' he asked. "'All right, then. Court of Political Justice of the Confederate Continents of New Texas is now in session. Case of the friends of S. Austin Maverick, deceased, late of James Bowie Continent, versus Wilbur Watley.' "'My God, did somebody finally kill Oss Maverick?' Gail whispered. On the center table and in front of the friends of the court, both sides seemed to have piled their exhibits. Among the litter I saw some torn clothing, a big white sombrero covered with blood, and a long machete. "'The general nature of the case,' the judge was saying, "'is that the defendant, Wilbur Watley, of Sam Houston Continent, is here charged with divers offenses arising from the death of the Honorable S. Austin Maverick, whom he killed on the front steps of the Legislative Assembly Building, here in New Austin. "'What's going on here?' I thought angrily. "'This is the rankest instance of prejudged case I've ever seen.' I started to say as much to Gail, but she hushed me. "'I want to hear the specifications,' she said." A man at the prosecution table had risen. "'Please the court,' he began. "'The defendant, Wilbur Watley, is here charged with political irresponsibility and excessive atrocity in exercising his constitutional right of criticism of a practicing politician. The specifications are as follows. That on the afternoon of May 7th, Anno Domini 2193, the defendant here present did arm himself with a machete, said machete not being one of his normal and accustomed weapons, and did loiter in wait on the front steps of the Legislative Assembly Building in the city of New Austin, continent of Sam Houston, and did approach the decedent, addressing him in abusive, obscene, and indecent language, and did set upon and attack him with machete aforesaid, causing the said decedent, S. Austin Maverick, to die. The court wanted to know how the defendant would plead. Somebody, without bothering to rise, said, Not guilty, Your Honor, from the defense table. There was a brief scraping of chairs. Four or five men from the defense and the prosecution tables got up and advanced to confer in front of the bench, comparing sheets of paper. The man who had read the charges, obviously the chief prosecutor, made himself the spokesman. Your Honor, defense and prosecution wish to enter the following stipulations, that the decedent was a practicing politician within the meaning of the Constitution, that he met his death in the manner stated in the coroner's report, and that he was killed by the defendant, Wilbur Watley. 
"'Is that agreeable to you, Mr. Vincent?' the judge wanted to know. The defense answered affirmatively. I sat back, gaping like a fool. Why, that was practically—no, it was a confession. All right, gentlemen, the judge said. Now we have all that out of the way, uh, let's get on with the case. As though there were any case to get on with. I fully expected them to take it on from there in song, words by Gilbert and music by Sullivan. Well, Your Honor, we have a number of character witnesses— the prosecution, prosecution, for God's sake, announced. Skip them, the defense said. We stipulate. But you can't stipulate character testimony, the prosecution argued. You don't know what our witnesses are going to testify to. Sure we do. They're going to give us a big, long, shaggy dog story about the life and miracles of St. Austin Maverick. We'll agree in advance to all that. This case is concerned only with his record as a politician. And as he spent the last fifteen years in the Senate, that's all a matter of public record. I assume that the prosecution is going to introduce all that, too? Well, naturally, the prosecution began. Including his public acts on the last day of his life, the counsel of the defense demanded. His actions on the morning of May 7th as chairman of the Finance and Revenue Committee? You going to introduce that as evidence for the prosecution? Well, no, the prosecution began. Your Honor, we asked to have a certified copy of the proceedings of the Senate Finance and Revenue Committee for the morning of May 7th, 2193, read into the record of this court, the counsel of the defense said. And thereafter, we rest our case. Has the prosecution anything to say before we close the court? Judge Nelson inquired. Well, Your Honor, this seems, that is, we ought to hear both sides of it. My old friend, Oss Maverick, was really a fine man. He did a lot of good for the people of his continent. Yeah, we'd have lynched him when he got back if somebody hadn't chopped him up here in New Austin. A voice from the rear of the courtroom broke in. The prosecution hemmed and hawed for a moment, and then announced in a hasty mumble that it rested. "'I will now close the court,' Judge Nelson said. "'I advise everybody to keep your seats. I don't think it's going to be closed very long.' And then he actually closed the court. Pressing a button on the bench, he raised a high black screen in front of him and his colleagues. It stayed up for some sixty seconds and then dropped again. "'The Court of Political Justice has reached a verdict,' he announced. "'Wilbur Watley and your attorney approach and hear the verdict.' The defense lawyer motioned a young man who had been sitting beside him to rise. In the silence that had fallen I could hear the defendant's boots squeaking as he went forward to hear his fate. The judge picked up a belt and a pair of pistols that had been lying in front of him. "'Wilbur Watley,' he began, "'this court is proud to announce that you have been unanimously acquitted of the charge of political irresponsibility and of unjustified and excessive atrocity. There was one dissenting vote on acquitting you of the charge of political irresponsibility.' One of the associate judges felt that the late unmitigated scoundrel, Austin Maverick, ought to have been skinned alive an inch at a time. You are, however, acquitted of that charge, too. You all know, he continued, addressing the entire assemblage, 
the reason for which this young hero cut down that monster of political iniquity, S. Austin Maverick. On the very morning of his justly merited death, Austin Maverick, using the powers of his political influence, rammed through the Finance and Revenue Committee a bill entitled An Act for Taxing of Personal Incomes and the Levying of a Withholding Tax. Fellow citizens, words fail me to express my horror of this diabolic proposition, this proposed instrument of tyrannical extortion, borrowed from the dark ages of the twentieth century. Why, if this young nobleman had not taken his blade in hand, I'd have killed the son of a bitch myself. He leaned forward, extending the belt and holsters to the defendant. I therefore restore to you your weapons, taken from you when, in compliance with the law, you were formally arrested. Buckle them on, and, assuming your weapons again, go forth from this court a free man, Wilbur Watley and take with you that machete with which you vindicated the liberties and rights of all new Texans. Bear it reverently to your home, hang it among your lairs, and pen it, and cherish it, and dying, mention it within your will, bequeathing it as a rich legacy unto your issue. Court adjourned, next session o nine hundred tomorrow. For Christ's sakes, let's get out of here before the barbecue's over." Some of the spectators, drooling for a barbecued super-cow, began crowding and jostling toward the exits. More of them were pushing to the front of the courtroom, cheering and waving their hip-flasks. The prosecution, and about half of the friends of the court, hastily left by a side door, probably to issue statements disassociating themselves from the deceased maverick. "'So that's the court that's going to try the man who killed Ambassador Cumshaw,' I commented, as Gail and I went out. Why, the purpose of that court seems to be to acquit murderers. Murderers? She was indignant. And that wasn't murder. He just killed a politician. All the court could do was determine whether or not the politician needed it. And while I never heard about Maverick's income tax proposition, I can't see how they could have brought in any other kind of verdict, of all the outrageous things. I was thoughtfully silent as we went out into the plaza, which was still a riot of noise and polychromatic costumes, and my thoughts were as weltered as the scene before me. Apparently, on New Texas, killing a politician wasn't regarded as malum in se, and was malum prohibitum only to the extent that what happened to the politician was in excess of what he deserved. I began to understand why Palmy was such a scared rabbit, why Hutchinson had that hunted look and kept his hands always within inches of his pistols. I began to feel more pity than contempt for Thrumley, too. He's been on this planet too long, and he should never have been sit here in the first place. I'll rotate him home as soon as possible. Then the full meaning of what I had seen finally got through to me. If they were going to try the killers of Cumshaw in that court, that meant that on New Texas foreign diplomats were regarded as practicing politicians. That made me a practicing politician, too. And that's why, when we got back to the vicinity of the bandstand, I had my right hand close to my pistol, with my thumb on the inconspicuous little spot of silver inlay that operated the secret holster mechanism. 
I saw Hutchinson and Palmy and Thromley ahead. With them was a newcomer, a portly, ruddy-faced gentleman with a white mustache and goatee, dressed in a white suit. Gale broke away from me and ran toward him. This, I thought, would be her father. Now I would be introduced and find out just what her last name was. I followed more slowly, and saw a waiter with a wheeled serving-table moving in behind the group which she had joined. So I saw what none of them did. The waiter suddenly reversed his long carving-knife and poised himself for a blow at President Hutchinson's back. I simply pressed the little silver stud on my belt. The croptata popped obediently out of the holster into my open hand. I thumbed off the safety and swung up. When my sights closed on the rising hand that held the knife, I fired. Hotty Ringo, who had been holding a sandwich with one hand and a drink with the other, dropped both and jumped on the man whose hand I had smashed. A couple of rangers closed in and grabbed him also. The group around President Hutchinson had all turned and were staring from me to the man I had shot, and from him to the knife with the broken handle lying on the ground. Hutchinson spoke first. "'Well, Mr. Ambassador, my government thanks your government. That was nice shooting.' "'Hey, you've been holding out on me,' Hottie accused. "'I never knew you was that kind of gunfighter.' "'That's a new wrinkle,' the man with the white goatee said. "'We'll have to screen the help at these affairs a little more closely.' He turned to me. "'Mr. Ambassador, New Texas owes you a great deal for saving the President's life.' If you'll get that pistol out of your hand, I'd be proud to shake it, sir. I holstered my automatic and took his hand. Gail was saying, Stephen, this is my father. And at the same time, Palmy, the Secretary of State, was doing it more formally. Ambassador Silk, may I present one of our leading citizens and large ranchers, Colonel Andrew Jackson Hickok. Dun Barton Oaks had taught me how to maintain the proper diplomat's unchanging expression. Drinking super-bourbon had been a postgraduate course. I needed that training as I finally learned Gale's last name. Chapter 6 It was early evening before we finally managed to get away from the barbecue. Thromley had called the embassy and told them not to wait dinner for us, so the staff had finished eating and were relaxing in the patio when our car came in through the street gate. Stonehenge and another man came over to meet us as we got out, a man I hadn't met before. He was a little fellow, half Latin, half Oriental, in New Texas costume, and wearing a pair of pistols like mine, in State Department Special Services holsters. He didn't look like a Dumbarton Oaks product. I thought he was more likely an alumnus of some private detective agency. Mr. Francisco Paros, our intelligence man, Stonehenge introduced him. "'Sorry I wasn't here when you arrived, Mr. Silk,' Paros said, out checking on some things. "'But I saw that bit of shooting on the telecast screen in the bar over town. You know there was a camera right over the bandstand that caught the whole thing, you and Miss Hickok coming toward the President and his party, Miss Hickok running forward to her father, the waiter going up behind Hutchinson with the knife, and then that beautiful draw and snapshot. They ran it again a couple of times on the half-hourly newscast. Everybody in New Austin, maybe on New Texas, is talking about it now. "'Yes, indeed, sir,' 
Gomez, the embassy secretary, said, joining us, you've made yourself more popular in the eight hours since you landed than poor Mr. Cumshaw had been able to do in the ten years he spent here. But I'm afraid, sir, you've given me a good deal of work answering your fan mail. We went over and sat down at one of the big tables under the arches at the side of the patio. Well, that's all to the good, I said. I'm going to need a lot of local goodwill in the next few weeks. No thanks, Mr. Poros, I added, as the intelligence man picked up a bottle and made to pour for me. I've been practically swimming in super-bourbon all afternoon. A little black coffee, if you don't mind. And now, gentlemen, if you'll all be seated, we'll see what has to be done. A council of war, in effect, Mr. Ambassador? Stonehenge inquired. Let's call it a council to estimate the situation. But I'll have to find out from you first exactly what the situation here is. Thrumbly stirred uneasily. But, sir, I confess that I don't understand. Your briefing on Luna was practically non-existent. I had a total of six hours to get aboard ship from the moment I was notified that I was to be appointed to this embassy. Incredible, Thrombley murmured. I wondered what he'd say if I told him that I thought it was deliberate. Naturally, I spent some time on the ship reading up on this planet, but I know practically nothing about what's been going on here in, say, the last year. And all I know about the death of Mr. Cumshaw is that he is said to have been killed by three brothers named Bonnie. So you'll want just about everything, Mr. Silk, Thromby said. Really, I don't know where to begin. Start with why and how Mr. Cumshaw was killed. The rest, I believe, will key into that. So they began, Thrombley, Stonehenge, and Paros doing the talking. It came to this. Ever since we had first established an embassy on New Texas, the goal of our diplomacy on this planet had been to secure it into the Solar League, and it was a goal which seemed very little closer to realization now than it had been twenty-three years before. "'You must know by now what politics on this planet are like, Mr. Silk,' Thrombley said. "'I have an idea. One ambassador gone native, another gone crazy, the third killed himself, the fourth murdered.' "'Yes, indeed. I've been here fifteen years myself. That's entirely too long for anybody to be stationed in this place,' I told him. "'If I'm not murdered myself in the next couple of weeks,' I'm going to see that you and any other member of the staff who's been here over ten years are rotated home for a tour of duty at department headquarters. Oh, would you, Mr. Silk? I would be so happy. Thrumbly wasn't much in the way of an ally, but at least he had a sound, selfish motive for helping me stay alive. I assured him I would get him sent back to Luna, and then went on with the discussion. Up until six months ago, Silas Cumshaw had modeled himself after the typical New Texas politician. He had always worn at least two faces, and had always managed to place himself on every side of every issue at once. Nothing he ever said could possibly be construed as controversial. Naturally, the cause of New Texas annexation to the Solar League had made no progress whatever. Then, one evening at a banquet, he had executed a complete 180-degree turn, delivering a speech in which he proclaimed that union with the Solar League was the only possible way in which New Texans could retain even a vestige of local sovereignty. 
He had talked about an invasion as though the enemy ships were already coming out of hyperspace, and had named the invader, called the Sorof our common enemy. The Sorof ambassador, also present, had immediately gotten up and stalked out amid a derisive course of barking and baying from the new Texans. The new Texans were first shocked and then wildly delighted. They had been so used to hearing nothing but inanities and high-order abstractions from their public figures that the Solar League ambassador had become a hero overnight. Sounds as though there is a really strong sentiment at what used to be called the grassroots level in favor of annexation, I commented. There is, Paros told me. Of course, there is a very strong isolationist's anti-annexation sentiment, too. The sentiment in favor of annexation is based on the point Mr. Cumshaw made, the danger of conquest by the Seraf. Against that, of course, there is fear of higher taxes, fear of loss of local sovereignty, fear of abrogation of local customs and institutions, and chauvinistic pride. We can deal with some of that by furnishing guarantees of local self-government. The emotional objections can be met by convincing them that we need the great planet of New Texas to add glory and luster to the Solar League, I said. You think, then, that Mr. Cumshaw was assassinated by opponents of annexation? Of course, sir, Thrombley replied. These bonnies were only hirelings. Here's what happened on the day of the murder. It was the day after a holiday, a big one here on New Texas, celebrating some military victory by the Texans on Terra, a battle called San Jacinto. We didn't have any business to handle because all the local officials were home nursing hangovers, so when Colonel Hickok called— Who? I asked sharply. Colonel Hickok, the father of the young lady you were so attentive to at the barbecue. He and Mr. Cumshaw had become great friends, beginning shortly after the speech the ambassador made at the banquet. He called about 0900, inviting Mr. Cumshaw out to his ranch for the day, and as there was nothing in the way of official business, Mr. Cumshaw said he'd be out by 10.30. When he got there, there was an air car circling about near the ranch house. As Mr. Cumshaw got out of his car and started up the front steps, somebody in this car landed it on the driveway and began shooting with a 20-millimeter auto rifle. Mr. Cumshaw was hit several times and killed instantly. "'The fellows who did the shooting were damn lucky,' Stonehenge took over. Hickok's a big rancher. I don't know how much you know about supercar ranching, sir, but those things have to be herded with tanks and light aircraft, so that every rancher has at his disposal a fairly good small air armor combat team. Naturally, all the big ranchers are colonels in the armed reserve. Hickok has about fifteen fast fighters and thirty medium tanks armed with fifty-millimeter guns. He also has some AA guns around his ranch house. Every once in a while these ranchers get to squabbling among themselves. Well, these three Bonnie brothers were just turning away when a burst from the ranch house caught their jet assembly, and they could only get as far as Boneyville, thirty miles away, before they had to land. They landed right in front of the town jail. This Bonnyville's an awful shanty town. Everybody in it's related to everybody else. The mayor, for instance, Kettlebelly Sam Boney, is an uncle of theirs. These three boys, Switchblade Joe Boney, Jack High Abe Boney, and Turkey Buzzard Tom Boney, immediately claimed sanctuary in the jail, on the grounds that they had been near to 
get that. I think that indicates the line they're going to take at the trial, near to a political assassination. They were immediately given the protection of the jail, which is about the only well-constructed building in the place, practically a fort. "'You think this was planned in advance?' I asked. Paros nodded emphatically. "'I do. There was a hell of a big gang of these bonies at the jail, almost the entire able-bodied population of the place. As soon as Switchblade and Jack High and Turkey Buzzard landed, they were rushed inside and all the doors barred. About three minutes later the Hickok outfit started coming in, first aircraft and then armor.' They gave that town a regular Georgie Patton-style blitzing. Yes, I'm only sorry I wasn't there to see it, Stonehenge put in. They knocked down or burned most of the shanties, and then they went to work on the jail. The aircraft began dumping those firebombs and stun bombs they used to stop super-cow stampedes, and the tank guns began to punch holes in the walls. As soon as Kettlebelly saw what he had on his hands, he radioed a call for ranger protection. Our friend Captain Nelson went out to see what the trouble was. "'Yes, I got the story on that from Nelson,' Paros put in. Much as he hated to do it, he had to protect the bonies. And as soon as he'd taken a hand, Hickok had to call off his gang. But he was smart. He grabbed everything relating to the killing, the air car and the twenty-millimeter auto rifle in particular, and he's keeping them under cover.' Very few people know about that, or about the fact that on physical evidence alone he has the killing pinned on the bonies so well that they'll never get away with this story of being merely innocent witnesses. "'The rest, Mr. Silk, is up to us,' Thrombley said. "'I have Colonel Hickok's assurance that he will give us every assistance, but we simply must see to it that those creatures with the outlandish names are convicted.' I didn't have a chance to say anything to that. At the moment— one of the servants ushered Captain Nelson toward us. "'Good evening, Captain,' I greeted the ranger. "'Join us, seeing that you're on foreign soil and consequently not on duty.' He sat down with us and poured a drink. "'I thought you might be interested,' he said. "'We gave that waiter a going-over. We wanted to know who put him up to it. He tried to sell us the line that he was a new Texan patriot trying to kill a tyrant, but we finally got the truth out of him.' He was paid a thousand pesos to do the job by a character they call Snake Eyes Sam Boney, a cousin of the three who killed Mr. Cumshaw. Nephew of Kettlebelly Sam, Paros interjected. You pick him up? Nelson shook his head disgustedly. He's out in the high grass somewhere. We're still looking for him. Oh, yes, and I just heard that the trial of Switchblade and Jack High and Turkey Buzzard is scheduled for three days from now. You'll be notified in due form tomorrow, but I thought you might like to know in advance. I certainly do, and thank you, Captain. We were just talking about you when you arrived, I mentioned, about the arrest or rescue or whatever you call it of that trio. Yeah, one of the jobs I'm not particularly proud of. Pity Hickok's boys didn't get hold of them before I got there. It has saved everybody a lot of trouble. Just what impression did you get at the time, Captain? I asked. You think Kettlebelly knew in advance what they were going to do? Sure he did. They had the whole jail fortified. Not like a jail usually is, to keep people from getting out, but like a fort to keep people from getting in. There were no prisoners inside. I found out that they had all been released that morning. 
He stopped, seemed to be weighing his words, then continued, speaking very slowly. Let me tell you first some things I can't testify to, a couple of things that I figure went wrong with their plans. One of Colonel Hitchcock's men was on the porch to greet Mr. Cumshaw, and he recognized the Bonnies. That was lucky, otherwise we might still be looking and wondering who did the shooting, which might not have been good for New Texas. He cocked an eyebrow, and I nodded. The Solar League, in similar cases, had regarded such planetary governments as due for change without notice, and had promptly made the change. Number two, Captain Nelson continued, that AA shot which hit the air car, I don't think they intended to land at the jail. It was just sort of a reserve hiding hole, but because they'd been hit they had to land, and they'd been slowed down so much that they couldn't dispose of the evidence before the colonel's boys were tapping on the door and asking couldn't they come in. I gather the colonel's task force was becoming insistent, I prompted him. The big ranger grinned. <laughs> now we're on things I can testify to. When I got there, what had been the cell block was on fire, and they were trying to defend the mayor's office and the warden's office. Them bonies gave me the line that they'd been witnesses to the killing of Mr. Cumshaw by Colonel Hickok, and that the Hickok outfit was trying to rub them out to keep them from testifying. I just laughed and started to walk out. Finally they confessed that they'd shot Mr. Cumshaw, but they claimed it was right of action against political malfeasance. When they did that I had to take them in. They confessed to you before you arrested them? I wanted to be sure of that point. That's right. I'm going to testify to that Monday when the trial is held. And that ain't all. We got their fingerprints off the car, off the gun, off some shells still in the clip, and we have the gun identified to the shells that killed Mr. Cumshaw. We got their confession fully corroborated. I asked him if he'd give Mr. Paros a complete statement of what he'd seen and heard at Moneyville. He was more than willing, and I suggested that they go into Paros's office where they'd be undisturbed. The ranger and my intelligence man got up and took a bottle of super bourbon with them. As they were leaving, Nelson turned to Hottie, who was still with us. "'You'll have to look to your laurels, Hottie,' Nelson said. "'Your ambassador seemed to be making quite a reputation for himself as a gunfighter.' "'Look,' Hottie said, as though he was facing Nelson. I felt he was really talking to Stonehenge. Before I'd go up against this guy, I'd shoot myself. That way I would be sure I'd get a nice painless job. After they were gone, I turned to Stonehenge and Thrombley. This seemed to be a carefully prearranged killing. They agreed. Then they knew in advance that Mr. Cumshaw would be on Colonel Hickok's front steps at about 10.30. How did they find that out? Why, why, I'm sure I don't know, Thrombley said. It was most obvious that the idea had never occurred to him before, and a side glance told me that the thought was new to Stonehenge also. Colonel Hitchcock called it 0900. Mr. Cumshaw left the embassy in an air car a few minutes later. It took an hour and a half to fly out to the Hitchcock ranch. I don't like the implications, Mr. Silk. Stonehenge said. I can't believe that was how it happened. In the first place, Colonel Hickok isn't that sort of man. He doesn't use his hospitality to trap people to their death. In the second place, he wouldn't have needed to use people like these bonies. His own men would do anything for him. 
In the third place, he is one of the leaders of the annexation movement here, and this was obviously an anti-annexation job. And in the fourth place, hold it, I checked him. Are you sure he's really on the annexation side? He opened his mouth to answer me quickly, then closed it, waited a moment, answered me slowly. I can guess what you're thinking, Mr. Silk. But remember, when Colonel Hickok came here as our first ambassador, he came here as a man with a mission. He had studied the problem, and he believed in what he came for. He has never changed. Let me emphasize this, sir. We know he has never changed. For our own protection, we've had to check on every real leader of the annexation movement, screening them for crackpots who might do us more harm than good. The colonel is with us all the way. And now, in the fourth place, underlined by what I've just said, the colonel and Mr. Cumshaw were really friends. Now you're talking, Hottie burst in. I've known A.J. ever since I was a kid, ever since he married old Colonel McTodd's daughter. That just ain't the way A.J. works. On the other hand, Mr. Ambassador, Thrombley said, keeping his gaze fixed on Hottie's hands, and apparently ready to both duck and shut up if Hottie moved a finger. You will recall, I think, that Colonel Hickok did do everything in his power to see that these Bonnie brothers did not reach court alive, and let me add, he was getting bolder, tilting his chin up a little, it's a choice as simple as this. Either Colonel Hickok told them, or we have, and this is unbelievable, a traitor in the embassy itself. That statement rocked even Hottie. Even though he was probably no more than one of Natalenko's little men, he still couldn't help knowing how thoroughly we were screened, indoctrinated, and, let's face it, mind-conditioned. A traitor among us was unthinkable because we just couldn't think that way. The silence, the sorrow, were palpable. Then, I remembered, told them, Hickok himself had been a department man. Stonehenge gripped his head between his hands and squeezed as if trying to bring out an idea. All right, Mr. Ambassador, where are we now? Nobody who knew could have told the body boys where Mr. Cumshaw would be at ten-thirty, yet the three men were there waiting for him. You take it from there. I'm just a simple military man, and I'm ready to go back to the simple military life as soon as possible. I turned to Gomez. There could be an obvious explanation. Bring us the official telescreen log. Let's see what calls were made. Maybe Mr. Cumshaw himself said something to someone that gave his destination away. That won't be necessary, Thrombley told me. None of the junior clerks were on duty, and I took the only three calls that came in myself. First, there was the call from Colonel Hickok, then the call about the wristwatch, and then a couple of hours later the call from the Hickok Ranch about Mr. Cumshaw's death. What was the call about the wristwatch? I asked. Oh, that was from the Zisroff Embassy, Thrombley said. For some time Mr. Cumshaw has been trying to get one of the very precise watches which the Zisroff manufacture on their home planet. The Zisroff ambassador called that day to tell him that they had one for him and wanted to know where it was to be delivered. I told them the ambassador was out, and they wanted to know where they could call him, and I—I I had never seen a man look more horror-stricken. Oh, my God, I'm the one who told them. What could I say? Not much, but I tried. 
How could you know, Mr. Thromley? You did the natural, the normal, the proper thing on a call from one ambassador to another. I turned to the others, who, like me, preferred not to look at Thromley. They must have had a spy outside who told them the ambassador had left the embassy. Alone, right? And that was just what they'd been waiting for. And what's this about the watch, though? There's more to this than a simple favor from one ambassador to another. My turn, Mr. Ambassador, Stonehenge interrupted. Mr. Cumshaw had been trying to get one of the things at my insistence. Naval intelligence is very much interested in them, and we want a sample. The Sasroff watches are very peculiar. They're operated by radium decay, which, of course, is a universal constant. They're uniform to a tenth second, and they're all synchronized with the official time at the capital city of the principal Zisroff planet, the time used by the Zisroff Navy. Stonehenge deliberately paused, let that last phrase hang heavily in the air for a moment, then he continued. They're supposed to be used in religious observances, timing hours of prayer, I believe. They can, of course, have other uses. For example, I can imagine all those watches giving the wearers a light electric shock or ringing a little bell all over New Texas at exactly the same moment. And then I can imagine all this asroff running down into nice deep holes in the ground. He looked at his own watch. And that reminds me, my gang of pirates are at the spaceport by now, ready to blast off. I wonder if someone could drive me there. I'll drive him, boss. Hottie volunteered. I ain't doing nothing else. I was wondering how I could break that up, plausibly and without betraying my suspicions, when Pharos and Captain Nelson came out and joined us. I have a lot of stuff here, Pharos said, stuff we never seem to have noticed. For instance, I interrupted, Commander Stonehenge is going to the spaceport now, I said. Suppose you ride with him and brief him on what you learned on the way. Then when he's aboard, come back and tell us. Hottie looked at me for a long ten seconds. His expression started by being exasperated and ended by betraying grudging admiration. Chapter 7 The next morning, which was Saturday, I put Thrombley in charge of the routine work of the embassy, but first instructed him to answer all inquiries about me with a statement literally true that I was too immersed in work of clearing up matters left unfinished after the death of the former ambassador for any social activities. Then I called the Hickok Ranch, in the west end of Sam Houston Continent, mentioning an invitation the colonel and his daughter had extended me, and told them I would be out to see them before noon that same day. With Hottie Ringo driving the car, I arrived about ten hundred, and was welcomed by Gail and her father, who had flown out the evening before after the barbecue. Hottie, accompanied by a ranger and one of Hickok's ranch hands, all three disguised in shabby and grease-stained cast-offs, borrowed at the ranch, and driving a dilapidated air-car from the ranch junkyard, were sent to visit the slum village of Bonneville. They spent all day there, posing as a trio of range tramps out of favor with the law. I spent the day with Gale, flying over the range, visiting Hickok's herd camps and slaughtering crews. It was a pleasant day, and I managed to make it constructive as well. Because of their huge size, they ran to a live weight of around fifteen tons, and their uncertain disposition, super-cows are not really domesticated. 
Each rancher owned the herds of his own land, chiefly by virtue of constant watchfulness over them. There were always a couple of helicopters hovering over each herd, with fast fighter planes waiting on call to come in and drop firebombs or stun bombs in front of them if they showed a disposition to wander too far. Naturally, things of this size could not be shipped live to the market. They were butchered on the range and the meat hauled out in big copter trucks. Slaughtering was dangerous and exciting work. It was done with medium tanks, mounting fifty-millimeter guns, usually working at the rear of the herd, although a super-cow herd could change directions almost in a second, and the killing tanks would then find themselves in front of a stampede. I saw several such incidents. Once Gail and I had to dive in with our car and help turn such a stampede. We got back to the ranch house shortly before dinner. Gail went at once to change clothes. Colonel Hickok and I sat down together for a drink in his library, a beautiful room. I especially admired the walls, paneled in plastic hardened super-cow leather. "'What do you think of our planet now, Mr. Silk?' Colonel Hickok asked. "'Well, Colonel, your final message to the State was part of the briefing I received,' I replied. "'I must say that I agree with your opinions, especially with your opinion of local political practices.' Politics is nothing here if not exciting and exacting. You don't understand it, though. That was about half question and half statement. Particularly our custom of using politicians as clay pigeons. Well, it is rather unusual. Yes. The dryness in his tone was a paragraph of comment on my understatement. And it's fundamental to our system of government. You were out all afternoon with Gale. You saw how we have to handle the super-cow herds. Well, it was upon the fact that every rancher must have at his disposal a powerful force of aircraft and armor, easily convertible to military uses, that our political freedom rests. You see, our government is in effect an oligarchy of the big landowners and ranchers, who, in combination, have enough military power to overturn any planetary government overnight. And on the local level it is a paternalistic feudalism. That's something that would have stood the hair of any twentieth-century liberal on end, and it gives us the freest government anywhere in the galaxy. There were a number of occasions, much less frequent now than formerly, when coalitions of big ranchers combined their strength and marched on the planetary government to protect their rights from government encroachment. That sort of thing could only be resorted to in defense of some inherent right, and never to infringe on the rights of others. Because, in the latter case, other armed coalitions would have arisen, as they did once or twice during the first three decades of new Texas history, to resist. So the right of armed intervention by people when the government invaded or threatened their rights became an acknowledged part of our political system. And, this arises as a natural consequence, you can't give a man with five hundred employees and a force of tanks and aircraft the right to resist the government, then, at the same time, deny that right to a man who has only his own pistol or machete. I notice the President and the other officials have themselves surrounded by guards to protect them from individual attack, I said. Why doesn't the government, as such, protect itself with an army and air force large enough to resist any possible coalition of big ranchers?' 
"'Because we won't let the government get that strong,' the colonel said forcefully. "'That's one of our basic premises. "'We have no standing army, only the new Texas Rangers, "'and the legislature won't authorize any standing army "'or appropriate funds to support one. "'Any member of the legislature who tried it "'would get what Austin Maverick got a couple of weeks ago "'or what Sam Saltkin got eight years ago.' when he proposed the law for the compulsory registration and licensing of firearms. The opposition to that tax scheme of Mavericks wasn't because of what it would cost the public in taxes, but from fear of what the government could do with the money after they got it. Keep a government poor and weak, and it's your servant. Let it get rich and powerful, and it's your master. We don't want any masters here on New Texas." "'But the President has a bodyguard,' I noted. "'Casualty rate was too high,' Hickok explained. "'Remember, the President's job is inherently impossible. "'He has to represent all the people.' "'I thought that over, could see the illogical logic, but... "'How about your rancher oligarchy?' "'He laughed. <laughs> "'Son, if I started acting like a master around this ranch in the morning, "'they'd find my body in an irrigation ditch before sunset.' Sure, if you have a real army, you can keep the men under your thumb, use one regiment or one division to put down mutiny in another. But when you have only five hundred men, all of whom know everybody else and all of them armed, you just act real considerate of them if you want to keep on living. Then would you say that the opposition to annexation comes from the people who are afraid that if New Texas enters the Solar League there will be League troops sent here, and this, this interesting system of ensuring government responsibility to the public would be brought to an end? Yes, if you can show the people of this planet that the League won't interfere with local political practices, you'll have a 99.95% majority in favor of annexation. We're too close to the Sheriff star cluster out here not to see the benefits of joining the Solar League. We left the Hickok Ranch on Sunday afternoon, and while Hottie guided our aircar back to New Austin, I had a little time to revise some of my ideas about New Texas. That is, I had time to think during those few moments when Hottie wasn't taking advantage of our diplomatic immunity to invent new air-ground traffic laws. My thoughts alternated between the pleasure of remembering Gale's gay company and the gloom of understanding the complete implications of the colonel's clarifying lectures. Against the background of his remarks, I could find myself appreciating the Gopal Klung Nathalenko reasoning. The only way to cut the Gordian knot was to have another Solar League ambassador killed. And whenever I could escape thinking about the fact that the new ambassador to be the clay pigeon was me, I found myself wondering if I wanted the League to take over. Annexation, yes. New Texas customs would be protected under a treaty of annexation. But the justified conquest, urged by Machiavelli, Jr., no. I was still struggling with the problem when we reached the embassy about 1700. Everyone was there, including Stonehenge, who had returned two hours earlier with the good news that the fleet had moved into position only sixty light minutes off Capella Four. I had reached the point in my thinking where I had decided it was useless to keep Hottie and Stonehenge apart except as an exercise in mental agility. 
insomuch as my brain was already weightlifting, swinging from a flying trapeze to elusive flying rings while doing triple somersaults and at the same time juggling seven India clubs, I skipped the whole matter. But I'm fairly certain that it wasn't until then that Hottie had a chance to deliver his letter of credence to Stonehenge. After dinner, we gathered in my office for our coffee and final conference before the opening of the trial the next morning. Stonehenge spoke first, looking around the table at everyone except me. "'No matter what happens, we have the fleet within call. Sir Rodney's been active picking up those Zeroff meteor mining boats. They no longer have a tight screen around the system. We do. I don't think that anyone except us knows that the fleet's where it is.' "'No matter what happens,' I thought glumly and the phrase explained why he hadn't been able to look at me. "'Well, boss, I gave you my end of it coming in,' Hottie said. "'Want me to go over it again?' "'All right. In Bonneville we found half a dozen people who can swear that Kettlebelly Sam Bonnie was making preparations to protect those three brothers an hour before Ambassador Cumshaw was shot. The whole town soared that hell at Kettlebelly for antagonizing the Hickok outfit and getting the place shot up the way it was. And we have witnesses that Kettlebelly was in some kind of deal with Zsroff, too. The rangers gathered up eight of them who can swear to the preparations and to the fact that Kettlebelly had Zsroff visitors on different occasions before the shooting. "'That's what we want,' Stonehenge said. "'Something that'll connect this murder with the Zsroff. "'Well, wait till you hear what I've got.' Pharos told him. In the first place we traced the gun and the air car. The body brothers bought them from Zoroff merchants for ridiculously nominal prices. The merchant who sold the air car is normally in the dry goods business, and the one who sold the auto rifles runs a toy shop. In their whole lives those three boys never had enough money among them to pay the list price of the gun, let alone the car. That is, not until a week before the murder. "'They got prosperous all of a sudden?' I asked. "'Yes. Two weeks before the shooting, Kettlebelly Sam's bank account got a sudden transfusion. Some anonymous benefactor deposited 250,000 pesos, about $100,000, to his credit. He drew out 75,000 of it, and some of the money turned up again in the hands of Switchblade and Jack High and Turkey Buzzard. Then, a week before you landed here, he got another hundred thousand from the same anonymous source, and he drew out twenty thousand of that. We think that was the money that went to pay for the attempted knife job on Hutchinson. Two days before the barbecue, the waiter deposited a thousand at the new Austin Packers and Shippers Trust. Can you get that introduced as evidence at the trial? I asked. Sure. Cattlebelly banks at a town called Crooked Creek, about forty miles from Bonneville. We have witnesses from the bank. I also got the dope on the line the Boney brothers are going to take at the trial. They have a lawyer, Clement A. Sidney, a member of what passes for the Socialist Party on this planet. The defense will take the line of full denial of everything. The Boneys are just three poor but honest boys who are being framed by the corrupt tools of the big ranching interests. Hottie made an impolite noise. What have we got to worry about, then? he demanded. They're a cinch for conviction. I agree with that, Stonehenge said. 
If they tried to base their defense on political conviction and opposition by the Solar League, they might have a chance. This way they haven't. All right, gentlemen, I said. I take it that we're agreed that we must all follow a single line of policy and not work at cross-purposes to each other? They all agreed to that instantly, but with a questioning note in their voices. Well, then, I trust you all realize that we cannot, under any circumstances, allow those three brothers to be convicted in this court, I added. There was a moment of startled silence, while Soddy and Stonehenge and Pharaohs and Thrombley were understanding what they had just heard. Then Stonehenge cleared his throat and said, <clears throat> Mr. Ambassador, I'm sure that you have some excellent reasons for that remarkable statement, but I must say— It was a really colossal error on somebody's part, I said, that this case was allowed to get into the court of political justice. It never should have. And if we take a part in the prosecution or allow those men to be convicted, we will establish a precedent to support the principle that a foreign ambassador is on this planet defined as a practicing local politician. I will invite you to digest that for a moment. A moment was all they needed. Thrombley was horrified and dithered incoherently. Stonehenge frowned and fidgeted with some papers in front of him. I could see several thoughts gathering behind his eyes, including, I was sure, a new view of his instructions from Cologne. Even Hottie got at least a part of it. "'Why, that means that anybody can bump off any diplomat he doesn't like,' he began. "'That is only part of it, Mr. Ringo,' Thromley told him. "'It also means that a diplomat, instead of being regarded as the representative of his own government, becomes, in effect, a functionary of the government of New Texas. Why, all sorts of complications could arise.' It certainly would impair, shall we say, the principle of extraterritoriality of embassies. Stonehenge picked it up, and it would practically destroy the principle of diplomatic immunity. My God! Hottie looked around nervously as though he could already hear an army of new Texas rangers, each with a warrant for Hottie Ringo, battering at the gates. We'll have to do something, Gomez, the secretary of the embassy, said. I don't know what— Stonehenge said. The obvious solution would be, of course, to bring charges against those Bonnie boys on simple first-degree murder, which would be tried in an ordinary criminal court. But it's too late for that now. We wouldn't have time to prevent their being arraigned in this political justice court. And once a defendant is brought into court on this planet, he cannot be brought into court again for the same act. Not the same crime, the same act. I had been thinking about this, and I was ready. Look, we must bring those body boys to trial. It's the only effective way of demonstrating to the public the simple fact that Ambassador Cumshaw was murdered at the instigation of the Sharoff. We dare not allow them to be convicted in the court of political justice for the reasons already stated. And to maintain the prestige of the Solar League, we dare not allow them to go unpunished. We can have it one way, Paros said, and maybe we can have it two ways. But I'll be damned if I can see how we can have it all three ways. I wasn't surprised that he didn't see it. 
he hadn't had the same urgency goading him which had forced me to find the answer. It wasn't an answer that I liked, but I was in the position where I had no choice. "'Here's what we have to do, gentlemen,' I began, and from the respectful way they regarded me, from the attention they were giving my words, I got a sudden thrill of pride. For the first time since my scrambled arrival, I was really Ambassador Stephen Silk. Chapter 8 A couple of new Texas Ranger tanks met the embassy car four blocks from the State House and convoyed us into the central plaza, where the barbecue had been held on the Friday afternoon that I had arrived on New Texas. There was almost as dense a crowd as the last time I had seen the place, but they were quieter, to the extent that there were no bands and no shootings, no cowbells, no whistles. The barbecue pits were going again, however, and hawkers were pushing or propelling their little wagons about, vending sandwiches. I saw half a dozen big twenty-foot teleview screens, apparently wired from the courtroom. As soon as the embassy car and its escorting tanks reached the plaza, an ovation broke out. I was cheered with a high-pitched yippee of new Texans, and adjured and implored not to let them so-and-sos get away with it. There was a veritable army of rangers on guard at the doors of the courtroom. The only spectators being admitted to the courtroom seemed to be prominent citizens with enough pull to secure passes. Inside, some of the spectator benches had been removed to clear the front of the room. In the cleared space there was one bulky shape under a cloth cover that seemed to be the air car, and another cloth-covered shape that looked like a fifty-millimeter dual-purpose gun. Smaller exhibits, including a twenty-millimeter auto-rifle, were piled on the friends of the court table. The prosecution table was already occupied. Colonel Hickok, who waved a greeting to me, three or four men who looked like well-to-do ranchers, and a delegation of lawyers. "'Samuel Goodham!' Paros beside me whispered, indicating a big, heavy-set man with white hair, dressed in a dark suit of the cut that had been fashionable on Terra seventy-five years ago. "'Best criminal lawyer on the planet. Hickok must have hired him.' There was quite a swarm at the center table, too. Some of them were ranchers, a couple in aggressively shabby work clothes, and there were several members of the diplomatic corps. I shook hands with them and gathered that they, like myself, were worried about the precedent that might be established by this trial. While I was introducing Hadi Ringo as my attaché extraordinary, which was no less than the truth, the defense party came in. There were only three lawyers— a little rodent-faced fellow whom Paros pointed out as Clement Sidney, and two assistants, and guarded by a ranger and a couple of court bailiffs, the three defendants, Switchblade Joe, Jack High Abe, and Turkey Buzzard Tom Bonney. There was probably a year or so age difference from one to another, but they certainly had a common parentage. They all had pale eyes and narrow, loose-lipped faces. Subnormal and probably psychopathic, I thought, Chakai Abe had his left arm in a sling and his left shoulder in a plaster cast. The buzz of conversation among the spectators altered in tone subtly and took on a note of hostility as they entered and seated themselves. The balcony seemed to be crowded with press representatives. 
Several telecast cameras and sound pickups had been rigged to cover the front of the room from various angles, a feature that had been missing from the trial I had seen with Gale on Friday. Then the judges entered from a door behind the bench, which must have opened from a passageway under the plaza, and the court was called to order. The president judge was the same Nelson who had presided at the Watley trial, and the first thing on the agenda seemed to be the selection of a new board of associate judges. Paros explained in a whisper that the board which had served on the previous trial would sit until that could be done. A slip of paper was drawn from a box and a name was called. A man sitting on one of the front rows of spectator seats got up and came forward. One of Sidney's assistants rummaged through a card file he had in front of him and handed a card to the chief of the defense. At once Sidney was on his feet. "'Challenged for cause,' he called out. "'This man is known to have declared in conversation at the bar of the Silver Peso Saloon here in New Austin that these three boys, my clients, ought to all be hanged higher than Hammond.' "'Yes, I said that,' the Venerian man declared. "'I'll repeat it right here. All three of these murdering skunks ought to be hanged higher than—' "'Your honor,' Sidney almost screamed, "'if after hearing this man's brazen declaration of bigoted class hatred against my clients he is allowed to sit on that bench—' Judge Nelson pounded with his gavel. "'You don't have to instruct me in my judicial duties, Counselor,' he said. The Venera man has obviously disqualified himself by giving evidence of prejudice. Next name. The next man was challenged. He was a retired packing-house operator in New Austin, and had once expressed the opinion that Bonneville and everyone in it ought to be H-bombed off the face of New Texas. This Sidney seemed to have gotten the name of everybody likely to be called for court duty and had something on each one of them, because he went on like that all morning. "'You know what I think?' Stonehenge whispered to me, leaning over behind Paros. "'I think he's just stalling to keep the court in session until the Zoroff fleet gets here. I wish we could get hold of one of those wristwatches.' "'I can get you one before evening,' Hottie offered, "'if you don't care what happens to the mutt that's wearing it. Better not, I decided. Might tip them off to what we suspect. And we don't really need one. Sir Rodney will have patrols out far enough to get warning in time. We took an hour at noon for lunch, and then it began again. By 1647, fifteen minutes before court should be adjourned, Judge Nelson ordered the bailiff to turn the clock back to 1300. The clock was turned back again when it reached 1645. By this time, Clement Sidney was probably the most unpopular man on New Texas. Finally, Colonel Andrew J. Hickok rose to his feet. "'Your Honor, the present court is not obliged to retire from the bench until another court has been chosen, as they are now sitting as a court in being. I propose that the trial begin with the present court on the bench.' Sidney began yelling protests. Hottie Ringo pulled his neckerchief around under his left ear and held the ends above his head. Nana Debadian, the ambassador from Beta Cephas IV, drew his largest knife and began trying the edge on a sheet of paper. "'Well, Your Honor, I certainly do not wish to act in an obstructionist manner. The defense agrees to accept the present court, 
Sidney decided. Prosecution agrees to accept the present court, Goodham parroted. The present court will continue on the bench to try the case of the friends of Silas Cumshaw, deceased, versus Switchblade Joe Bonney, Jack High Abe Bonney, Turkey Buzzard Bomb Bonney, et al's. Judge Nelson rapped with his gavel. Court is hereby adjourned until 0900 tomorrow. Chapter 9 The trial got started the next morning with a minimum amount of objections from Sidney. The charges and specifications were duly read, the three defendants pleaded not guilty, and then Goodham advanced with a paper in his hand to address the court. Sidney scampered up to take his position beside him. "'Your Honor, the prosecution wishes, subject to agreement of the defense, to enter the following stipulations, to wit, first that the late Silas Cumshaw was a practicing politician within the meaning of the law.' Second, that he is now dead, and came to his death in the manner attested to by the coroner of Sam Houston Continent. Third, that he came to his death at the hands of the defendants here present. In all my planning I'd forgotten that. I couldn't let those stipulations stand without protest. And at the same time, if I protested the characterization of Cumshaw as a practicing politician, the trial could easily end right there. So I prayed for a miracle, and Clement Sidney promptly obliged me. "'Defense won't stipulate anything,' he barked. "'My clients here are victims of a monstrous conspiracy, a conspiracy to conceal the true facts of the death of Silas Cumshaw. They are never to have been arrested or brought here, and if the prosecution wants to establish anything, they can do it by testimony in the regular and lawful way.' This practice of free-wheeling stipulation is only one of the many devices by which the courts of this planet are being perverted to serve the corrupt and unjust ends of a gang of reactionary landowners. Judge Nelson's gavel hit the bench with a crack like a rifle shot. Mr. Sidney, in justice to your clients, I would hate to force them to change lawyers in the middle of their trial. But if I hear another remark like that about the courts of New Texas, that's exactly what will happen, because you'll be in jail for contempt. Is that clear, Mr. Sidney? I settled back with a deep sigh of relief, which got me, I noticed, curious stares from my fellow ambassadors. I disregarded the questions in their glances. I had what I wanted. They began calling up the witnesses. First, the doctor who had certified Ambassador Cumshaw's death. He gave a concise description of the wounds which had killed my predecessor. Sidney was trying to make something out of the fact that he was Hickok's family physician and consuming more time when I got up. Your Honor, I am present here as amicus curiae because of the obvious interest which the government of the Solar League has in this case. Objection! Sidney yelled. Please state it, Nelson invited. This is the court of the people of the planet of New Texas. This foreign emissary of the Solar League set here to conspire with New Texan traitors to the end that New Texans shall be reduced to a supine and ravished sat trappy of the all-devouring empire of the galaxy. Judge Nelson rapped sharply. Friends of the court are defined as persons having a proper interest in the case. 
as this case arises from the death of the former ambassador of the Solar League, I cannot see how the present ambassador and his staff can be excluded. Overruled, he nodded to me. Continue, Mr. Ambassador. As I understand, I have the same rights of cross-examination of witnesses as counsel for the prosecution and defense. Is that correct, Your Honor? It was, so I turned to the witness. I suppose, Doctor, that you have had quite a bit of experience in your practice with gunshot wounds? He chuckled. <laughs> Mr. Ambassador, it is gunshot wound cases which keep the practice of medicine and surgery alive on this planet. Yes, I definitely have. Now, you say that the deceased was hit by six different projectiles, right shoulder almost completely severed, right lung, right ribs blown out of the chest, spleen and kidneys so intermingled as to be practically one, and left leg severed by complete shattering of the left pelvis and hip joint. That's right. I picked up the twenty-millimeter auto-rifle. It weighed a good sixty pounds from the table, and asked him if this weapon could have inflicted such wounds. He agreed that it both could and had. This the usual type of weapon used in your New Texas political liquidations? I asked. Certainly not. The usual weapons are pistols, sometimes a hunting rifle or a shotgun. I asked the same question when I cross-examined the ballistic witness. Is this the usual type of weapon used in your New Texas political liquidations? No, not at all. That's a very expensive weapon, Mr. Ambassador. It wasn't even manufactured on this planet. Made by the Sharoff Star Cluster. A weapon like that sells for five, six hundred pesos. It's used for shooting really big game, super mastodon and things like that, and of course for combat. It seems, I remarked, that the defense is overlooking an obvious point here. I doubt if these three defendants ever in all their lives had among them the price of such a weapon. That, of course, brought Sidney to his feet, sputtering objections to this attempt to disparage the honest poverty of his clients, which only helped to call attention to the point. Then the prosecution called in a witness called David Crockett Longfellow. I'd met him at the Hickok Ranch. He was Hickok's butler. He limped from an old injury which had retired him from work on the range. He was sworn in and testified to his name and occupation. "'Do you know these three defendants?' Goodham asked him. "'Yeah. I even marked one of them for future identification,' Longfellow replied. Sidney was up at once shouting objections. After he was quietened down, Goodham remarked that he'd come to that point later, and began a line of questioning to establish that Longfellow had been on the Hickok Ranch on the day when Silas Cumshaw was killed. "'Now,' Goodham said, "'will you relate to the court the matters of interest which came to your personal observation on that day?' Longfellow began his story. "'At about, oh, nine hundred, I was dusting up and straightening things in the library while the Colonel was at his desk. All of a sudden he says to me, "'Davy, Suppose you call the Solar Embassy and see if Mr. Cumshaw is doing anything today. If he isn't, ask him if he wants to come out. I was working right beside the telescreen, so I called the Solar League Embassy. Mr. Thrombley took the call, and I asked him was Mr. Cumshaw around. By this time the Colonel got through with what he was doing at the desk and came over to the screen. 
I went back to my work, but I heard the colonel asking Mr. Cumshaw could he come out for the day, and Mr. Cumshaw saying yes he could. He'd be out about ten-thirty. Well, long about ten-thirty his air-car came in and landed on the drive. Little single-seat job that he drove himself. He landed it about a hundred feet from the outside veranda, like he usually did, and got out. Then this other car came dropping in from out of nowhere. I didn't pay it much attention, thought it might be one of the other ambassadors that Mr. Cumshaw's brung along. But Mr. Cumshaw turned around and looked at it, and then he started to run for the veranda. I was standing in the doorway when I seen him starting to run. I jumped out on the porch, quick-like, and pulled my gun, and then this auto-rifle began firing out of the other car. There was only eight or ten shots fired from this car, but most of them hit Mr. Cumshaw. Goodfellow waited a few moments. Longfellow's voice had choked, and there was a twitching about his face, as though he were trying to suppress tears. "'Now, Mr. Longfellow,' Goodham said, "'did you recognize the people who were in the car from which the shots came?' "'Yeah. Like I said, I cut a mark on one of them.' That one there, Jack High Abe Bonnie. He was handling the gun, and from where I was, he had his left side to me. I was trying for his head, but I always overshoot, so I have the habit of holding low. This time I held too low. He looked at Jack High in coldly poisonous hatred. I'll be sorry about that as long as I live. And who else was in the car? The other two curs out of the same litter. Switchblade and Turkey Buzzard over there. Further questioning revealed that Longfellow had had no direct knowledge of the pursuit or the siege of the jail in Bonneville. Colonel Hickok had taken personal command of that, and had left Longfellow behind to call the Solar League Embassy and the Rangers. He had made no attempt to move the body, but had left it lying in the driveway until the doctor and the Rangers arrived. Goodham went to the middle table and picked up a heavy automatic pistol. I call the court's attention to this pistol. It is an 11-millimeter automatic manufactured by the Colt Firearms Company of New Texas, a licensed subsidiary of the Colt Firearms Company of Terra. He handed it to Longfellow. Do you know this pistol? he asked. Longfellow was almost insulted by the question. Of course he knew his own pistol. He recited the serial number and pointed to different scars and scratches on the weapon, telling how they had been acquired. "'The court accepts that Mr. Longfellow knows his own weapon,' Nelson said. "'I assume that this is the weapon with which you claim to have shot Jack High Abe Bonnie?' It was, although Longfellow resented the qualification. "'That's all. Your witness, Mr. Sidney,' Goodham said. Sidney began an immediate attack." Questioning Longfellow's eyesight, intelligence, honesty, and integrity, he tried to show personal enmity toward the Bonnies. He implied that Longfellow had been conspiring with Cumshaw to bring about the conquest of New Texas by the Solar League. The verbal exchange became so heated that both witness and attorney had to be admonished repeatedly from the bench. But at no point did Sidney shake Longfellow from his one fundamental statement— that the Bonnie brothers had shot Silas Comshaw, and that he had shot Jack High Abe Bonnie in the shoulder. When he was finished, I got up and took over. Mr. Longfellow, you say that Mr. Thrombley answered the screen at the Solar League Embassy, I began. You know Mr. Thrombley? 
Sure, Mr. Silk. He's been out at the ranch with Mr. Cumshaw a lot of times. Well, beside yourself and Colonel Hickok and Mr. Cumshaw, and possibly Mr. Thornbley, who else knew that Mr. Cumshaw would be at the ranch at ten-thirty on that morning? Nobody, but the air car had obviously been waiting for Mr. Cumshaw. The Bonnies must have had advanced knowledge. My question made that point clear, despite the obvious and reluctantly course-sustained objections from Mr. Sidney. That will be all, Mr. Longfellow. Thank you. Any questions from anybody else? There being none, Longfellow stepped down. It was then a few minutes before noon, so Judge Nelson recessed course for an hour and a half. In the afternoon, the surgeon who had treated Jack High Abe Bonnie's wounded shoulder testified, identifying the bullet which had been extracted from Bonnie's shoulder. A ballistics man from Ranger Crime Lab followed him to the stand and testified that it had been fired from Longfellow's Colt. Then Ranger Captain Nelson took the stand. His testimony was about what he had given me at the embassy, with the exception that the Bonnie's admission that they had shot Ambassador Cumshaw was ruled out as having been made under duress. However, Captain Nelson's testimony didn't need the confessions. The cover was stripped off the air car, and a couple of men with a power dolly dragged it out in front of the bench. The ranger captain identified it as the car which he had found at the Bonneville jail. He went over it with an ultraviolet flashlight and showed where he had written his name and the date on it with fluorescent ink. The effects of A.A. fire were plainly evident on it. Then the other shrouded object was unveiled and identified as the gun which had disabled the air car. Colonel Hickok identified the gun as the one which he had fired on the air car. Finally, the ballistics expert was brought back to the stand again to link the two by means of fragments found in the car. Then Gurum brought Kettlebelly Sam Bonney to the stand. The mayor of Bonneville was a man of fifty or so, short, partially bald, dressed in faded blue Levi's, a frayed white shirt, and a grease-spotted vest. There was absolutely no mystery about how he had acquired his nickname. He disgorged a cut of tobacco into a spittoon, took the oath with unctuous solemnity, then reloaded himself with another chew, and told his version of the attack on the jail. At about 10.45 on the day in question, he testified, he had been in his office, hard at work in the public service, when an air car, partially disabled by gunfire, had landed in the street outside, and the three defendants had rushed in, claiming sanctuary. From then on the story flowed along smoothly, following the lines predicted by Captain Nelson and Peros. Of course he had given the fugitive shelter, they had claimed to have been near to a political assassination, and were in fear of their lives. Under Sidney's cross-examination and coaching, he poured out the story of Bonneville's wrongs at the hand of the reactionary landowners, and the atrocious behavior of the Hickok Goon Gang. Finally, after extracting the last drop of class-hatred venom out of him, Sidney turned him over to me. "'How many men were inside the jail when the three defendants came claiming sanctuary?' I asked. "'He couldn't rightly say. Maybe four or five. Closer twenty-five, according to the rangers. How many of them were prisoners in the jail?' "'Well, none. The prisoners was all turned out that morning.' 
They was just common drunks, disorderly conduct cases, that kind of thing. We turned them out so's we could make some repairs. You turned them out because you expected to have to defend the jail, because you knew in advance that these three would be a long-claiming sanctuary, and that Colonel Hickok's ranch hands would be right on their heels, didn't you? I demanded. It took a good five minutes before Sidney stopped shouting long enough for Judge Nelson to sustain the objection. You knew these young men all their lives, I take it? What did you know about their financial circumstances, for instance? Well, they've been ground down and kept poor by the big ranchers and the money guys. Then weren't you surprised to see them driving such an expensive air car? I don't know as it's such an expense— He shut his mouth suddenly. You know where they got the money to buy that car? I pressed. Kettlebelly Sam didn't answer. From the man who paid them to murder Ambassador Silas Cumshaw? I kept pressing. Do you know how much they were paid for that job? Do you know where the money came from? Do you know who the go-between was and how much he got and how much he kept for himself? Was it the same source that paid for the recent attempt on President Hutchinson's life? I refuse to answer, the witness declared, trying to shove his chest out about half as far as his midriff. On the grounds that it might incriminate or degrade me. You can't degrade a bonny, a voice from the balcony put in. So then, I replied to the voice, what he means is incriminate. I turned to the witness. That will be all excused. As Bonnie left the stand and was led out the side door, Goodham addressed the bench. Now, Your Honor, he said, I believe that the prosecution has succeeded in definitely establishing that these three defendants actually did fire the shot which, on April twenty-second, 2193, deprived Silas Cumshaw of his life. We will now undertake to prove— Followed a long succession of witnesses, each testifying to some public or private act of philanthropy, some noble trait of character. It was the sort of thing which the defense lawyer in the Watley case had been so willing to stipulate. Sidney, of course, tried to make it all out to be part of a sinister conspiracy to establish a Soto League fifth column on New Texas. Finally, the prosecution rested its case. I entertained Gale and her father at the embassy that evening. The street outside was crowded with New Texans, all of them on our side shouting slogans like, Death to the Bonnies, and Vengeance for Comshaw, and Annexation Now. Some of it was entirely spontaneous, too. The Hickoks, father and daughter, were given a tremendous ovation when they finally left and followed to their hotel by cheering crowds. I saw one big banner lettered, Don't let New Texas go to the dogs, and bearing a crude picture of a Zoroff. I seem to recall having seen a couple of our Marines making that banner the evening before in the embassy patio, but— Chapter 10 The next morning, the third of the trial, opened with the defense witnesses, character witnesses for the three killers, and witnesses to the political inequities of Silas Cumshaw. Neither Goodham nor I bothered to cross-examine the farmer. I couldn't see how any lawyer as shrewd as Sidney had shown himself to be would even dream of getting such an array of thugs, cutthroats, sluts, and slatterns into court as character witnesses for anybody. The latter, on the other hand, we went after unmercifully, 
revealing under their enmity for Kamshaw a small hard core of bigoted xenophobia and selfish fear. Gurham did a beautiful job on that. He seemed able, at a glance, to divine exactly what each witness's motivation was, and able to make him or her betray that motivation in its least admirable terms. Finally the defense rested about a quarter hour before noon. I rose and addressed the court. Your Honor, while both the prosecution and the defense have done an admirable job in bringing out the essential facts of how my predecessor met his death, there are many features about this case which are far from clear to me. They will be even less clear to my government, which is composed of men who have never set foot on this planet. For this reason I wish to call or recall certain witnesses to clarify these points. Sidney, who had been shouting objections as soon as I had gotten to my feet, finally managed to get himself recognized by the court. This Solar League ambassador, your honor, is simply trying to use the courts of the planet of New Texas as a sounding board for his imperialistic government's propaganda. You may reassure yourself, Mr. Sidney, Judge Nelson said. This court will not allow itself to be improperly used or improperly swayed by the ambassador of the Solar League. This court is interested only in determining the facts regarding the case before it. You may call your witnesses, Mr. Ambassador. He glanced at his watch. Court will now recess for an hour and a half. Can you have them here by 13.30? I assured him I could, after glancing across the room at Ranger Captain Nelson and catching his nod. My first witness that afternoon was Thrombley. After the formalities of getting his name and connection with the Solar League Embassy on the record, I asked him, Mr. Thrombley, did you, on the morning of April 22nd, receive a call from the Hickok Ranch for Mr. Cumshaw? Yes, indeed, Mr. Ambassador. The call was from Mr. Longfellow, Colonel Hickok's butler. He asked if Mr. Cumshaw was available. It happened that Mr. Cumshaw was in the same room with me, and he came directly to the screen. Then Colonel Hickok appeared in the screen and inquired if Mr. Cumshaw could come to the ranch for the day. He said something about superdog shooting. You heard Mr. Cumshaw tell Colonel Hickok that he would be out at the ranch at about 10.30? Thrombley said he had. And to your knowledge, did anybody else at the embassy hear that? Oh, no, sir. We were in the ambassador's private office, and the screen there is tap-proof. And what other calls did you receive prior to Mr. Cumshaw's death? About fifteen minutes after Mr. Cumshaw had left, the Sheroff's ambassador called about a personal matter. As he was most anxious to contact Mr. Cumshaw, I told him where he had gone. Then, to your knowledge, outside of yourself, Colonel Hickok and his butler, the Sheroff ambassador was the only person who could have known that Mr. Cumshaw's car would be landing on Colonel Hickok's drive at or about 10.30. Is that correct? Yes, plus anybody whom the Sheroff ambassador might have told. Exactly, I pounced. Then I turned and gave the three Bonnie brothers a sweeping glance. Plus anybody the Seraf ambassador might have told. That's all. Your witness, Mr. Sidney. Sidney got up, started toward the witness stand, and then thought better of it. No questions, he said. The next witness was Mr. James Finnegan. He was identified as cashier of the Crooked Creek National Bank. 
I asked him if Kettlebelly Sam Bonney did business at his bank. He said yes. Anything unusual about Mayor Bonney's account? I asked. Well, it's been unusually active lately. Ordinarily he carries around two, three thousand pesos, but about the first of April that took a big jump. Quite a big jump. Two hundred and fifty thousand pesos, all in a lump. When did Kettlebelly Sam deposit this large sum? I asked. He didn't. The money came to us in a cashier's check on the Rancher's Trust Company of New Austin, with an anonymous letter asking that it be deposited to Mayor Bonnie's account. The letter was typed on a sheet of yellow paper in basic English. Do you have that letter now? I asked. No, I don't. After we'd recorded the new balance, a Kettlebelly came storming in, raising hell because we'd recorded it. He told me that if we ever got another deposit like that, we were to turn it over to him in cash. Then he wanted to see the letter, and when I gave it to him, he took it over to a telescreen booth and drew the curtains. I got a little busy with some other matters, and the next time I looked, Kettlebelly was gone and some girl was using the booth. That's very interesting, Mr. Finnegan. Was that the last of your unusual business with Mayor Bonney? Oh, no. Then about two weeks before Mr. Cumshaw was killed, Kettlebelly came in and wanted fifty thousand pesos in a big hurry in small bills. I gave it to him, and he grabbed at the money like a starved dog at a bone and upset a bottle of red perma-ink, the sort we used to refill our bank seals. Three of the bills got splashed. I offered to exchange them, but he said, Hell with it, I'm in a hurry, and went out. The next day, Switchblade Joe Bonney came in to make payments on a note we were holding on him. He used those three bills in the payment. Then, about a week ago, there was another cashier's check came in for Kettlebelly. This time there was no letter, just one of our regular deposit slips. No name of depositor. I held the check and gave it to Kettlebelly. I remember, when it came in, I said to one of the clerks, Well, I wonder who's going to get bumped off this time. And sure enough, Sidney's yell of objection was all his previous objections gathered into one. You say the letter accompanying the first deposit, the one in basic English, was apparently taken away by Kettlebelly Sam Bonney. If you saw another letter of the same sort, would you be able to say whether or not it might be like the one you mentioned? Sidney vociferated more objections. I was trying to get expert testimony without previous qualification. Not at all, Mr. Sidney, Judge Nelson ruled. Mr. Silk has merely asked if Mr. Finnegan could say whether one document bore any resemblance to another. I asked permission to have another witness sworn in, while Finnegan was still on the stand, and called in a Mr. Boone, the cashier of the Packers and Brokers Trust Company of New Austin. He had with him a letter typed on yellow paper, which he said had accompanied an anonymous deposit of two hundred thousand pesos. Mr. Finnegan said that it was exactly like the one he had received, in typing, grammar, and wording, all but the name of the person to whose account the money was to be deposited. "'And whose account received this anonymous benefaction, Mr. Boone?' I asked. "'The account,' Boone replied, "'of Mr. Clement Sidney.' I was surprised that Judge Nelson didn't break the handle of his gavel after that. Finally, after a couple of threats to clear the court, order was restored. Mr. Sidney had no questions to ask this time, either. The bailiff looked at the next slip of paper I gave him, frowned over it, 
and finally asked the court for assistance. "'I can't pronounce this here thing at all,' he complained. One of the judges finally got out a mouthful of growls and yaps and gave it to the clerk of the court to copy into the record. The next witness was a Zeroff, and in the new Texas garb he was wearing he was something to open my eyes even after years on the hooligan diplomats. After he took the stand, the clerk of the court looked at him blankly for a moment. Then he turned to Judge Nelson. "'Your Honor, how am I going to go about swearing him in?' he asked. "'What does a Zaraf swear by that's binding?' The President Judge frowned for a moment. "'Does anybody here know basic well enough to translate the oath?' he asked. "'I think I can,' I offered. "'I spent a great many years in our consular service before I was sent here. We use basic with a great many alien peoples.' "'Administer the oath, then,' Nelson told me. "'Put up your right hand,' I told the Zaraf. "'Do you truly say in front of the Great One, who made all worlds, who has knowledge of what is in the hearts of all persons, that what you say here will be true, all true, and not anything that is not true, and will you so say again at time when all worlds end, do you so truly say?' "'Yes, I so truly say.' Say your name. What is your business? I put things made of cloth into this world, and I take meat out of this world. Where do you have your house? Here in New Austin, over my house of business on Coronado Street. What people do you see in this place that you have made business with? Pugwidgal, Kvidamunkek, CCC pointed a three-fingered hand at the Bonnie brothers. What business did you make with them? I gave them for money a machine which goes on the ground and goes in the air very fast to take persons and things about. Is that the thing you gave them for money? I asked, pointing at the exhibit air car. Yes, but it was new then. It has been made broken by things from guns now. What money did they give you for the machine? One hundred pesos. That started an uproar. There wasn't a soul in that courtroom who didn't know that five thousand pesos would have been a giveaway bargain price for that car. Mr. Ambassador, one of the associate judges interrupted, I used to be in the used car business. Am I expected to believe that this, uh, this being sold that air car for a hundred pesos? "'Here is a notarized copy of the bill of sale from the Office of the Vehicles Registration Bureau,' I said. "'I introduce it as evidence.' There was a disturbance at the back of the room, and then the Sheroff Ambassador, Glafir Despaton Vuvuvu, came stalking down the aisle, followed by a couple of rangers and two of his attachés. He came forward and addressed the court. "'May you be happy, sir.' but I am here so quickly, not because I have desire to make noise, but because it is only short time since it got in my knowledge that one of my persons is in this place. I am here to be of help to him that he not get in trouble, and to be of help to you. The name for what I am to do in this place is not part of my knowledge. Please say it for me. You are a friend of the court. Judge Nelson told him. Alamicus Curie. You make me happy. Please go on. 
I have no desire to put stop to what you do in this place. From what person did you get this machine that you gave to these persons for one hundred pesos? I asked. Gloffer immediately began barking and snarling and yelping at my witness. The dry goods importer looked startled, and Judge Nelson banged with his gavel. That's enough of that. There'll be nothing spoken in this court but English except through an interpreter. Yow! I am sad that what I did was not right, the Sharaf ambassador replied contritely. But my person here has not as part of his knowledge that you will make him say what may put him in trouble. Nelson nodded in agreement. You are right. This person who is here has no need to make answer to any question if it may put him in trouble or make him seem less than he is. I will not make answer, the witness said. No further questions? I turned to Goodham and then to Sidney. They had no questions either. I handed another slip of paper to the bailiff and another Zoroff named Brock Jongyak Kikiki took the stand. He put into this world things for small persons to make amusements with. He took out of this world meat and leather. He had his house of business in New Austin, and he pointed out the three bonnies as persons in this place that he saw that he had seen before. "'And what business did you make with them?' I asked. "'I gave them for money a gun which sends out things of twenty millimeter very fast to make death or hurt come to men and animals.' and does destruction to machines and things. Is this the gun? I showed it to him. It could be. The gun was made in my world. Many guns like it are made there. I am certain that this is the very gun. I had a notarized copy of a customs house bill in which the gun was described and specified by serial number. I introduced it as evidence. How much money did these three persons give you for this gun? I asked. Five pesos. The customs appraisal on this gun is six hundred pesos, I mentioned. Immediately Ambassador Vuvuvu was on his feet. My person here has not as part of his knowledge that he may put himself in trouble by what he says to answer these questions. That put a stop to that. Brock Jogginyak Kikiki immediately took refuge in refusal to answer on grounds of self-incrimination. "'That is all, Your Honor,' I said. "'And now,' I continued when the witness had left the stand, "'I have something further to present to the court, speaking both as amicus curiae and as ambassador of the Solar League. This court cannot convict the three men who are here on trial. These men should have never been brought to trial in this court.' It has no jurisdiction over this case. This was a simple case of first-degree murder by hired assassins committed against the ambassador of one government at the instigation of another, not as an act of political protest within the meaning of New Texas law. There was a brief silence. Both the court and the spectators were stunned. And most stunned of all were the three Bonnie brothers, who had been watching fear-sick while I had been putting a rope around their necks. The uproar from the rear of the courtroom gave Judge Nelson a needed minute or so to collect his thoughts. After he had gotten order restored, he turned to me, grim-faced. "'Ambassador Silk, will you please elaborate on the extraordinary statement you have just made?' he invited, 
as though every word had sharp corners that were sticking in his throat. "'Gladly, Your Honor.' My words, too, were gouging and scraping my throat as they came out. I could feel my knees getting absurdly weak, and my mouth tasted as though I had an old copper penny in it. As I understand it, the laws of New Texas do not extend their ordinary protection to persons engaged in the practice of politics. An act of personal injury against a politician is considered criminal only to the extent that the politician injured has not, by his public acts, deserved the degree of severity with which he has been injured, and the court of political justice is established for the purpose of determining whether or not there has been such an excessive severity in the treatment meted out by the accused to the injured or deceased politician. This gives rise, of course, to some interesting practices. For instance, what is at law a trial of the accused is in substance a trial of his victim. But in any case tried in this court, the accused must be a person who has injured or killed a man who is definable as a practicing politician under the government of New Texas. Speaking for my government, I must deny that these men should have been tried in this court for the murder of Silas Cumshaw. To do otherwise would establish the principle and precedent that our ambassador, or any other ambassador here, is a practicing politician under, mark that well, your honor, under the laws and government of New Texas. This would not only make any ambassador a permissible target for any marksman who happened to disapprove of the policies of another government, but more serious, it would place the ambassador and his government in a subordinate position relative to the government of New Texas. This the government of the Solar League simply cannot tolerate, for reasons which it would be insulting to the intelligence of this court to enumerate. "'Mr. Silk,' Judge Nelson said gravely, "'this court takes full cognizance of the force of your arguments. However, I'd like to know why you permitted this trial to run to this length before entering this objection. Surely you could have made clear the position of your government at the beginning of this trial.' "'Your Honor,' I said, "'had I done so,' These defendants would have been released, and the facts behind their crime would have never come to light. I grant that the important function of this court is to determine questions of relative guilt and innocence. We must not lose sight, however, of the fact that the primary function of any court is to determine the truth, and only by the process of the trial of these depraved murderers for hire could the real author of the crime be uncovered." This was important both for the government of the Solar League and the government of New Texas. My government now knows who procured the death of Silas Cumshaw, and we will take appropriate action. The government of New Texas has now had spelled out in letters anyone can read the fact that this beautiful planet is in truth a battleground. Awareness of this may save New Texas from being the scene of a larger and more destructive battle. New Texas also knows who are its enemies, and who can be counted on to stand as its friends. Yes, Mr. Silk. Mr. Vuvuvu, I haven't heard any comment from you. No comment? Well, we'll have to close the court to consider this phase of the question. The black screen slid up for the second time during the trial. There was silence for a moment, and then the room became a bubbling pot of sound. At least six fights broke out among the spectators within three minutes. 
the rangers and court bailiffs were busy restoring order. Gail Hickok, who had been sitting on the front row of the spectator seats, came running up while I was still receiving the congratulations of my fellow diplomats. "'Stephen, how could you?' she demanded. "'You know what you've done? You've gotten those murdering snakes turned loose.' Andrew Jackson Hickok left the prosecution table and approached. "'Mr. Silk, you have just secured the freedom of three men who murdered one of my best friends.' "'Colonel Hickok, I believe I knew Silas Cumshaw before you did. He was one of my instructors at Dumbarton Oaks, and I have always had the deepest respect and admiration for him. But he taught me one thing which you seem to have forgotten since you expatriated yourself, that in the diplomatic service personal feelings don't count. The only thing of importance is the advancement of the policies of the Solar League.' Silas and I were attaches together at the old embassy at Drampool on Altair too, Colonel Hickok said. What else he might have said was lost in the sudden exclamation as the black screen slid down. In front of Judge Nelson I saw there were three pistol belts and three pairs of automatics. Switchblade Joe Bonney, Jack High Abe Bonney, Turkey Buzzard Tom Bonney, together with your counsel approach the court and hear the verdict. Judge Nelson said. The three defendants and their lawyer rose. The Bonnies were swaggering and laughing, but for a lawyer whose clients had just emerged from the shadow of the gallows, Sidney was looking remarkably unhappy. He probably had imagination enough to see what would be waiting for him outside. "'It pains me inexpressibly,' Judge Nelson said, "'to inform you three that this court cannot convict you of the cowardly murder of that learned and honorable old man, Silas Cumshaw, nor can you be brought to trial in any other court in New Texas again for that dastardly crime. Here are your weapons, which must be returned to you. Sort them out yourselves, because I won't dirty my fingers on them. And may you regret and feel shame for your despicable act as long as you live, which I hope won't be more than a few hours. With that, he used the end of his gavel to push the three belts off the bench and onto the floor at the Bonnie's feet. They stood laughing at him for a few moments, then stopped, picked the belts up, drew the pistols to check magazines and chambers, and then began slapping each other's backs and shouting jubilant congratulations at one another. Sidney's two assistants and some of his friends came up and began pumping Sidney's hands. "'There!' Gale flung at me. "'Now look at your masterpiece. Why don't you go up and congratulate him, too?' And with that she slapped me across the face. It hurt like the devil. She was a lot stronger than I'd expected. "'In about two minutes,' I told her, "'you can apologize to me for that or weep over my corpse.' Right now, though, you'd better be getting behind something solid. Chapter 11 I turned and stepped forward to confront the Bonnies, mentally thanking Gail. Up until she slapped me, I'd been weak-kneed and dry-mouthed with what I had to do. Now I was just plain angry, and I found that I was thinking a lot more clearly. Jack High Bonnie's wounded left shoulder, I knew, wouldn't keep him from using his gun hand— but his shoulder muscles would be stiff enough to slow his draw. I'd intended saving him until I'd dealt with his brothers, 
Now I remembered how he'd gotten that wound in the first place. He'd been the one who'd used the auto-rifle out at the Hickok Ranch. So I changed my plans and moved him up to top priority. Hold it, I yelled at them. You've been cleared of killing a politician, but you still have killing a Solar League ambassador to answer for. Now get your hands full of guns if you don't want to die with them empty. The crowd of sympathizers and felicitators simply exploded away from the Bonnie brothers. Out of the corner of my eye I saw Sidney and a fat, blousy woman with brass-colored hair as they both tried to dive under the friends of the court table at the same place. The Bonnie brothers simply stood and stared at me for an instant, unbelieving, as I got my thumbs on the release studs of my belt. Judge Nelson's gavel was hammering, and he was shouting. Court of Political Justice, Confederate Continent of New Texas, is here with adjourned, reconvene, oh, 0900 tomorrow, hit the floor. Damn, he means it, switchblade Joe Bonney exclaimed. Then they all reached for their guns. They were still reaching when I pressed the studs, and the Krupp Tatas popped up into my hands, and I swung up my right-hand gun and shot Jack High through the head. After that I just let my subconscious take over. I saw gun flames jump out at me from the Bonnie's weapons, and I felt my own pistols leap and writhe in my hands. But I don't believe I was aware of hearing the shots, not even of my own weapons. The whole thing probably lasted five seconds, but it seemed like twenty minutes to me. Then there was nobody shooting at me, and nobody for me to shoot at. The big room was silent, and I was aware that Judge Nelson and his eight associates were rising cautiously from behind the bench. I holstered my left-hand gun, removed and replaced the magazine of the right-hand gun, then holstered it and reloaded the other one. Hotty Ringo and Francisco Paros and Commander Stonehenge were on their feet, their pistols drawn, covering the spectators' seats. Colonel Hickok had also drawn a pistol, and he was covering Sidney with it, occasionally moving the muzzle to the left to include the Shiroff ambassador and his two attaches. By this time Nelson and the other eight judges were in their seats trying to look calm and judicial. "'Your Honor,' I said, "'I fully realize that no judge likes to have his court turned into a shooting gallery. I can assure you, however, that my action here was not the result of any lack of respect for this court. It was pure necessity. Your Honor can see that. My government could not permit this crime against its ambassador to pass unpunished.' Judge Nelson nodded solemnly. "'Court was adjourned when this little incident happened, Mr. Silk,' he said. He leaned forward and looked to where the three Bonnie brothers were making a mess of blood on the floor. "'I trust that nobody will construe my unofficial and personal comments here as establishing any legal precedent, and I wouldn't like to see this sort of thing become customary, but uh, you did that all by yourself with those little bean-shooters?' Not bad, not bad at all, Mr. Silk. I thanked him, then turned to the Shiroff ambassador. I didn't bother putting my remarks into basic. He understood, as well as I did, what I was saying. Look, Fido, I told him, my government is quite well aware of the source from which the orders for the murder of my predecessor came. These men I just killed were only the tools. We're going to get the brains behind them if we have to send every warship we own into the Shiroff star cluster and devastate every planet in it. We don't let dogs snap at us. And when they do, 
We don't kick them. We shoot them. That, of course, was not exactly Striped Pants' diplomatic language. I wonder for a moment what Norman Gazarian, the protocol man, would think if he heard an ambassador calling another ambassador Fido. But it seemed to be the kind of language that Mr. Vuvuvu understood. He skinned back his upper lip at me and began snarling and growling. Then he turned on his hind paws and padded angrily down the aisle away from the front of the courtroom. The spectators around him and above him began barking, baying, yelping at him. Tie a can to his tail. Get for home, Bruno. Then somebody yelled, Hey, look, even his wristwatch is blushing. That was perfectly true. Mr. Glover Despotan Vuvuvu's watch face, normally white, was now glowing a bright ruby red. I looked at Stonehenge and found him looking at me. It would be full dark in four or five hours. There ought to be something spectacular to see in the cloudless skies of Capella Four tonight. Fleet Admiral Sir Rodney Trugaski would see to that. From report of Space Commander Stonehenge to Secretary of Aggression Klung. So the measures considered by yourself and Secretary of State Glopal Singh and Security Coordinator Natalinko, as transmitted to me by Mr. Hadi Ringo, were not, I am glad to say, needed. Ambassador Silk, alive, handled the thing much better than Ambassador Silk dead could possibly have. To confirm Sir Rodney Trugaski's report from the tales of the few survivors, the Sharoff attack came as the Ambassador had expected. They dropped out of hyperspace about seventy light minutes outside the Capella system, apparently in complete ignorance of the presence of our fleet. Have learned the entire fleet consisted of about three hundred spaceships, and reports reaching here indicate that no more than twenty got back to Sharaf Cluster. Naturally, the whole affair has had a profound influence, an influence to the benefit of the Solar League, on all shades of public opinion. As you properly assumed, Mr. Hottie Ringo is no longer with us. When it became apparent that the Palme Silk Annexation Treaty would be ratified here, Mr. Ringo immediately saw that his status of diplomatic immunity would automatically terminate. Accordingly, he left the system, embarking from New Austin for Aldebaran Nine, mentioning, as he shook hands with me, something about a widow. By a curious coincidence, the richest branch bank in the city was held up by a lone bandit about half an hour before he boarded the spaceship. Final message of the last solar ambassador to New Texas, Stephen Silk. Copies of the Treaty of Annexation, duly ratified by the New Texas Legislature, herewith. Please note that the guarantee of non-intervention in local political institutions are the very minimum which are acceptable to the people of New Texas. They are especially adamant that there will be no change in their peculiar methods of ensuring that their elected and appointed public officials shall be responsible to the electorate. Department Addendum After the ratification of the Palmy Silk Treaty, Mr. Silk remained on New Texas, married the daughter of a local rancher there, see file on First Ambassador Colonel Andrew Jackson Hickok, and is still active in politics on that planet often in opposition to Solar League policies, which he seemed to anticipate with an almost uncanny prescience. Natalenko re-read the addendum, pursed his thick lips, and sighed. There were so many ways he could be using Mr. Stephen's silk. 
For example, he looked at the tri-dye star map, both usefully and beautifully decorating his walls, over there, where Hotty Ringo had gone, near Aldebaran Nine. Those were twin planets, one apparently settled by the equivalent descendants of the Edwards, and the other inhabited by the children of a Duke's Calicac Union. Even the Solar League ambassadors there had taken the viewpoints of the planets to whom they were accredited, instead of the all-embracing view which their training should have given them. Curious problem. And how would Stephen Silk have handled it? The security coordinator scrawled a note comprehensible only to himself. End of Lone Star Planet by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire This story read by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Misa. Hi, I'm Alex. And we're going to talk about uh, Planet for Tech... No, shit. What's it called? Uh, Lone, Lone Star, Star Planet. Planet. Lone Star Planet. I'm totally conflating the two titles. They're both good titles. And a Lone Star Planet or a Planet for Texans. This is first published in uh, March 1957 issue of Fantastic Universe. Uh, and then was uh, published as half of an ace double in 1958. Uh, the authors being H. Beam Piper and John Joseph McGuire. Uh, I've read lots of H. Beam Piper, but I, all I know about John Joseph McGuire is that he co-wrote books with with uh, H. Beam Piper. And so I can sort of feel the H. Beam Piper in this, but I, I don't know where John J. McGuire's contribution sits. And in fact, I think in a later publication, they just drop John J. McGuire from the title, probably because nobody knows who he is other than an association with H.B. and Piper. Alex, you read uh, Piper before? Oh, this is my first Piper. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder what you make of him. What do you make of him? <laughs> um, well, I enjoyed this one. Yeah. My um, son, was this your first? No, Jesse, we did Murder in the Gun Room. That's right, that's right. Uh, no trials in that one, I don't think. Well, maybe there was. Well, what did you make of it, Alex? I would say um, a lot of, what we say, classic stories have a kind of a racism problem that's frequently commented on. I feel mm -hmm. like this one has the same problem with Texans. <laughs> <laughs> so it's racist against Texans? <laughs> or is it just uh, a stereotype? Pretty fun story. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's ridiculous. Racism <laughs> often is just stereotypes about race. Yeah, oh, but they're not a race, are they? They're just they got their own planet now. That makes all the Texans. I guess all the Texans left Texas except for you know it says almost everybody got on spaceships. Like the losers, I guess, or the politicians. It's really strange. This is uh, a weird <laughs> book. <laughs> what did you think of it, Misa? Uh, well, I I didn't think it was uh, racist. I thought it was more of like a kind of a parody send-off you know super super texans so yes. I, I super bourbon everything is super yeah. everything super super <laughs> so i i thought it was like uh funny it was funny um and over the top yeah so but it was also a very much like there is a scene where he mentions doing what's on the cover you know uh where they had to round yeah. up some super cattle <laughs> Yeah. Super cow. 
But that, yeah, yeah, or jet cars or whatever. It looks like a land speeder. But whatever, whatever. Um, that is not the book. The most of the book is like a court court case. I was surprised by that, actually. Yeah, and I was disappointed by that, in my view. I was like, I wanted it to be. I mean, this is not the first time. It's you know, his most famous book is. Little Fuzzy, which is uh, about a guy on an alien planet who has to defend the right of the Little Fuzzies, the native creatures on the planet, to exist as So they're little humans. and these are giant? Yeah, yeah. They have extremes? Yeah. Uh, they're, they're mini furry people with no clothes, but they carry weapons. And they're cute. Um, oh. it, you know what? It's actually like my son. It's a little bit like... Uh, Robinson Crusoe, but uh, instead of native, uh, I don't know, South Americans, they're uh, they're tiny little people, and he also doesn't like enslave them, which is nice. But uh, it, that a lot of that book is just a court case, and I gotta say, about seventy nine percent. I haven't done the page count, but about seventy nine percent of this book is court case, mm-hmm. which is bad i think i found it very surprising i well, want it's based on a hl mencken um, yeah essay yeah it's just entirely a proposal that we legalize the murder of uh, as he calls them <laughs> job holders did, did, did you did you read that essay i did yeah so what's the gist i i got uh, it here did, did you guys not read it i did not I read it no it's um, pretty so short the, it's pretty short it's a it's a newspaper article right the guy was a columnist mm-hmm. and uh he basically says that back in the good old days in prussia there was a separate court system that tried government employees and civil servants and you could actually get charged twice for the same act and if a if the county clerk broke in your house and stole something he'd get tried in normal court for breaking and entering and then he would also get tried in government employee court and stuff like that uh, so there's two separate courts, and you get tried twice, and there were extra penalties if you were civil servant. Yeah, so and the high, higher up you were, the the more severe your punishment hmm. would yep. be. Interesting. Um, so if if a police officer did something, you know, you got six months in prison. But if the captain of the police force did the same thing, you got two years in prison. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, well, this fits with the book. Was, was this would never work in America because in America the courts are just part of the same system. Um, we're not Prussians. It's not some kind of, we couldn't have a separate court. It's all the same group of people and they're going to defend each other. Mm. Also, because we have political parties. It says in the essay, you know, we're, Republican judges would never convict Republican civil servants for mm. doing things, even if they were bad and you know, vice versa. Um, so his solution his you know, a modest proposal was what mm. if we just let anybody charge any government employee, any politician, um, by beating and or killing them at will and then Afterwards, we can decide if it was excessive. Well, that is this book. That's you know, for sure. The, a newspaper column the guy wrote in uh, 24, 1924. Mm. Um, and you know, whatever, 30 years later, someone put it in space. Yeah. There, there, was, a, there was a funny part in it. it. It said, imagine any citizen free to approach a judge in open court and pull his nose. Or even in aggravated cases, cut off his ears, throw him out the window, knock him on the head with an axe. How vastly more attentive he would be to his <laughs> previous. 
Well, I mean, what's really, I, I was getting all of this only through the book, right? Um, and I understood exactly. I think then this book win a Prometheus Award or something that makes sense, right? It did. Libertarian. Yeah. 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 Libertarian Award for being libertarian. Uh, <laughs> uh, 1999. It says the Hall of Fame Award. <laughs> um, so I get, I, I got that, uh, that, that, that was what this book was about, that we've got a, and this is actually why I really like reading science fiction stories set on other planets. It's just an excuse to explore other ways of living. And this is a planet where if you, uh, don't carry guns, you're, uh, an extreme freak. Um, and if you, uh, offend people, there's consequences, right? Uh, this is very much a Heinleinian, uh, uh, armed society is polite society sort of idea. Texas is the perfect example. So this is super Texas in space, right? And the thing I got hung up on was how would, how would this not be corrupted? So the, the laws of the land are made by the politicians in support of the or in by the indifference of of the people and so the thing that sort of holds this together in my view from you know becoming more normalized and less of a frontier society sort of idea is not what he, what uh piper and mcguire are saying that uh that the uh oligarchs of the open range with their vast armies of uh military equipment uh like it this way it was rather the support of the people for killing politicians was the thing that keeps it i was thinking that that's what keeps it uh active and not corrupted towards you know just becoming a more normalized society where you know active corruption by politicians is is the norm <laughs> Which is kind of a funny situation. I just thought it was a little bit unrealistic that they could have politicians be accountable. <laughs> and, um, I, I mean, obviously. They didn't do a really great job of explaining why anyone would ever run for office. Right, no. right. Uh, well, the thing is, is you and I, uh, all three of us, don't have strong ambitions to be a politician. We know this because we're not doing it, right? But the people who want to hold the reins of power uh, are the people who get those positions. There are some some people who want those positions but are too incompetent to get it. But basically, it's not because you're you're such a genius and a you know brilliant person that you become a politician. It's because you're flexible enough and also corrupt enough to take the money. From or you know willing to bend your your or just say principles that you don't actually believe in uh, because you want power that much, right? So, what is the advantage of taking office? It's the corruption. It's the ability to give power to your friends and uh, punish your enemies. So, yeah, in a society that doesn't have strong 
strong ability to do that, what is the desire to be a politician? It's a good question. I think it's sort of like cart before the horse sort of situation. You, if you have, I mean, this is, if you look at primitive societies, right? Like, you know, uh, hunter gatherer societies, anybody who wants to be, uh, in charge, you're willing to let them and laugh at them because they can't force you to do anything. Right? They don't have the power to enforce. But once you have uh, some sort of authority that people do support, that's when you get in real trouble. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, I always think of, uh, it just it strikes me as one of the worst ex- examples of human behavior is uh, during World War One, women going around and finding any any man walking the streets of London, putting a chicken feather in his, in his suit coat, right? You see a bunch of women coming up to you. I say, Oh, this is interesting. What do these women want? And they want to show you're a coward that you, because you did Yeah. The white feather, because you didn't go off and get killed in the meat grinder for, for is that a thing. Oh yeah. And, a thing. and it's a horrible thing. I think there's actually and it drove men mad. Like they it got did. really up depressed and upset about it. And they would, People go off and join up and, and get, get killed. killed and maimed and well, at least I can turn in my white feather. That's all there is. That's right. And there's, there's a movie about this. There's a uh, really? that movie has been remade about six times. It's really What's good. It? It's called the Four Feathers. The Four Feathers. Four Feathers. Yeah, and it's based on a book, I believe, or maybe a play. Heath Ledger was in it. That could be. That's probably one of the later ones. Um, uh, one of the Bow Bow Bridges, I think, was in an earlier one, and then maybe the seventies or something. It's it's a really interesting story because it is about um, social pressure. Um, mm. If somebody came up to me and, and said, uh, "Go go fight in this war against China. We got to help Taiwan," or "Go fight in this war against Ukraine. We got to help Ukraine," I'd like laugh in their face, right? But I don't live in the same kind of honor society uh, and you know what makes a man a man society that they did at the time. And this is all over Canada as well. In the United States, this is why Lovecraft wants to go fight in a European war, even though he thinks the Germans are the better side. He wants to go fight in that war. Ultimately, his mom <laughs> is wiser than him, gets him kicked out of it, right? Doesn't go and get killed in World War One like William Hope Hodgson and so many other, all the, all the famous poets that get killed in World War One. Um, but what, what, causes people to to support uh, a system is very hard to understand this society is ideal in the sense that they don't support a system they're basically that that's the the positive end of the libertarianism but most of the story is just revealing backstory so like it's not actually i think a very good story it's a very interesting idea. Maybe we should just read the essay. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely feels like a framework built up just enough to support this concept of, you know, a society where people can kill politicians. Yeah. And, and it, it's an interesting concept. It is. It feels more like a, a mediocre episode of Star Trek TOS. You know, it's. Yeah. Like, well, hey, we have an idea. Can we get an hour out of it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely could get an hour out of it. 
I mean, they got three hours out of it in this. Um, it, this thing's short enough. Why don't I just read it and see what we we get? All right, you guys have read it before, so I'm doing my homework on the show. Here we go. Uh, uh, so this is from the American Mercury, June uh, 1924. Um, and then there's a little editorial introduction that says, This was written long before the New Deal afflicted the country with a great mass of new administrative law and a huge horde of new extra-tyrannical job holders. I am more than ever convinced that it embodied a good idea. Um, it's funny, uh, Alex, I, uh, I'm helping a student write an essay about Weird Tales covers, and we're covering the entire run from 1923 to 1954, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, just, you know, doing everything involved, and for 21 issues, or 20 issues on the cover and 21 issues inside, there's the, there's a little stamp on the cover, uh, with a eagle uh, holding a uh, a gear in one claw and uh, lightning bolts in the other claw. The NRA. The NRA. It says it says NRA member. And uh, when I first saw that, I'm like, what does the National Rifle Association have to do with weird tales? And of course, the answer is nothing. It was the uh, National Recovery, Recovery Administration. Yeah. Um, the act was what created the administration. And for a couple of years, uh, the United States went crazy for this idea. There was like parades and people were getting like stickers on their body. And there was a, a football team or a baseball team named after <laughs> the Eagle. And like everybody thought it was a great idea. And it was possibly what he's referring to, uh, that is Mencken's referring to, uh, as a w- it was about price controls. It was about, uh, um, making comp- competition less competitive so that there'd be more jobs and not fewer jobs. Uh, cutthroat competition was what it was going after. And after those 20 issues or 21 issues, they just stopped doing it because basically it lost its credibility and the NRA went away, but it was, it was huge when it came out. And so it's that, that artifact is on the cover. And I think that that sort of thing is what Mencken's talking about here. It was basically Roosevelt was trying to do anything to increase the ability of people to hold jobs and be able to eat food. And uh, apparently this did not work very well, this particular one. Although other stuff did work eventually. There were a lot of terrible ideas. Yeah, you throw a lot of terrible ideas at the wall. Uh, On the other hand, as um, Evan would say, um, there was uh, a real interesting program for artists, and Mice should care about this. Basically, if you had any sort of hint of an artist in you, you got a job working for the government. Uh, during the Roosevelt administration, um, there was uh, a famous uh, photographer guy named Walker Evans who mm-hmm. goes to poor parts of the United States and just like lives with a family and takes their picture and writes their story. Um, and we get like a, a real sense of how poor people were. And we get this, we, we still have these documents, we still have these books. 
And so it's like a documenting of the society as it is. And we have those things still. So it's interesting. Interesting. And very interesting. And uh, I was pointing out to Evan, I thought that this was really interesting. Um, this book is very Heinleinian, right? Uh, the one we've read today, Lone Star Planet. Um, uh, in a late Heinlein novel called The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, Ooh. there's yes. a bad guy, uh, or maybe not a bad guy, um, a person named who is not really a character, but is a, a name you drop to get some the main character involved. Um, and that name is Walker Evans. And I'm like, is that a coincidence? I don't think it is. Heinlein would have known about this guy. Walker Evans. Anyways, I'm going to now read the first paragraph. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> In the immoral, immoral monarchies of the continent of Europe, now happily abolished by God's will... There was, in the old days of sin, an intelligent and effective way of dealing with delinquent officials. Not only were they subject, when taken in down, uh, downright corruption, to the ordinary processes of criminal laws, in addition, they were liable to prosecution in special courts for such offenses as were peculiar to their offices. In this business, the abominable Prussian state, though founded by Satan, took the lead... <laughs> It maintained a tribunal in Berlin that devoted itself wholly to the trial of officials accused of malfeasance, corruption, tyranny, and incompetence, and any citizen was free to lodge a complaint with the learned judges. The trial was public and in accord with the rules fixed by law. An official found guilty could be punished summarily in a, and in a dozen different ways. He could be reprimanded, reduced in rank, suspended from office for an indefinite period, transferred to a less desirable job, removed from the rolls altogether, fined, or sent to jail. If he was removed from office, he could be deprived of his right to a pension, in addition, or fined or jailed, in addition. He could be made to pay damages to any citizen he had injured or to apologize publicly. Boy, this is sounding really good, isn't it? <laughs> we should get this... I can think of a lot of people I need to publicly accuse. Uh, in fact, I have publicly accused them, but it, nobody cares. All this, remember, was in addition to his liability under the ordinary law, and the statute specifically, specifically provided that he could be punished twice for the same offense, once in the ordinary courts and once in the administrative courts. Thus, a Prussian official who assaulted a citizen, invaded his house without a warrant, or seized his property without process of law, could be deprived of his office and fined heavily by the administrative court, sent to jail by an ordinary court, and forced to pay damages to his victim by either or both. Uh, forced to pay damages to his victim by either or both. That sounds strange. Uh, had a Prussian judge in those far-off days of despotism, overcome by a brainstorm of Kirschlich, <laughs> no, Kaiserlich passion, done any of the high-handed and irrational things that our own judges, federal and state, do almost every day, and a grieved citizen might have hailed him before... Oh, hailed? Hauled? Should probably be hauled. H-A-U-L-D hauled him before the administrative courts and recovered heavy damages from him, besides enjoying the felicity of seeing him transferred to some distant swap in swap? In swamp? East Swamp would make more sense. In East Prussia, to listen to to listen all day to the unintelligible perjury of anthropo the anthropoid poles. Wow, this guy doesn't pull punches. Uh, the law specifically provided that Responsible officials should be punished. 
Oh, maybe that... No, it is capitalized polls. Okay. The law specifically provided the responsible official should be punished not more leniently and s- than subordinate or ordinary offenders, but more severely. If a corrupt policeman got six months, a corrupt police chief got two years. More than more of these statues were enforced with Prussian barbarity, and the jails were constantly full of errant officials. I do not propose, of course, that such a medieval law be set up in the United States. We have indeed gone far enough in imitating the Prussians already. If we go much further, the moral and enlightened nations of the world will have to unite in a crusade to put us down. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. As a fa- as a matter of fact, the Prussian scheme would be, would prove ineffective in the Republic, if only because it involves setting up one's gang of job holders to judge and punish another gang. It worked well in Prussia before the country was civilized by force of arms, because, as everyone knows, a Prussian official was trained in ferocity from infancy, and regarded every man arraigned before him, whether a fellow or official or not, guilty ipso facto. In fact, any thought of prisoners' possible innocence was abhorrent to him, as a reflection upon the polizei, and by inference upon the throne, the whole monarchical idea and God. But in America, even if they had no other sentiment in common, which would be rarely, which would be rarely judge and prisoner would often be fellow. Uh, oh my God. Would often be fellow Democrats or fellow Republicans and hence jointly interested in protecting their party against scandal and its member against the loss of their jobs. Moreover, the Prussian system had another plain defect. The punishment it provided were, in the main, platitudinous and banal. They lacked dramatic quality and they lacked ingenuity and appropriateness. To punish a judge taken in the judicial crim con, and that is cited at the bottom as being criminal conversation, by fining him or sending him to jail is a bit too facile and obvious. What is needed is a is a system, A, that does not depend on the execution of, upon the goodwill of fellow job holders, and B, that swift, certain, and unpedantic punishments each fitted nearly neatly to its crime. Okay, so that is, he's setting up the, the premise for this book, right? That's interesting. How did you find this, Alex? Is it just it's on? It's uh, linked in the Wikipedia article. Ah, on I should have probably read that, huh? okay i announce without further ado that such a system after due prayer i have devised it is simple it is unhackneyed and i believe that it would work it is divided into two halves the first half takes the detection and punishment of crimes of job holders away from courts of impeachment congressional smelling committees Wow, that's interesting. And all the other existing agencies, i.e. away from job ho- other job holders, and vests it in the whole body of free citizens, male and female. The second half provides that... Ah, see, it's equal. That's nice. The second half provides that any member of that body, having looked into the acts of a job holder and found him delinquent, may punish him instantly and on the spot and in any other manner that seems appropriate and convenient. And that in case this punishment involves physical damage to the job holder, the ensuing inquiry by a grand jury or a coroner shall confine itself strictly to the question of whether the job holder deserved what he got. In other words, I propose that it shall be no longer malum in se for a citizen to pummel, cowhide, kick, gouge, cut, wound, bruise, maim, burn, club, bastonito, 
flay or even lynch a job holder, and that it shall be mal- malum prohibitum only to the extent that the punishment exceeds, exceeds the job holder's deserts. The amount of this success, if any, may be determined very conveniently by a petit, uh, petty, petit jury. Teacher, as opposed to a grand jury. Yeah, okay. As other questions of guilt are now determined, oh, as other questions of guilt are now determined, the flogged judge or congressman or other job holder on being discharged from hospital or chief heir in case he has perished goes before a now determined, oh, no, no, no goes before a grand jury and makes a complaint. And if a true bill is found, a petit, petit, how do you say this word? P-E-T-I-T. Petit. Petit jury is impaneled and all the evidence is put before it. If it decides that the job holder deserves the punishment inflicted upon him, the citizen who inflicted it is acquitted with honor. (laughs) 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 If on the contrary, it decides that the punishment was excessive, then the citizen is a judge guilty of assault, mayhem, murder, or whatever it is, in a degree apportioned to the difference between what the job holder deserved and what he got. And the punishment for that excess follows in the usual course. Gosh, this is sounding better and better. I can, <laughs> I, I, I can see all the people, like, um, you guys, you know about Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, got arrested for, uh, for, um, uh, drunk driving and uh they're like hundred millionaires right uh, they could afford a driver for him but this isn't the first time now you say well if i if i go and you know kick his ass um i would be arrested right like if i see him on the street and i go kick him kick him in the balls <laughs> i would be arrested but he's not the job holder right so that would be a crime but if she had done that um I I might be convicted of assault, uh, but I couldn't be convicted for political crimes. That's interesting. I think that's very interesting. Uh, so maybe I'm becoming a, a libertarian. I don't know. I I don't want to be. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. HL Mankin has done that to a lot of people. I don't. I don't want to be one of those guys. But obviously, there's some merit going on here. All right. Next paragraph. The advantages of this plan, I believe, are too patent to need argument. At one stroke, (laughs) it removes all the legal impediments which now make the punishment of a recreant job holder so hopeless a process and enormously widens the range of possible penalties. They are now stiff and in large measure illogical. Under the system I propose, they could be made to fit the crime precisely. Say the citizen today becomes convinced that a certain judge is a jackass, that his legal learning is defective, his sense of justice atrophied and his conduct of cases before him tyrannical and against decency. As things stand, it is impossible to do anything about it. A judge cannot be impeached on the mere ground that he is a jackass. The process is far too costly and cumbersome, and there are too many judges liable to the charge, nor is anything to be gained from denouncing him publicly and urging all good citizens to vote against him when he comes up for re-election, for his term may run for ten or 15 years. And even if it expires tomorrow and he's defeated, the chances are good that his successor will be quite as bad, and maybe even worse. Moreover, if he is a federal judge, he never comes up for re-election at all. 
for once he has been appointed by the President of the United States, on the advice of more influential clients and with consent of their agents in the Senate, he is safe until he is so far gone in senility that he has to be propped up on the bench with pillows. But now, imagine any citizen free to approach him in the open court and pull his nose, or even in aggravated cases, to cut off his ears, throw him out the window, or knock him on the head with an axe. How vastly more attentive he would be to his duties. How diligent he would apply himself to the study of law. How careful he would be about the rights of litigants before him. How polite and suave he would become for judges like all of the rest of us. Our veined fellows, they do not enjoy having their noses pulled. The ignominy of the ignominy, the ignominy resident in the operation would not be abated by the subsequent trial of the puller, even if should be, even if he should be convicted in jail. The fact would still be a brilliant remembered. Oh my God, I can't read properly. The fact would still be brilliantly remembered that at least one citizen had deemed the judge sufficiently a malefactor to punish him publicly and to risk going to jail for it. A dozen such episodes in the career of any judge would be ruined and his heart broken. Even though the jails bulged with his critics, he could not maintain his air of aloof dignity on the bench. Even his catchpoles would have would snicker at him behind their hands, especially if he showed a cauliflower ear, a black eye, or a scar over his bald head. Moreover, soon or late, some citizen who had had at him would be acquitted uh, by a petite jury, and then obviously he would have would have to retire. It might be provided by law, indeed, that he should be compelled to retire in that case, that an acquittal would automatically vacate the office of the offending job holder. <laughs> Interesting. So, um, this is a little bit similar to uh, the court system on Luna in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Have you read that, Misa? Not all of it. No, I didn't get done. No. Wow. You started and you didn't finish it. You must have. I, I was interrupted by I don't remember what. I never finished okay. it up again. Out of it, you, Alex, you read Moon? I have not. Um, it's one of those books that I keep thinking I have read. Mm. And going back, like, wait, I never actually read this. It's yeah. A, it's, it's a very, 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 very good book. Um, there are things in it I don't like, but. Uh, that is far outweighed by the very interesting things that are happening. Uh, not the least of which is, as usual, Heinlein likes transsexuals. Um, there's a robot or a computer in that book that uh, is named Mike. When he talks to men, he's Mike. When he talks to women, he's Michelle. <laughs> um, oh. And uh, that AI uh, character is very interesting and fun. Uh, and it's a tragic ending and all that stuff, but the whole, it's kind of a retelling of the American Revolution, um, and the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. There's a, a lot of Russians on the planet or the moon. And, uh, w one of the first thing that happens in the book is a, um, a, uh, public official that starts the revolution, um, does something inappropriate and they have a little, uh, petite jury. Um, they, uh, pick our main character, who's named Manny, um, out as the judge. 
and say we're having a trial or we're going to throw this guy out the airlock or not. Uh, and they have a little trial and it doesn't take up the whole book, <laughs> which I, I think is the major problem I have. There's, there's a whole other thing going on in this book that is what we're getting to, I guess, which is, um, they want to, they want to add this planet for Texans to the United Federation of Planets or whatever. Um, and then there's another alien, uh, empire out there that wants to cut it off from the United Federation of Planets because they need their super cow and they want to cut off that food supply. Um, and that's the motivation for the murder. Right. Yeah, he put in all this other plot stuff that could be really interesting and it's really just there enough to get you into this courtroom. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And we didn't spend almost any time ranching or cow punching on the super cows. <laughs> like what's mentioned, right? And even the, even the romance, right? Which is barely there. Call it a romance. Uh, he sees her at the airport. <laughs> no, they were, they were on the ship together. Yeah. Doing things yeah. that she would prefer he not mention to her father. Right. And then later on, they have a romance. But and then we find out that then I think they got married and he stayed on the planet, right? Yeah, he followed in his father-in-law's footsteps. And then the other thing that's uh, uh, going on in this book, I think, is it's kind of a retelling of of the Texas story. Which yeah, is, that, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's weird though because like everything's Texas already, <laughs> like so like they already they had the super you know, Texas, <laughs> super Texas. Yeah, yeah um, they did it super this time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just weird because because you know they have the literal Alamo <laughs> they took a brick by yeah. brick. Well, you uh, mean like a recreation of the Alamo? <laughs> nope, the actual <laughs> Alamo. <laughs> Remember the Alamo? It's over there. <laughs> On this alien planet. Um, so that's weird. Um, I, I guess it's all supposed to be funny, right? I think. Yeah, it's clearly humorous. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's light. Yeah. And then, and then there's like the whole Lone Star thing. I mean, there mm. he is, Silk Lone Star on the Lone Star planet. Mm. Like, you know, so there was that kind of fun baked in. Yeah, I, I, I have a, I have a question for yeah. anyone with it's more fifties pop culture knowledge than I have. Mm-hmm. In this and in several of the things I've read, Texans are always described as having really loud, obnoxious, colorful shirts. Uh, Tom Swift Jr. books. Mm-hmm. He had a Texas chef named Chow mm-hmm. who was always there. His shirts were described like radioactively gray. <laughs> is is that a thing? I, I, don't I can't. Know. I keep reading about all these Texans and their incredibly loud, bright shirts. I've never, every picture I've seen from the fifties, I mean, maybe by the eighties, it's these weird neon colors, but in the fifties, <laughs> maybe, like, maybe they, that's what did the, they just mean. They weren't like that pale blue office shirt. Like they had yeah. actual color. Is that all that? They, well, I don't, I don't know about what they actually had in Texas, but I do know I, I, I'm enjoying myself every time I do it. I, I like the Western covers of pulp magazines. Um, Lariat, for example, is a great pulp magazine. And Alan Anderson, who does Planet Story covers, also does uh, Lariat covers and many other. Um, Did a lot of the same covers for both. Yeah, yeah. Paint a little bit, <laughs> a bit from Western. It's not a horse, it's this a space is no longer horse. A whip. It's now a 
flaming laser weapon. That's right. That's right. And the, the pistol is is a laser pistol now. But um, you know, there, there's upside but down ladies. Say again, Misa. I said, but Levi's are always the same. Well, that's the thing is they don't really focus on the pants, but the 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 shirts. Uh, the, the, my favorite combination is a red shirt with a black vest, like the Han Solo vest from the first Star Wars, um, over it and a neckerchief that's yellow. Um, and so like a, a bright red shirt, a yellow neckerchief and a black vest. Um, I call it the, uh, mustard and, uh, mustard and, uh, ketchup outfit, like, just like this bright, bright red shirt. You never see anybody wearing bright, bright red shirts anymore. You know, blue is, uh, possible. Um, but, uh, and especially if they are wearing a bright red shirt, they don't wear a yellow neckerchief. Um, but it works on the covers. They look like these cow hands look like they're cowboys, even though it's just a way to advertise your magazine, right? Those, those really bright colors, yellows and, blacks and reds and whites uh it just makes you want to reach over and grab that magazine and read it um so i don't i don't know about the actual texans but on those covers man (laughs) makes me makes me delighted just to see (laughs) you know oh and the other thing that's amazing this is a little off topic as well but um uh have you spent any time looking (laughs) up (laughs) <laughs> Have you spent any time, my friends, looking at at Alan Danderson style um, pulp covers with uh, the costumes the ladies wear? Like the design of the costumes are so nice. I I want to become a like a ladies clothing designer because I, <laughs> I have no interest in it in real life. But I'm like looking at these covers like. Oh my God, she's got like, uh, uh, you know, there's a brass bra or whatever. But if you, the more you look at it, the more impressed you are with like, there's one, um, uh, a lady has a, uh, a helmet on. Oh, this is, I just tweeted about this one recently. It's, um, it's actually not an Alan Anderson, but, uh, it's, uh, for the cover of I Remember Lemuria by Richard Shaver, which is a famous story that I'm not going to read. Um, the one with the green thing and a tube. That's right. There's a green thing and a tube. But if you look at the lady, she's got a hel- like a black helmet on, right? And at the very tip of the helmet on the front, there's like a tiny little dragon head. And then once you start looking at her armor, she's got these giant shoulder pads that are attached to her brassiere or whatever. Black gloves. Um, and like a petal shape on the gloves and a petal shape on the dress giant belt and all that stuff but there's also like starscape on it's like i'm like this is what makes me want to read these stories right is the is like how do how is that amazing costume going to show up in the story it never is mentioned right it's just (laughs) the imagination of the artist going crazy uh and indicating what it's like part of the uh it's part of the magic of comics is reading between the panels you take the cover of that pulp magazine you're reading, and then you infer that everybody's dressed like that, and you flip back and say, yep, they're dressed like that, even though it doesn't mention it. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, I guess that's what sold me on this book. I I like H. Bean Piper, but I just love the image of 
of, uh, in the, um, ace double, it's, uh, basically a land speeder. Um, there's some, uh, I don't know, mesas in Death Valley or something, some planets up in the sky, and then giant super cows chasing the land speeder. I'm like, this sounds like a great book. <laughs> that scene is like, Barely, it's a half a paragraph or something, and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, we we spent some time ranching. Like, no, <laughs> what a space cow, <laughs> cow super punching cows. super super cow, uh, cow super cows the size of a nuclear locomotive. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> super <laughs> nuclear locomotive. Um, uh, did you guys see the cover of the original magazine? Because that's different. Um, that's also on the Wikipedia entry. Uh, there, um, for a fantastic universe, it's a Virgil Finlay cover, um, and it's a statue of justice, blind lady justice. Yes, blind lady justice with a six gun on her belt, um, and wearing a cowboy hat, and she's holding a scale. And on one side, there's a bunch of guys in the ketchup and mustard uh, costumes wearing blue jeans uh, on the scale. On the other side, there's other guys falling off. Um, so this is like a range war story, uh, set in on super, super space, but it's during the trial after like everything, our main character gets to the planet and, and turns into a lawyer. It's so weird. It's just, then he becomes a, uh, a gunman at the very end. Yeah. 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 And in fact, uh, th- that was one of the weird things that I was like, oh, this is interesting. Is when he used his gun at first, uh, I don't know, was that, wasn't that the airport? But wherever they landed after the airport, there was some confrontation and he used his guns and they all like cheered. Someone's <laughs> <laughs> trying to kill the president or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick draw. Yeah, quick draw. And then like they're, hey, he did his job. He, he's not a politician. And they cheered him. Um, but uh, that's the other thing that's weird is that. Uh, he goes all this way to establish uh, this court case, you know, uh, that I'm talking Piper does. He goes all this way to make the court case the center of the book. And then, as the judge points out, well, if you knew this from the beginning, we didn't need to have this trial. And he says, yes, but I want to establish that uh, the ambassadors are not politicians. I'm like, okay, I guess they're not politicians. What are they job holders is the question. <laughs> and I think we know the answer to that is yes, right? So doesn't he shoot himself in the foot with this book? In a certain I think sense? his change is that it's explicitly politicians. Yeah. I think Mankin's original essay was like any any civil servant, any government employee. Right, right. Can be hauled before, uh, you know, the original Prussian courts, like any, you know, any county clerk, whatever. Right. Mess up your job, you can get pulled into these special courts. Yeah. I think Mangan's idea was, it's not, it's not like cops, it's not the county clerks, it's not government employees or judges, it's the politicians who are. It's right. maybe judges. I'm not sure. Well, see, that's Possibly the thing, judges. right? Like, uh, there's a lot of people in the states upset about uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, right? Um. So, and there were, you know, people disturbing one of the judges' lunch or something at a, in D.C. Um, and there was some stuff in the news about how it's not right for people to interrupt 
Judge's lunches. Hey, you're interrupting my body or whatever the back and forth is. Um, are, are, uh, Supreme Court justices politicians? In a sense, they're, they're not. Where they would be on New Texas. It right. Really come up. Right. In a sense, they're not, right? Because they don't act like politicians. They don't run for election. They generally don't, uh, give speeches. They don't opine on television. Uh, so they don't act like politicians, but they definitely have an effect on. So I, I would guess that that is the difference that they would be considered job holders, right? The, definitely job holders. I don't know if they would. <sighs> this wasn't a particularly long story. It didn't go very in depth on. No, no. But I mean, he said what he was going to do first and then he did it. So he was establishing this whole premise twice, right? Like he told his people, I'm going to do this. So we knew what he was going to do. I, I it guess it wasn't really a twist. I guess I, I forgot. <laughs> I, I was so focused on the super cows and the super bourbon. Um, it is a parody though. I, I quite, I, I enjoyed it even though I didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to. I, I just think it's hilarious. You know, every, every time any, any excuse for a barbecue. I mean, that sounds like a it cool like thing. It felt like a Futurama episode. It's very Futurama, right? Yeah. 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 It, Futurama. <laughs> it should be a Futurama episode. There is a, there is a Futurama episode of, um, uh, I think it's a Frederick Pohl, uh, book where, Fry goes uh, in a one-way time ship uh, to the end of the universe uh, to try to get back his love for Leela, I think. Um, she's like frozen, I don't know, in a cave somewhere. And he goes all the, he, he goes all the way into the future uh, to the you know heat death of the universe. And then he goes through that and he comes out the other side. And it, uh, he might like do that three or four times because he keeps missing his stop. But uh, the idea is that the universe cycles or something like that. And it's like, oh, hey, this is that episode. That is that. I mean, it's not named and probably not credited. And I, I think it's not credited. But that's a Frederick Pohl novel. Um, so it's it has precedence. <laughs> and apparently they're going to bring Futurama back. Um, and I, I would be in favor of more. Apparently. Yeah, I mean, I heard uh, Bender got his contract or whatever that he wanted. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I I would definitely be in favor of them doing more. Uh, you you were saying original TOS episode. Th- this would be a very moderately bu- modest modestly budgeted TOS episode because they, you know, they have the cowboy hats for the crew and all that stuff. We've seen that episode before. And then it's a it's a courtroom trial. Um, I mean, you could do a Strange New Worlds episode, and that's pretty easy. I've only They're seen the two. one episode of that. How are you liking it? Because I, I, it feels very much like TOS in the 2020s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hmm. That sounds it's got bad a lot and of good. retro aesthetic to it. Um, it's very episodic. It's deliberately not a big arc, you know, peak TV kind of show. Mm-hmm. Each episode, like we're on this planet, uh, there was one where there was, you know, the whole government was literally powered by the heart of a forsaken orphan kind of a thing. It's just 
Hmm. Each, each that's a more episode like the Twilight planet zone. or space anomaly or something. And all right, kind of, it's it's pretty cool. People seem to like it. I'm I'm very skeptical. Uh, Misa, how many have you seen of that? I've seen them all. Okay, and and how are you you're rating it high above Picard, I think, right? Oh, yeah, way above. <laughs> Picard. Okay, Picard does better rating. I would say it is the best Star Trek since DS9. Uh, okay, yes. okay, yeah. that's sim- that's impressive. So, uh, it's better than Voyager, and Voyager's not. Oh, well, uh, I don't know about that. No, it's the, it's the best of the new Star Treks for sure. Okay, I'd say it's better than Voyager and. Enterprise. Wow. Well, Enterprise, I get. It's Enterprise is mostly bad. Um, there are some redeeming features to it, but mostly it's bad. Um, the Doctor's pretty interesting on that. Uh, uh, but better better than Voyager. That's. I mean, Voyager's not the greatest either, but... Yeah, that's impressive. Okay. Um, I just finished The Last Orville, and uh, that's a good episode, The Last Episode. It's funny. Um... But uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I was complaining to Evan on tw- you know direct message. I'm like, they should not have that much money to spend on special effects because I like these long episodes. But we get a whole like Death Star trench run in one episode, and and then there's a land speeder chase basically, and you know they got Tie Fighter on the Enterprise or whatever it's called now. Thorville, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I like I like the episodes, but I do not like that tendency to focus on on the space battles. Uh, I mean, uh, it's much better just focus on it. the stories. What are you saying, Misa? I said you're the only one that's seen them so far. Oh, yeah. I weren't you gonna buy them on? Hulu? I, I, I am. I am. I haven't. I haven't done it yet. Though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Alex? Have you been watching Orville's on the Hulu's? No. No. Um, I was, when the first season came out, uh, some review I read said this is the worst thing I've ever seen on television. It's not the that. detailed explanation of why it was terrible. I was like, well, I guess I won't watch that. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not that. It, there are reasons to think that it's silly. Um, but what's so interesting to me about it is that it is m- the most next generation show since the next generation's last episode. Yeah. And I'm including, I'm including this next generation movies, which are not very much like the television show. Those are none of the movies really are. No, no. Although, you know, you could argue that, you know, the first Star Trek movie is very much like us. I mean, that it is an episode. <laughs> Yeah. Right, but uh, it doesn't feel like it because of the length. But this uh, this show is very much like uh, I was thinking a lot about the. There's a one of the comic relief characters is an alien with only one gender, um, and he's kind of like their wharf. But he's also like one of the. There's an episode where they go to a planet where nobody has gender, and Riker falls in love with this androgynous being. Right. And then yep. there's a trial or whatever. Uh, and that character's on the ship. And every once in a while, his husband and their kid, who's going transgender surgery in one episode, like, I don't know what's going on here. But I do know that it's real science fiction and, and good. So I'm not 100% sold on it being the best thing since uh, 
Deep Space Nine, but I would say it's pretty pretty close to that. So if you guys are saying I should investigate more strange new worlds, I'll allow it, even if the people's <laughs> haircuts are wrong and the bridge is way too big and there's too much light on the bridge. Yeah. I, they took, I mean, it's, that, it but... is modern television making, so there's, oh. there's more light. Um, that's... <laughs> I'm not objecting to being able to see everything clearly. Well, I don't know. But they did they did a good job of kind of balancing that retro aesthetic mm-hmm. um, while also modernizing it. Like, you know the thing Spock always looks into? It's like the weird little, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, viewfinder picture thing. The blue light thing. They have that on the bridge, and Spock looks into it pretty regularly. Right. This makes no sense with modern displays, but it's just a thing that was there, so it still has it. I guess I guess one of the things I have a problem with, with it, with what I saw in the first episode is I didn't I don't care about Spock having romance on the ship. Um and I don't care about uh Pike uh worried about he he's going to turn into a mummy. I don't care about that stuff. And and when when I went through reviewing I guess this is during the pandemic, uh I reviewed basically every episode of Star Trek original series. What I noticed is that None of the things that Spock's skill set have um, are there because they wanted to make the character interesting. They were there to solve plot problems that they wanted to solve. And so all the lore that gets built up about, you know, how Vulcans mate and uh, all, you know, all that stuff about double eyelids and stuff like that's all uninteresting except in terms of telling a particular story now that the show is established for so long all those things are a burden that is brought to whatever story it is and so like the fact that he's got a a wife he wants to marry in future that wasn't what the show was about there was one episode where they go he has his spawning need and Kirk has to slap him around a bit right and they play the music, the fight music. But that's not the show. That's the, we don't need to carry that. It's not about characters. It's about the idea of what would it would be like if you were a spawning creature rather than a sexually active every day of the week creature. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But they're like burdened by this on the, on this show. And that's one of the things I like about the Orville is all that, you know, backstory burden is gone. Right, it, they have one of the only thing they don't have on Orville is transporters. They, they in this last episode, they go into the hollow deck. They don't call it the hollow deck. That's what it is. Uh, they have replicators. They don't call them replicators, but that's what it is. Uh, but we don't have all these characters that we are burdened with their like Picard's backstory. Uh, for the like. If you guys remember on the original Next Generation, Picard has uh, his mom appear in the first episode in like a, or maybe it's not the first episode. She appears in a hallway. And yeah. I guess it's the first season. And she has yeah. a French accent and she's elderly. Well, when they did the new Picard show, they brought Picard's mom in. She's young and she kills herself. It's because they wanted to tell a story about Picard's mom killing herself and they forgot that Picard's mom didn't kill herself and that she was elderly. And so they had to retcon it and say, sometimes I had memories 
where I thought she was elderly and she would bring me tea. I'm like, fuck. (laughs) That's such bad writing. Yeah. It's it's focused on the wrong things. See, this is what would make a good episode. Planet for Texans episodes. Captain, it's a planet colonized in time. He's looking into the blue light thing. It's a planet colonized by giant cows. The Texans live here. Oh, let's beam down and get into a court case. <laughs> they do. They do this all the time, right? They have the Chicago gangster. Yeah, planet, yeah, yeah, exactly. The Nazi planet, right? Nazi planet. Yeah. And, and the sexy robot planet. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah, there, there's space hippies, couple space hippies, space hippie. Uh, yeah. And uh, space hippies is a really good episode, man. I uh, <laughs> like that one. I, I, the more I wrote about it, the more I liked it. Cause even though it's stupid, um, it's dealing with space hippies. Um, <laughs> if you listen to what the space hippies say and what Spock says about their backstory, they're actually like, uh, into the environment. <laughs> And they're actually like back to the landers and, uh, they're wrong about stuff and their leader is mentally ill, but, um, it's a cult is what it is. But he also, Spock has a lot of sympathy for it. And we have a lot of sympathy for people who don't want to just, uh, accept the white feather and go off and get eaten by the meat grinder. Right. So it, it, it is actually a very, uh, if you think about it in the context of the of the time of the show's broadcast, it's about the Vietnam War and not uh, submitting to it. It's a it's a very good episode. That's what makes TOS so good is that it has this, and and I guess that's why a lot of people didn't like Next Generation when it first came out, is they thought um, this these aren't the characters I love, right? We see um, McCoy, age 500, in the first episode as a cameo. And then we get uh, Scotty, I guess, later on in fifth season or whatever as a cameo. But we actually come to like the characters there because they are telling stories that we want to see told. But now what we've got is Christopher Pike is back and Spock is back. And this is the like fifth actor to play Spock, apparently. And oh, we forgot Spock has a brother and an adopted sister. And like, fuck the character shit. Get back to the roots of science fiction. Get a nice, uh, John J. McGuire and, uh, H.P. Piper. <laughs> no, get some super cows out there. Yeah, get, throw some super fun. cows in. I mean, that would be, uh, this, this would be very easily a very good, uh, TOS or Orville episode. Cool. Or Futurama. Get a bunch of guys doing loud Texas yeah. accents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be a very, uh, it would be very delightful to visualize because of, you know, what we see. Uh, it's funny there there aren't a lot of super horses. There was a lack of super horses. A very uh, dearth of super horses. Right. Uh, but I, I, I would totally read another one. Uh, just so easy, right? Such an easy breezy book. I think the other side of the ace double was on Andre Norton called Starborn. And I can't remember if I've done a show on that or read that one. Have you guys read Starborn by Andre Norton? No. Okay. I think on the cover, there's a, it's like in an arena, like a, um, 
gladiatorial combat arena. And there's our hero or whoever is standing there. And then there's like a giant dinosaur necked creature. It's just called Starborn. <laughs> uh, just type it in. Starborn Andre Norton. I've not read that many Andre Norton books. Um, I think that was the one. Yep. Oh, maybe that's not... It's on the back of something. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. Oh, and there's a, like a furry creature beneath him who is obviously his space friend. Very interesting. Um... Yeah, there should be some more Andre Nortons out there. She's like, um, I think the major competitor to Heinlein in Heinlein's Juvenile. She? It's a she? Yeah, Andre Norton is a she. Isn't that weird? I didn't expect that. What's surprising to me is that, um, it's not surprise, like, knowing, uh, I'm pretty sure I read this. Um, Andre Norton it sounds like a girl's name to me. <laughs> Even though I know it's not my roommate's name is Andre. He's a dude, right? But uh, Andre Norton has always sounded like a girl's name to me because I knew that Andre Norton was a girl. And apparently Andre Norton changed her name even before she started writing science fiction uh, to Andre Norton, like legally changed it. What was it before? I don't remember, but it was not... Uh, was it Andrea? No, no. Um, Al- Andre Alice, uh, born Alice Mary Norton. Oh, wow. So she, she wanted to have a male name and her other, her other male pen names are Andrew North and Alan Weston. Wow. Cool. It's very interesting. And you like her stuff? She's not the greatest, but she's not terrible. Okay. Um, you know, the, there's um, maybe Alex, you've seen it. I've never seen it. There's a uh, movie based on one of her books that turned into a movie series. I want a, a star. No, no. Beastmaster. No Beastmaster. The, the 80s cheese fest? Yeah. I, I do know Beastmaster. Yes. Uh, have you seen the Beastmaster? The movie? 82 movie? Yeah. Increasingly weird. I, I've not seen it. Um, but uh, that is based on an Andre Norton novel called The Beastmaster. I did not know that. Uh, the film is about a man. The movie's who, basically a Conan ripoff. Conan yeah, was yeah. A hit and they made a bunch of movies. And yeah. One of them was Beastmaster. It's a. It's a film about a man who can communicate with animals and who fights an evil wizard with his army. Yeah. And I think there's like at least two sequels. Um, increasingly bad, I hear. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's an excuse for me to watch the movie, but I'd, I'd have to also find the uh, original book. Uh, 1959 book. Yeah. Looks, it's probably, uh, to be fair... Probably she was ripping off Hein uh Conan anyways. <laughs> so when I mean a lot of people did, right? It's a very popular thing to rip off. Yeah, I mean if you're ripping things off, rip off the best. In fact, um uh I'm gonna talk about this I guess on the other podcast I'm gonna record today, but 
once you start digging into um, Robinsonades, aka uh, people, yeah, people riffing on Robinson Crusoe, mm-hmm. you'll never stop finding them. <laughs> it's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, I mean, it was a whole genre of book. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But I like it, 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 the ripples of that, uh, like 300 year old book, are still being felt today. Did you guys know that uh, the. Uh, it's on Netflix, I think. It's a show called Lost in Space. Yep. Lost in Space. I'm familiar with several yeah. versions of Lost in Space. Yeah. Um, That's. Yeah, so uh, it was originally Space Family Robinson. Um, it was a, a comic from from the uh, I think I want to say the Gold, Gold Key, Key comic. Yeah, Gold Key, yeah. and then uh, they the television just ripped it off and called it Lost in Space. And then the the comics like, hey, yeah, uh, you uh, ripped off our idea, <laughs> and they say, hey, yeah, 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 well, here's some money. <laughs> Um, and then they got to keep making the show, right? Um, but I barely watched Lost in Space, uh, the original. But if you remember, it, it has a, um, a Robbie the Robot. I think might, might not be Robbie the Robot. But there's a robot there, right? Yeah. Um, and that Robbie the Robot is from that, uh, movie Forbidden Planet. And as I very successfully documented, I'm, very confident about this. Forbidden Planet is Shakespeare in space. Uh, it's oh, it's the, the Tempest. The Tempest, yeah. right? But also, Star Trek uh, is a ripoff of Lost in Space. Uh, not Lost in Space of the Forbidden, Forbidden Planet. Planet. Very successfully documented this, even though it doesn't look like it. There's like little strong evidence that it's just Lost in Space or Forbidden Planet. So everything's riffing off of Shakespeare, and everybody else is ripping off of Robinson Crusoe, including, get this, uh, The Martian by Andy Weir is a ripoff. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. But you don't, yeah, yeah. you don't notice it while you're reading it or watching the movie. You don't say, hmm, Robinson Crusoe. But it really yeah. is. I think part of the problem is Robinson Crusoe is 300 years old, and it's just become a genre. It's like, oh, the guy who's stuck by himself or with his family yeah. and has to survive in a there's a tom hanks movie right it's terrible tom hanks movie but people love it i don't i guess it's because it has the robinson crusoe vibe and it's played by tom hanks right you know it's considered the first novel uh in english i think that's right yeah in english yeah Yeah. and it is so successful precedent didn't it it did and it set some really bad precedents too did you know there's two sequels by the uh by Crusoe, uh, by, by, by Daniel Defoe. Yeah, Daniel. yeah, two sequels, not just one. As like no. the demand was so big that <laughs> he had to make his own sequels, and then of course a million other sequels, including Swiss Family Robinson. And uh, it's it's astounding how much how how big an influence it had. So yeah, everything's a rip off. Um, this, I'm, this should be ripped off this book that we read today. I think it would be a lot better if, if, had I known going in that it's a courtroom book, I probably would have had my expectations, uh, checked so that I wouldn't be as, I mean, it's not a bad book at all. It's just not, um, it doesn't have enough super cow and we talk, we don't, or, or, or bad dogs. 
bad dogs. Yeah, there's a whole race of evil space dogs. And yeah, I want to know about those space dogs. <laughs> evil space dogs would be delightful. No, no, no horse riding. Yeah, no, there was a there was a whole story there that we didn't get. It was uh, like General Hickok, who was dressed like Colonel Sanders. And- <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. There was so much happening. It, it, it was all just window dressing. You know? really yeah. And it is good window dressing for the essay, which I think is uh, very appropriate. Thank you for, for pointing that out. I guess I should have read the Wikipedia entry. Um, the thing that I found least believable in this book, not mm-hmm. the dog aliens, not the weird political setup where you can murder politicians, mm-hmm. not the super cows. It was that the people on Texas hadn't invented spring loaded quick draw holsters. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, like, you would think that that'd be the first thing that they'd be into. You got a whole planet full of crazy Texans who are all wearing guns all the time, and no one has thought, you know, what if a little spring in here? That's the wild, wild west. Right. You know, the uh, the white savior has to show up with fancy Earth technology of it, putting a spring in his holes. Lone Star, the is, Lone Star, come to the Lone Star planet to do it. Is he is he white? I I didn't notice. Uh, so interestingly, the names are really uh, racially interesting, right? So like at the very beginning, he meets all the people in the office, yeah. and the secretary is Ethel Quang Lee. Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's a lot of very interesting. Yeah. combinations of names that are yes. obviously deliberately done. And he deliberately says this guy is dark. Like, like yeah. He's, he, and that's something I've seen in his other stuff too. He has a uh, Chinese main character uh, female on Mars in one of his shorts. Uh, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Why'd you do that? Because he can. Right? Yeah. Um, but uh, our main guy, his name is Silk. Silk. Mm-hmm. That doesn't. That's not a normal name, right? So I don't know. Is he? Is he just smooth? <laughs> he's smooth. <laughs> he's a smooth docker. Mm-hmm. He's a smooth drawer from his his spring loaded pistols, yeah. holsters. I don't know. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's hard to picture a, a lot of what's going on here. I I I blame John J. McGuire. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know, I don't know him, but uh, I do recommend H. Beam Piper. Either, like so, if you Google them, there's very little. Yeah, you- it's all in association with our hero yeah. here. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I do not regret having read this book. I'm actually pleased to have read this book, but um, a little bit disappointing, probably because of the lack of super cow action. And space dogs. And, uh, well, what you're saying is you want someone to do an ex- take the short story and expand it into mm, a full novel with more super cow? No, I, th- I think <laughs> I think the adaptation. I, I'd like to see the Orville or Futurama do it, or just uh, yeah, more range war on the range, <laughs> yeah. rather than space war, uh, range war uh, in a courtroom. Um, it, it, it's so weird. Like the book really transitions. They go up into the courthouse, right? To like, I thought they were going to canoodle or something. And then they get trying to canoodle and accidentally stumbled into a murder. trial. Yeah. And they stumble into a murder trial and then they, they're locked in there for the rest of the book. That's like, a, well, that was a derailment, right? Well, no, they're only locked in there for an afternoon. Like I know, but, it, but then, you know, the story, the story gets stuck up there. Yeah. So, 
There's definitely canoodling that happens. Yeah, but it's it's mostly like most of the stuff. It's off screen, right? It, we're we're told told that it happened briefly. Like they did they did some rounding up of of space cows, but it literally is a half paragraph or something like that. It's not it's not whole chapter where they do I it. I went out and did that. Yeah. We know you we know you really want to see the exciting Portland. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is precedence for Futurama doing it. The hyper chicken uh, lawyer uh, <laughs> from Futurama uh, could definitely take on this court case because uh, it'll be nice to see Zab Brown again. Again, I'm looking forward to it. I, I mean, I, I was disappointed with some of the, the TV movies they had, but um, if they if they do it right. That show was good. Bill Hartman's dead. I don't know if they're going to. Oh, no. Bring Zap Brannigan back. No, Zap Brannigan. Damn it. <laughs> uh, we, at least we have Kiff, though, right? I like Kiff. We'll see who we get. They almost didn't have a real bender back. Yeah, that would have been crazy. That's crazy. I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the main character, essentially, right? Or comic relief or whatever. He's why people watch the show. Yeah, I mean, Fry's fine, and Leela's good, and all that, but and Professor Farnsworth. Come on. Can't live without Professor Farnsworth. But even so, it's Bender. <laughs> it's a Bender show, basically. All right, I guess uh, we're done-ish. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. Who wants to sign up for Ministry of Disturbance? I'm going to look it up and tell you about Ministry it. of Disturbance. It's that's the H beam Piper um that's on the schedule. Beam Piper. Um Yeah. Alright. It is illustrated by Von Dongen. Um sometimes getting a job is harder than the job after you get it. And sometimes getting a job out of a job is harder than either. Uh from Astounding Science Fiction, December nineteen fifty-eight. I'll send this to the group chat. And then I'll see if I can find the uh, LibriVox description. There it is. A science fiction at its humorous best, written in the golden age of all the greats. Piper can't be matched for sardonic comment on human nature. The empire is stagnant. Thousands of planets spread around Earth, but nothing is new is allowed to happen and disturb the static situation. Our emperor, Paul, knows this, but is powerless to make a dent in the centuries-old hidebound bureaucracy of the intergalactic politics. But is there a plot to overthrow him? It certainly looks like it. Follow this story closely as it builds to an excellent and exciting climax. Piper's talent and creativity shine through in this story. Uh, it doesn't tell you much, does it? It's two hours. Uh, Sounds like it might be another courtroom drama. I was it just worried be. about another courtroom drama <laughs> it, it here. It could be. I'm looking at the art, see if that indicates that 
that is the case. There's a bunch of portraits of kings as a minister of some kind. Some people. What, what's that? Uh, pence nays? No, it's, it's like a pence nays on a stick where you have your glasses and you hold them up to your eyes. What's that called? Yeah. Opera glasses? Yeah, I yeah. guess. Except they're just regular glasses rather than, um, yeah. It, lo- it does look like a royal court situation. And there's a kid with Different a- kind of courtroom drama. Yeah, kid, yeah, exactly. Um, and there's a kid with a dog. Has anyone made a TV show about a prince or a princess who becomes a lawyer and call it courtroom drama? <laughs> Honestly, they're putting so much shit on television. You can sell it just based on that. I think if you know the right people, dude. Imagine uh, what's her name, Margaret, uh, the Prince uh, William's wife. Oh yeah, she suddenly becomes a lawyer. American princess becomes a lawyer. Boom. Yeah, royal court. Not bad. Not bad. I mean, it's practically done, right? Uh, I have a dream I've tweeted that is so good as a movie. Uh, it's not coming up on there. I'm going to tell you guys about this. I, um, do you remember the movie, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles? Yes. John Candy. And who is the other guy? Steve Martin, Steve Martin, right? Just typing in John Candy. Um, yeah, this is from December night, uh, December, 2020. Dreamt an 80s movie starring Steve Martin and John Candy in which they are both famous Hollywood actors who had never worked together before. The famous divas who both wanted top billing and who'd never uh, worked together, uh, though, oh, and never worked together before. I'm repeating myself. Though it was an obvious spiritual sequel to Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. The, f- the film they were supposed to be filming was about two rival cat burglars. In one scene, Martin had developed a very long sequence of arm lunges for a climbing sequence. Once, one which was supposed to show him showing off his ability, Tom Cruise style, to uh, uh, his ability to do his own stunts, Tom Cruise style. And Candy kept deliberately flubbing his lines in order to tire out Martin uh, as he reached the roof. Martin became increasingly breathless while trying to show it was effortless. Meanwhile, their agents, played by Martin Short and Lily Tomlin, were having a parallel struggle, trying uh, to out each other out of the business by ruining each other's professional reputations, and were secretly falling in love. The end of the film was a pair of scenes, the red carpet on opening night, and their reuniting on stage at the Oscars, where they were handing out awards for other movies. Lots of cameos here. Culminating in a scene in which an interviewer asks the duo about their next film, they pretend to be friends, but each is explaining the difficulty each uh, had for each other's role. He had to learn Swedish for the role, and he insisted on doing the kissing contest scene in one long take, etc., etc. I didn't catch the film title. But I would have watched that movie. Right? I was, you got to write it, Jesse. <laughs> I mean, uh, John Candy's dead, so that's not happening. Well, John Candy's dead, but... Um, but, uh, and you know... Jack Black. Right in there. Uh, Jack Black is fine, but he's not a replacement for John Candy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, the only thing I can figure is they're getting really, really good with um, 
you know, CGI. Like, yeah, CGI bringing dead people back to life for a film. Um, de-aging people or mapping, face mapping and stuff like that. And I figure we're going to have like, uh, young Tom Cruise and young, uh, Bogard. <laughs> also, it's in a Dirk Pitt novel. Dirk is in a Dirk Pitt. late 80s, early 90s, Clive Cusser, Dirk Pitt novel. Who is? He's somewhere. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm watching the new, uh, Marilyn Monroe. Ah. And, um, oh, what's his name? Welcome. Humphrey Bogart movie. Humphrey Bogart? Yeah. The, he's like, the the what? Because the new Monroe Bogart movie that just came out yeah. they made with fake computer actors. <laughs> Lauren Bacall and Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> you can do it now. Um, but we're going to be you able to... Your, yeah. I want young Salma Hayek and old Salma Hayek in the same movie. <laughs> she can play her own mom. That's Boom. right. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Laurie and John Candy. <laughs> What a pairing. The classic pairing of Peter Laurie and John Candy. Wow. Yeah. New classics. Uh, Wow. Yeah, it's going to happen, right? I mean, we can almost do it now. Uh, Not you and I, but uh, the the people with with the machines. Um, I I think they're... Aren't they still putting uh, Stanley in in all these... Marvel things? No, no, they stopped. Oh, they get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. What they did is they filmed, he filmed a bunch of cameos all at once. Right. Like 10 of them. Yeah. They knew he was getting old and they just sat down and just filmed just him doing a bunch of stuff. And then he was in several movies that came out after he died that he filmed ahead of time. Did they run out or they just said? Yeah, they have have run out. Okay. Well, then that's, they can still bring him back if they want, but it's. It is kind of creepy. On the other hand, you do get to see Peter Laurie and John Candy. <laughs> so. Again, together for the first time. <laughs> uh, it, it'll work. So, yeah, Ministry of Disturbance is, uh, that is September 11th. You still have time to, uh, say no, uh, or yes between now and the next time, which will be. Uh, when's next time for Mice's? Next week? No. No. No, two I, weeks I think from now. Space. I think it's, um. Prince Albrecht and the Snake Lady is what it says here. Oh, yes, it is. The 21st. Yeah. That's correct. And Islands of Pirate, Island of Pirates Doom, uh, for Alex. Yes, please. Dangerous Lady Pirates. Yeah. And there's a comic book adaptation that I took a long time to extract from. It was over seven issues of Savage Sword. Um, but it's actually, I think it stars Conan, which is weird. Cause they, they would always take his other stories and turn them into Conan. Yeah. But it's, they did that with Shadow of the Vulture. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but at least it's, it's Howard's words mostly. Right. Um, I think that's a female pirate book. Pirates Doom. Yeah, Islands of Pirates Doom. Isle Pirates Doom. Pretty sure it's a female pirate. It's a sexy female pirate, um, Black Volma. Um, yeah. Lost temple of uh, some ancient race. Good. Cursed treasure. I mean, I haven't heard anything that's not a super positive. The only th- thing <laughs> missing is a super cow or a super bourbon. Yeah. Ten times ahead. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to take a... 
a few hours break before my next podcast. Like an epic podcast. Yeah. Well, I hope it. I hope Best it of did. luck. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's so many books I've covered, right? But there's still tons that, yeah, I haven't done almost any Mark Twain. Wow. Right? I'm on your list for those. Yeah, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer is on there if you want. Oh, yeah, I you're know, on for that. I'm already on it. I'm already on it. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's going to be good, right? Because it's Mark Twain. But wow. I, I haven't read uh, Mark Twain's, you know, big books for decades if, if, I, if I even read them back then. I don't know if I did. Robinson Crusoe, I'm, I'm pretty sure I never read before because I, w- I would have remembered all the stuff that I'm seeing in it now. But I I read classic comic versions of it for sure. Right. I read in university. Yeah, and you you're also the the person who I know who's most expert in that. Um, is the French guy, Monte Cristo guy, who's that? Dumas. Dumas. Yeah, because you read you read the uh, Count of Monte Cristo, which is huge, right? Yeah. Is is it forty Possibly hours? My favorite novel. Is it your favorite novel? It's fabulous. Count of Monte Cristo. I've seen the movie. <laughs> Not much like the book. <laughs> but there was a uh, there was one in the seventies that was actually fairly close to the book. Yeah. With, uh, what's his name? Richard Chamberlain, I think. Okay. And Donald Pleasance as Dangler's the banker. Okay. Um, and it's it was a I want to say made for TV thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little lower budget. It's fine. Um, it does follow the, the plot of the book fairly closely. Wow. Uh, it's worth watching. There's a giant character relationship map on Monte Cristo that's daunting to look at. <laughs> the problem is half the characters are all the same guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, is uh, You read Moby Dick. I did read Moby Dick. You did, did the ultimate one. Uh, yeah, but it's, you know, I don't think it's as complex. Because, I mean, the main character drops away after four or five chapters. He's not even in the book, and then he comes back at the end. Um, it's a much simpler book, I think. <laughs> uh, maybe not. I, I'm pretty sure it is, though. It's a pretty deep book. Yes, it's very deep and very good. But it's also easy. It, it really goes down easy once, you know, if, if you can get through the vocab about whales. Okay, he's got all the definitions there for you. Yeah. And there's another... Uh, who? Uh, what other book by Dumas is really big? I can't remember. Musketeers? Three Musketeers? Yeah, right, right. Didn't we do that one? We, we have not. Um, pretty Good. sure. Oh, no, we did a werewolf one that was in Weird oh. Tales. Right. Uh, the Wolf Leader. And that was pretty easy and simple. That was good. That mm-hmm. was as a as a, a wolf walking in on somebody's house on its hind legs. Yeah, well, see, that's what I wanted from this book. I wanted the dogs. Right. Space dogs. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know that much about Dumas. I'm not even sure the difference between pair and non-pair. <laughs> Other than one's the dad and one's not. <laughs> like, uh, how are they different? Well, one's the dad and one is not the dad. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a very good 
explanation. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> bed, non-bed, foot, non-foot, pair. <laughs> okay, notable works. It just says The Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo. Both written in 1844. Wow. Uh, what, really? What a, well, yeah, it says 44-45 for Monte 44 for... Or I guess that would have been published, Three Musketeers. Wow. That's crazy. It's crazy. Fiction works. You know who else needs to be done more is Vern, Jules Vern. Because Man. he's got so many books and people focus on like the I'm gonna throw my vote in for Mysterious Island. Okay, so the problem with Mysterious Island is it's kind of a sequel, right? The sequel to two different books he wrote. Yeah. And I wanna read Mysterious Island, but I feel like I should read the other two first. Well, one of them is 20,000 Leagues. Yeah. And which, all you really know is Nemo happened. Yeah, Nemo like, happened. Um, and then the other one is Captain Grant's Lost Children. It was made as In Search of Castaways in the 60s. Hmm. Which uh, is a Robinson aid, I think. Bailey Mills. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not. Um, but that, at the end of it, the bad guy gets marooned on island. Oh, this see. book, they find him. That's really all. <sighs> okay. What, 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 isn't there one set in Africa called uh, Michael Strogoff or something like that? I don't. Jules Verne novels. Novels. He did write like Paris in the year 2000 or something, which was terrible. I was oh. a very excited high school or middle school student when I found that on a shelf somewhere. Like, Jules Verne, Paris in the 20th century? This is amazing. And it was nothing. Uh, nothing but disappointment. Um, he He's amazing. He's got some really, int- you know, the other thing that's really funny is uh, there was a, a recent announcement of a uh, around the world. Was it around the world in 80 days? I think it was yet another version. I think it was a TV version. And they added they added a character who is, I think, going to be the love interest. Um, so besides the princess. Yeah. Besides Ayuda. Um and it's she's like a female reporter, sort of following Phileas Fogg. I'm like, yeah. how is this going to yeah. work? Because yeah. the yeah. romance with Ayuda, is that I think that's her name, is uh, like central to the book. I mean, I know she doesn't yeah, show up until book half, halfway through, but he saves her from like being burned to death or something, right? And then, yes, uh, and then. Uh, so yeah, I think they like they thought, you know what this needs is Bob dating. It's like, no, <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, uh I, I think Passport 2 is black, which is fine. Lots of French black guys. That's absolutely fine. But he has to be French. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but if you mess with the the character relationship um by throwing in a reporter uh, I I don't know. He that was that's uh, work. He was Mexican in the David Niven movie. Remember that Canton Floss played him. Wow. No, I don't the, remember that. I think he was. He might have been Spanish, but I think he was a Mexican comedian. He was super popular in his home country. He was a superstar, megastar. Oh. And it was his his only really big English language role. Was Jackie Chan played Passepartout, I think, in a in maybe one with Pierce Brosnan. Um. 
and you know Jackie Chan's great and all, but I don't think he's very French. Because <laughs> they, they, it's he's making fun of the stereotypes of the United States and France and England. He's making fun of everybody. And when you read uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, he's making fun of the Germans. Right? It's really funny. Like his naming conventions is like. Uh, Professor Rockhead or whatever it is. <laughs> like, um, he, he, and it translates. So if you start messing with his formula, I, I don't think it's going to work very well. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I guess I should probably take a voice rest. Thank you very much, everybody. Appreciate Thank you both. You. Okay. Talk to you later. Have a great one. I'll be in communication regarding coming episodes and see you on Twitter as well. Okay. Bye. Bye. Um, Will is who uh, normally would have been here. I think uh, it was at a pulp fest. Have you ever been pulp to fest? That? I have not. It's in Pittsburgh, which is several hours away from here. Mm. Not, an un, not an uncrossable distance, but it's not like an easy day trip. I wanted to go there because I want to be in the dealer's room because I want to look at pulp magazines, <laughs> and they have some. And I was saying uh, to Will, uh, he's probably the, one of the youngest people there, because everybody there in the photo he took, it's like uh, I think there was like a couple guys that didn't have white hair, but pretty much all of them did, and th- those were the dealers rather than the uh, customers. But like, uh, <laughs> I want to go there. Yeah. Push this old man out of the way and get that box of weird tales or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Knock him down and uh, <laughs> get to the dealer's room before he can snap up all the deals. Nice. <laughs> oh, very funny stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, it was going to be Will and Carl Gallagher was going to join us, but he is moving. Guess, guess where he's moving from? No idea. Texas. <laughs> oh, so it was Texas. It was a, it was going to be a Texas podcast and you. Yeah, he's he's leaving Texas. Um going to somewhere north of there. I think he, they're moving because it's Texas weather's not good anymore. I don't know if that means it's Was it ever good? I probably not. But I don't know. I I've never been there, so I can't say, but it sounds like it's a hot place. And there's some environmental problems in the Gulf and stuff like that, but I don't really, I'm just going by lies I hear on the news and stuff like that. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. So, uh, but he is joining us, uh, for space cadet, which has now been scheduled by Heinlein. Cause, um, apparently that's, uh, something he studied. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember how he said he studied it, but it came up. So that is on the schedule for uh, September. I'm um, just give you the list here. Uh, Drug of Choice is next week. That's uh, Michael Crichton, early book by... Uh, it's a hard case crime book, Alex. Um, That's nice. Uh, what's the... his his When he was a doctor... Jonathan Lang. Lang, yeah. We read um, one of his uh, binary, and that was... Really solid. Very well written. Very short. This is a similar, I think, length. Not super long. 
And then I think he wrote those in med school. Yes. That's why he used to suit him. Yes. And also like he was doing it to pay for med school, which is pretty impressive. He um, was writing pay for med school. He was a writing machine. It's amazing. Um, and he, the, that first one binary, um, he also directed the TV movie, which is not amazing, but uh, I rewatched, um, you guys remember this movie with Tom Selleck, uh, from the early eighties. It was shot in Vancouver. Uh, it's called Runaway. Um, and mm. it starred the girl from Cheers as well. Christy Alley? Yeah, Christy Alley. And also, um, uh, one of those rock stars who wanted to be a movie star. <laughs> the guy from Kiss, whoever that is. <laughs> um, Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons was the bad guy. It's, wow, what a party. It's a pretty interesting movie. It's not a good movie, but it's really quite interesting because it's about um, uh, bots, base, uh, drones. It's very robot-oriented. And so, like, the first scene, uh, they have to, the cops have to go out on a runaway robot call. And they go out to the a farm, and there's a robot in the fields uh, not doing its job properly. And so they have to capture it. And, uh, it's like, it's supposed to be like dramatic, but it's actually, it's a, it's a very weird mess of a movie because it's also a kid friendly movie. It like doesn't make any sense, but, uh, they're basically, uh, slave hunters. <laughs> and then but for robots, yeah, robots? for robots. Yeah. And then, uh, they go back and he gets his new partner or whatever. And, uh, then there's this evil guy who's dealing in in uh, very advanced chips, <laughs> 8088s or whatever it is, um, and he's putting rogue programs in them for world domination or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a really bad movie, but it's also very interesting. It's very uh, – uh, oh, and he, they have a robot um, nanny. For some reason, Tom Selleck's wife is dead. Um, and so there's sure. a robot nanny that takes phone calls and makes dinner and stuff like that. And then, huh. uh, and then he begins dating, I think his partner, I can't remember. It's, it's very broken. This movie is very, very broken, but very interesting. Not one he wrote as a novel. It was for the screen in the first place. Yeah. But yeah. Very, very weird guy. But because that movie's a piece of junk, really. But it's got some interesting ideas. And then he does other movies that are, like, really awesome. Like, uh, Great Train Andromeda Robbery. Andromeda Strain, right? Yeah, the Andromeda Strain. But yeah. the that Sean Connery uh, um, Victorian heist movie is, like, it's wonderful. I watched that for the first time in February of this year, I think. You're very lucky to have this, experienced uh, it. Because if you haven't seen it, hotel room it's in New Orleans. It's a great movie. Super funny. Um, well done. And it's, uh, very much like the book. The book's solid like that as well. Really interesting. Uh, then Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady. I don't know much about it other than it's a, uh, 19, late 19th century, um, weird tale. Uh, Alex, you might be into this. Island of Pirates Doom. Oh, yes. Added to the schedule. We've got audiobook read by Absolutely. Connor. All right. That is on, uh, uh, wait, it says August. Is that right? Holy crap. There's a lot of podcasts. Yeah. August 28th. Is that work Do, for you? I might. 
be at the Outer Banks. Let's see. All right. I'm adding Maybe it. I can do it from the Outer Banks. Yeah, bring your microphone. Uh, then Space Cadet is after that by Heinlein. And Mysa, you should be on that because that's a uh, juvenile. Well, thank you, Jesse. <laughs> what was the date? Uh, that'd be September 4th. September 4th, Space Cadet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Is it, you good for that? Yep. All right. Now, question. Um, after, this is kind of a spoiler, I guess. <laughs> um, next uh, after that is Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. So depending on how much you like this book, you might not want to be on <laughs> Ministry of <laughs> Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. I believe it's about two hours, maybe three hours as well. <laughs> right, so the that there's there's a big plus. It's short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I uh, look. Adventures of Tom Sawyer is after that. Um, well, that one I am. Yes, you're already scheduled for that one. Um, yeah. And then Easy Go by Michael Crichton, and then Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey, and then that's all we've got so far. But um, added. Very much soon is Heads of Cerberus by Francis Stevens. Um, it is done. It just completed on LibriVox, and Paul signed up yeah. for that, but it doesn't have a date yet, so if you're into that, um, I can add your name to it. Okay. Probably. I think Paul's at another convention. It might be a... Is the Hugo's this week? I can't remember. Oh, no. Don't care. Uh, yeah, well, let's do your, your, uh, pre-chat, uh, Mardal stuff. <laughs> I don't know who this Anna Mardal was, but, uh, or is, or I, I don't know. And that person got kicked, no, not get, get, get kicked off, uh, deleted their account and the account's now back. Uh, you don't know anything about this Mysa, right? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. All right. Is somebody on Twitter. Uh, it was just straight Twitter drama. Yeah, but it was fun. It was like, mm, yum, uh, nice Twitter drama, right? Because this is somebody who uh, was shaming people or something. What, yeah, what, this, this, this person made the claim that expecting authors to read stuff <laughs> other people have written was ableist. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a whole perfluffle about it. it a big <laughs> argument. Um, and then it turned out um, like someone doxed this person, or out uh, they were uh, might a have doxed themselves. Hire at Lockheed Martin, yeah. And people got like, "You work for the War Colonels?" Yeah. And <laughs> wow, everyone got real mad all over the place. Accounts got deleted, and it was a lot of drama. Uh, well, last week, and uh, since we're in the, yeah. the pre-show, yeah. Um, I uh, up until two weeks ago, I was a contractor at Lockheed Martin. So, uh, were you a nepotism hire as well? <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a consultant. I didn't even know that. Oh, I guess, I guess if you're like an executive, you can find some job for your kid or something. Stock I mean, something. A lot of money. It's actually, not that hard. I mean, they have a lot of referrals. Big companies like that. I was like, hey, we've got all these openings. If you refer someone, you get 500 bucks if they get hired. So they wow. do this all the time. Wow. Well. Yeah, I'm not sure that's nepotism, but it's something. Um, here's a little thread on it. Uh, somebody says, somebody named Windows 98 Tech Support. 
<laughs> Very trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking awesome that it was immediately it was immediately discovered that the mom life mom life writer's husband cooks every meal, cleans all the time, and works two jobs so much he collapsed and went to the ER while she makes comics bad mouthing him and yoga. <laughs> Great good job <laughs> plus one for a women. <laughs> and somebody named Six the Forest Hazard says, Who? Uh, I must know this women who worked with people that makes the flying war machines. And then somebody <laughs> named Can't Stop the Signal says, Anna Mardall, colon, used to be a man, comma, transitioned after two divorces, comma, got a job for LM, Lockheed Martin, uh, from nepotism, worked there for 15 years while preaching leftist nonsense on Twitter, bragged about how much slack their mega corporation company job gave them for being trans got doxxed and deleted and then the account is back um so i don't i i wasn't following this person in the first place but um i was just trying to see like maybe there's another side to this but uh the account is not dealing with the uh stuff but yeah i i i read something else basically saying that this person is just a troll and they use uh troll behavior to uh, get clout it's and you know jollies or whatever and i think there are a lot of people like that i know paul's had some problems with uh trolls uh and some other person on the internet <laughs> yeah it's a real problem i um, i don't know i mean my my solution is just Ignore people and not engage with anything topical whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of which, let's talk about this book. <laughs> I guess that's the end of the pre-show. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got another podcast to get to. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Let's do this thing. All right. So uh, it's called Lone Star Planet, and I'm going to bring it up. Oh, damn it! The Wikipedia entry calls it Planet for Texans. All right, here we go. Uh, hi, I'm Jesse. Mysa, that's Hi, I'm you. Alex. I think it's Mysa and then <laughs> Alex. Okay, one more time.